Here we go. Mm -hmm. Oh, Patricia, my darling, Patricia. I can see all my dreams in your eyes Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia You could make all my dreaming come true my heart is just drooling, Patricia, no foolin'. I'm falling in love with you. Oh, Patricia, my darling, Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no foolin'. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. And hello, everybody. It's Saturday, June 2nd, 2018. You know what that means. We're a little over 28 more shopping days until Christmas in July. I didn't get a response. What? <laughs> what? Well, you know how we like celebrating Christmas in July, so I just thought we would do a countdown, you know. Okay. You know? And, anyway... <laughs> <laughs> That's the adorable one, Patricia from Florida. I'm Walling Hughes. I'm the lovable one in Costa Mesa, California. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a couple of stations announcement. We do take your phone calls at 714-545-2071. First of all, tomorrow night we have a special broadcast. It, today... It's the 65th anniversary when the Queen took over the, her, her throne. So we got a special broadcast tomorrow night with that radio broadcast. So we'll feature that tomorrow night with Michael Beale. So 65 years. Anybody think she'll ever give it up? You think her, her son will ever get a crack of the throne? You know, that's sort of been a 
debate my dinner table. My mom thinks the queen should maybe, you know, give up and let her son try it for a little while. But that's just one. <laughs> I, 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 as a matter of fact, this week I was thinking about it. I don't know why. I think I ran across some information about the royal lineage. And I looked at Charles and I thought, you know, he's at an age where he could drop dead before his mother. <laughs> yeah, true. It's true. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. And we okay. we Sorry, we have a very special guest books for us on July the fourteenth live. Vincent Price's daughter, Victoria Price, will be our very special guest on the Saturday night live show show on July the fourteenth. And I know I'm looking forward having Patricia interview her that night. It'll be a lot of fun. And I am looking forward to doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, those are, those are some of our stuff. Now, our phone number is 714-545-2071. After Patricia runs off the bed, what I have planned at the moment is continuing the shows that were heard before D-Day. On uh, Sunday, June 4th, we have three shows left over. And Monday, June 5th, we have five. So those are my plans to go through those once Patricia runs off the bed. That's okay. You do that. Uh, I am coughing. That's, that's okay. And then, and then, uh, you know. Because I ate. You ate, yeah. I didn't talk to you at the same time. <laughs> and I got this tickle in my throat, you know, and now my nose is sniffy because... Okay. <laughs> Hello. Well, should you get something to drink or something? Oh, I have it already. Okay. And I have it. And we have a special live guest tomorrow night. If you're a fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs' writings, uh, Scott Tracy Griffith, the gentleman who's written several books about Tarzan, will be our special live guest tomorrow night. So those are some of That's the stuff. That's going to be fun. Yeah. So those are some of the stuff we got planned for the family. Uh, nice to know the phone is working. Hello, hello there. You're on with Patricia. Howdy, y'all. Oh, Harwood, well, how Harwood, are you? How in the world are you? This is Harwood from South Carolina. How are you? From where? Well, she meant uh, North. North Carolina. I'm sorry. You're, that's right. You're in the Yankee territory. You getting that? Uh, I, I'm sorry. I, it was a joke. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I do too, so. <laughs> well, you well, you, you, well, you know, what can I say? I don't get to tell your room. My bad. It's been a long time, and I didn't know how things were going, and I figured maybe I ought to really find out. Well, we're glad that you called, and is everything pretty normal with you? Is it pretty... Tradition or what? What the uh, what the latest Hollywood update? Uh, just same old stuff. Illness, back and hip and stuff like that. Mm. But I mean, I didn't call for that. No, but Patricia can relate to that. Uh huh. You know, you two, yeah. you two are peed in the pod in that department. Uh, 
I'm doing really well. Uh, Harwood, Harwood has some really bad days. I know that. Yeah. And gosh, I ha I've had a taste of it. Mine is doing much better, but yours is is just fussing at you forever. Yeah, looks like it's probably going to, but we're still trying to work what we can and. Yeah. Right, just an awful little work and an awful lot of not doing anything, but, um, yeah, it's obviously been a whole lot worse. And I hope it don't ever come to that point again, but we're totally totally situation, but I'm sure we'll go through that again. Anyway, uh, we'll keep puttering along. Um, like I said, I just, I really don't think I've heard anything since the last time I called. It's been months and months ago. Wow. Great. So I Great. know what all was happening. Well, you, you are one of my sages, the wise one who calls in. So I want to know, what is your definition? I'm changing gears on you here, and I'm calling right. it's because I need a nap. What is the definition of a lifetime guarantee? Well, I'm afraid there's a lot of cases. I'll give you the example. Of course, I used to sell a lot of rope and stuff, and they had on a spool of rope that it had a lifetime guarantee. So I asked the manufacturer, what does this really mean? He said, until you take it off the spool. Uh, I that a lot of those, that's about what it amounts to. I not my lifetime? No. Life like, like in the case of the rope, it, 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 was a it had a lifetime guarantee. And when I asked him what that really meant, he said, until you take it off the spool. Mm -hmm. So when you undid it and I, uh, rolled it off, the guarantee was over. Oh. <laughs> <So> <laughs> technically, there won't one. How discouraging. <laughs> I, I, um, I think they have a lot to do with the company, what it is and how how reputable a company really is. Yeah. yeah. Have anybody, when you have sold products in your store to somebody, ever questioned about the guarantee or the warranty or of, of the manufacturer? I mean, do they, is that a, a, is that a big deal to people? Uh, as a general rule, no. Um, I never had but one instance our incident, I guess, proper word. Um, and the customer didn't make a stink over it. I did. Um, it's back to a tower story. Um, there's a few miles of towers, especially with the company that I've sold for. God, it's been close to 50 years. Anyway, generally people buy fold-over towers because they're either not able 
or are afraid to climb. And I mean, that's the logic of them. Now, they have their advantages and drawbacks, and in my opinion, it's mostly drawbacks, but nevertheless, the things are for sale. And I had a customer buy one, and you usually, especially the kind he bought, you use simplest thing on the ground, and there's a hinge base that bolts down to a concrete pad, and then um, most people will hook a, a rope to it or a cable and run it to a pulley up uh, at a pole or a tree or something behind it and pull this thing up with a tractor or a vehicle or some kind until it stands up. That's just a normal thing to do. You know, they put the antennas on it while it's still laying down and then they stand this thing up. Well, as fold-over towers go, this did have three one-inch diameter steel anchor bolts that are like three feet long and went down into concrete and then the, the hinge frame bolted these bolts. Well, they had this thing uh, over half, well, it was nearly up. And one of those bolts broke and dropped the whole thing down through a bunch of trees, wiped out his antennas, uh, a couple of sections of the tower could not be recovered or salvaged because it had been bent up so bad. So he was not a happy camper. Oh. Now, with no bigger than the tower was and the size of these anchor bolts, my opinion was that for some reason that bolt had to have been cracked before he ever got it. Anyway, I called the tower company about it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't talk to one of the owners. I got a salesman. And I should have pushed it further. But nevertheless, I told him, I said, the guy's lost all his antennas and part of his tower. Well, how'd that happen? So I told him what he was doing. Oh, well, you can't. You, you're not supposed to put antennas on a tower before you put it up. I said, just to kind of pick and man it. I said, what is the point of a hinged over tower, if somebody's got to climb it and, and put this, well, we can't guarantee this thing. Uh, you know, this never should have been done like this. Well, there's no other way to put one up unless you bought the base down and stack it like you normally do a tower, you know, one section at a time, and you got to climb it each section and put another one on. Well, then why are you using this expensive hinge base? And uh, he would take any responsibility this all, and, uh, I told him, I said, I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to replace these sections myself that he lost. I can't the antennas. I'm going to replace the tower section because I sold them to him. But I will never sell another one of these towers like this without telling the customer this story. And I kept my word on that. I never did sell another one until I told him what happened. And later he disappeared from the company. But, uh, you know, that's getting back to somebody standing behind what they had. And this really had nothing to do with a warranty. Mm -hmm. This was a brand new tower. First yeah. up. And, you know, it just, things like that just 
burn me up when a company will do that. And I really should have gone to, to one of the owners and pushed this further. But at the time, I didn't know when there was just a long, long time ago. I do now and have for a lot of years. But at this time, uh, this was one of the fly-by sales, I think, that wasn't there very long, and I can understand why. What kind of a guarantee did it have? Or did it? Well, it's just, I guess, one of their normal guarantees. And I'm not sure uh, what that is. Um, in their, a lot of the towers are custom made. You give them all the specifications that this thing's supposed to do, like how high it is, what kind of wind loading it's supposed to have. Uh, you know, the, well, they designed for the wind zone in whatever state and part of the state that this thing is going. You know, whether you're near the coast, you're in the mountains, Piedmont, uh, whatever have different wind zone ratings. I mean, this is a national thing. And the tower companies go by that. Um, you know, the tower's got to stand by 70 miles per hour for that area. Okay, what can change all of this is what you're wanting to put on it. So that has to be figured in, and the tower has got to hold what you're design what's being designed for at the rated wind speed, or higher if you specify that. Well, see, these are all custom things. But their smaller towers are off-the-shelf things, and they give you the wind rating and, and, and the load that's supposed to go on it and all this stuff. Now, if you exceed that, uh, you did that yourself. And I've never had a... Um, warranty issue before. And I've seen a lot of the off-the-shelf was overloaded uh, many, many times, and they survived just fine. That's why I really believe this particular case was a fluke, and I really think yeah. one of those bolts was cracked. And yeah. they should have replaced this. But see, with the issue of this, the guy had lost uh, a couple of yards of concrete, he lost his antennas, and of course I replaced, I think it was either two or three tower sections that he could not reuse, but see, he lost all of that, and they should have made it all good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. It's, the, it's the old saying, it's best, it's best to make a customer happy, in your case, to make you the, uh, the retailer. Yes, I mean, that, because, you know, I was in a position to tell this story. And uh, it was a true story. I wasn't trying to, you know, I, I, I needed the sales. But I knew what had happened, and I wasn't selling another one. Now, if I, you came in, well, I want to buy this turkey tower, and, you know, it's a, whether it was the same size or whatever, it was a model, is what we're discussing. And, you know, you want okay, fine, I'll be happy to sell it to you, but here's what happened. Mm -hmm. And after I tell you what I just told you, if you want to buy it, I'll sell it to you. Yeah. I'm going to sell it to you without telling you. So, and that's the only one I ever had a, an occasion. I really think, at this point, I believe one of the owners would have done something. But I didn't know the owners at the time. 
So it's that's the only issue I've really had. And the guy, I guess, could have made a bigger stake over it, but I did what I felt was right and what I was able to do out of my pocket uh, because it just wasn't right what was done to him. As a devil's advocate here, how would he have known whether or not you installed it properly? Well, wait a minute now. We did not install this. He did it himself. These towers like this, people do their own. Uh, yes, I'm, well, I'm, I misstated that. How, how would the salesperson know that I should have said it was installed properly? Well, he really wouldn't. Um, I mean, there are instructions of, of how this is done and, and what do that comes with the tower. But the only thing, now if this had been a large tower, one of the custom design things or whatever, and there had been a failure like this, I assure you the manufacturer would have sent all kind of engineers out to inspect this thing. There would have been x-rays on parts, all kind of stuff like that. Because yeah. there would have been a lot of money involved. This wasn't. This, you know, I think it was like a 64-foot tower. So it was a Mickey Mouse thing. It, it, looking at it in that fashion. Yeah. And they were not going to go to this kind of expense. They shouldn't have had to. That was irrelevant. It was a nothing to them to have replaced this whole thing and paid him for his antennas and the concrete for the base. Um, you know, it's like refusing to pay somebody a hundred bucks when, you know, they're selling a multi-multi-thousand dollars. It really, as you say, it would have been in their best interest Exactly. Just the, regardless, yeah. Regardless of any kind of questions, you were a professional right. in the business. You're not somebody who showed up from the, his driveway and said, "By the way, I had a problem with my tower." You were a professional in this particular area, and he shot himself in the foot with that. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's was so ridiculous about the thing. But the point I'm trying to make is, there are so many companies. You know, this little guy, what's he, what can he do to us? So, yeah. uh, that's tough, fella. Uh, sorry that happened, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, we don't know what you did. Yeah. Well, yeah. they lost uh, a lot of business because of their. And you know, again, a devil's advocate here, it was a salesperson you were dealing with, and yes. they don't necessarily. Have the no, exactly. That's what no, it, it, it's a sales number. They don't care what the company says or does. Um, and I, that's a very broad brush. I don't mean that to affect everybody, but you do run into that kind of an attitude. Oh, yes, all the time. You know, a sold um, item on the, on the bottom of a receipt, sold, is the primary purpose, not customer satisfaction, because they believe once they have, I mean, how many towers does a person buy? Exactly, the yeah. uh, one, and that's it. If either if they're into that kind of thing, I need one. Yeah. But, but but you, on the other hand, 
represented a significant number of sales for them. Right. And that was a whole different ball game. But he was treating you as a customer right out, out of the driveway. Yeah. Um, and and you know yes, they lost. Lost. Yeah. Uh, th yes, this was a small tower. And yes, if he didn't kind of know what he was doing, now he was a, an amateur radio operator, and he wasn't totally clueless. Although there's some that are, I won't argue that. But he wasn't a dead wit. And he was doing right what he was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he had got his information, he was doing it the way he was supposed to do it. But here's the thing. Uh, even as small as this was, somebody could have been killed. Well, you know, I could have gotten sued, but the manufacturer would have too. Yeah. Uh, because everybody in the chain of this whole deal would have been involved. And, of course, that didn't mean nothing to him. He had a job, and uh, next week uh, he'd gone somewhere else. So it didn't mean anything to him, uh, the yeah. salesman I meant. Um, so he didn't care. But the whole deal was lucky that nothing like that happened. It was just material damage. But it could have been something extremely serious. Stored in, in 
what are your outbuildings and you had to dig it out of three feet of mud to use it. Yeah. Had the thing for ten years and 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 cotton rope example that would have, have rotted. Or vanilla yeah. or something. But sure. you 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 have to or the way I would look at it, and I don't, it's not necessarily how the law would look at it, it needs to be specified what life is. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is a guaranteed for 10 years that. or whatever. One time I bought it. Yeah. You know, some of the manufacturers will say uh, it's guaranteed if it hasn't been abused or, or whatever. Um, because you don't know what the person's going to do with it. But still, I think it should be clarified more instead of making you feel good so you can buy it. Mm -hmm. One time I bought it. you bought it, then it's when the issue comes up if you need that guarantee. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you had a story. Yeah, I did. One time my brother and I, for Christmas... We went on a house and bought a CD duplicator, and it was over $600. You know, you put a blank CD, and you put your other CD, and you make a copy of it. You ripped them, yeah. Yeah, and this was like a standalone machine. It was not hooked up to a computer. We get a standalone model. And maybe we used it less than 10 times, 3 or 4 times, and it wasn't working. So we sent it into under under repairs. And the manufacturer sent it back to us and said it was customer abuse that they would not repair it. They were just trying to wiggle out of that. Yeah. And what were you going to do about it? Yeah. That was just the attitude. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there again, you know, there should have been no question mm -hmm. that quickly and just sent you a new one. Right. And it would, they would have gained more from that than what they did. Yeah, they saved having to replace it, but to a, a manufacturer that was selling something like that, that was a drop in the bucket that it would have cost them for the goodwill mm -hmm. just sending you a new one. Right. Mm-hmm. It goes back to your tower. It would not, on, on balance, it would not cost them a fortune. It cost Walden and his brother a fortune. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would exactly. It them a fortune <clears throat> and would earn them the kind of word-of-mouth advertising, because clearly yeah. they were involved in an industry. You don't simply decide that you want to rip some CDs, you know? Right. <laughs> so, and, and, um, and, I, and I think if I remember, it was the brand of Pioneer, so a pretty reputable brand, you know, a pretty well-known. Exactly. I mean, the good people they had a game that yeah. would have far exceeded the, the cost of replacement. But mm -hmm. it's just... I always plenty of companies and people out there that'll do it in a minute. I always love buying things at Radio Shack because I bought a lot of time. I used to go through a lot of radios, little transistor radios yeah. and boombox, and I always put their their warranty program. And the nice thing about it, under the warranty program, they always replace one radio for free in the store. That they're sending it to the store. And I always thought that was a nice feature, like what Hollywood pointed out. It was cheaper for them when I came in with a, uh, with a radio that, was, that just, just gave me a new one off the shelf rather than sending it in for repairs. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that always made a customer happy 
to get a replacement unit right away rather than yeah. waiting and waiting and, and it, waiting. And it made, you rec it made you recommend not only the product but the store. Right. Correct. So everybody won. Well, I've been, I've been looking. For it. I, I, well, we replaced two uh, hard drives on two computers, my wife's computer and, and a spare computer at the shop within the last year or so, I guess, with digital hard drives instead of mechanical ones. Well, my main computer at the shop, my computer guy's been talking about this for couple of years and we still haven't done anything about it and it still keeps coming up and of course the prices are coming down considerably and that's well that's why things aren't being done I guess but he was talking within the last week um, he's retired from the company he worked for and he did a lot of computer stuff there but I mean they didn't do computers they built they were manufacturing um, like these styrofoam trays that, that meat is sold in in the, in the grocery stores and things like that, packaging type stuff. But anyway, um, he retired from that, and he still works on people's computer um, out of his house. And he, he was talking about, he had a customer called him and told him that the hard drive in his son's computer had quit. Well, he said, we just put a brand new digital hard drive in that computer about a month ago. He said, well, I know, but, uh, but it, it, it's failed. So, all right, I'll come look at it. So he said, he went over there. And, uh, you know, this is the, this guy's house, his teenage son he had. And it was a, a, a Western Digital uh, drive. And, yes, anything can fail. Yeah. So, you know, the watch is set, and, and they agreed to replace it and all that stuff. We went over there. He looked at the, the kid's uh, keyboard, and at least half of the key caps were gone off of the keyboard. Just, for lack of a better term, gut sticking out everywhere all over the keyboard. Uh-huh. He said, how did this happen? Oh, well, I, I, was, I was using the keyboard. My mother came in there and slapped her hands down on top of mine and tore up the keyboard. I got to say that he was doing something he was told not to do, and she got fed up with it. But that's the side point. He said, this did not cause this drive to fail. And it looks like to me... There's been an awful lot of abuse going on with this computer, and it wasn't just a drive failing. So anyway, he put it in, you know, replaced it anyway, and uh, uh, of course, kid blaming everybody else for the computer being in the mess it was in. I don't think his mother was the one that broke that keyboard. Uh, he was just mad trying to tear it up. But as far as the drive was concerned, I mean, Western Digital just sent him another one and, and the guy put it in. But he was back to the point that he had to recover what was on the old one and reset yeah. the whole mess up. 
he had hours of work to go back in. Now, what he charged us for that part of it, I have no idea. But, I mean, he would have been entitled to. It wasn't his fault that this happened. But yeah. Mr. Ditchell did replace the hard drive with no questions. Oh, well. Oh, well. Well, Harwood, I am just so glad that you called in. And, uh, you know, when you don't, we worry about people. Right, well... Um, well, we do. We do. I should. I should call more often, but I swear, most of the time at night, I'm just so beat. I don't feel like doing anything. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh. Nothing. And, um, I don't know, Saturday night don't seem to be any exception. We have to, you know, do some shopping and things like that on Saturday. And usually, if we got much at all to do, it's like a three-time out, um, Deal. We have yeah. to go to one or two places and come home and rest and go out again. Um, it's just a nightmare just getting through a store sometime. Yeah. Just to get groceries and things like that. Sure, sure. Uh, anyway, that's just the way it is. I'm glad you put, I'm glad you put us on your list. <laughs> well, I hate wasting all your time on these, all these stories, but... Uh, I don't have a whole heap of face in lifetime warranty. It's always fun to talk with you, Harwood. Thank you so much for Are calling. You? And I'll, I'll get everything right the next time. That's all right. No problem. Okay. We'll see you all later. <laughs> Bye-bye, Harwood. Thank you. Bye-bye. 714-545-2071. If you're from South Carolina, give us a call. Seven one four five two zero seven one. I'm going to get fired, 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 fired. When? When are you going to? When? Yeah. Well, I don't know. You said you said I could always have my job, didn't you? Yes. Hmm. You, don't you think? Don't you think I would hear from the family if you don't, never showed up again? It would be. I think they would hear from you if you fired me. They would hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> to me last week that you and Larry and he, I guess, and John as well, you're mm-hmm. going to get together which date? Friday, July the 13th. July, th- oh, a Friday the 13th? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Okay, so on Friday the 13th in July, Ken Goff will be mm-hmm. your guest and the guestman's as well? Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. John and Larry never talked to him on the air per se, so I thought of opportunity. Uh-huh. Last weekend we talked to Bob Bro for a while. Excellent. And How Bob, is he doing? He's coming out to California, so we might see him next month. Wow. Uh, he and his and, wife are coming out for six days mm-hmm. or so. His wife as well? Yep. So there's a possibility sure. we might have breakfast or something. It just depends on the, on the both schedule. So, um, Excellent. Yeah. And so, and then uh, in the future, on a Friday, we'll have Bob Lines on, on the mm-hmm. 15th, and Max Mead, you know, Max... General call it during the Christmas holiday season. You know, he he's a night yes. owl, and so yes. we're gonna call him at his radio station. He he right. does the late night duties on Friday night over in New York, so we'll call him there. And then uh, we're gonna have our friend Tommy Cook in July. Cause will be Tommy will be turning eighty eight in July, so we always like having Tommy on his birthday. 
And, and you're going to ask him about vitamins. I uh -huh. always forget. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have to send you reminders. <laughs> ask about vitamins. When, now, Tommy, uh, I'm guessing because he was last year, <clears throat> excuse me, he still is prolific in the work that he does. Yes. He's involved in everything. Yes. From writing and directing. Yes. And marketing. And yes. Just everything. If there's a definition of a dynamo in the dictionary, Tommy Cook could have a picture of that. There's, okay. He, yeah. All right. That, well, that pretty well sums it up a mm -hmm. lot better than I do. But when Walden has someone like Tommy Cook as a guest, my first question is, what vitamins do they take? <laughs> and Walden always forgets to ask them. <laughs> I have to do something about that. What happened? They said I never take the stuff. True, they do, don't they? <laughs> now, uh, now that's that's not. Um, Frank Brzee told us one time mm -hmm. that he thought it was because the studios they worked, they did their work in the voiceover, not the voiceover studios, the the radio studios. Mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me, we're always across the street from a bar, right? And they think they got well preserved. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was really a great answer. Frank also had a theory that the reason why band leaders leave so long. Well, musicians, that they always are moving their arms. So that's a theory he has about certain people living so long, like huh. they, if they play the piano or something like that. That's interesting. You know. Well, Satchmo, Satchmo didn't use his arm. No. No. Um, so, so Patricia's going to take up piano lessons here in the next 20 years. So. <laughs> I have to earn a couple more kitty lives, right? <laughs> I have used up all of my nine lives on this trip. Oh, okay. I Today think you got a bunch more. Yeah. Go ahead. You think I have some more? Oh, I know you do. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I do not want to test it, but thank you. <laughs> um, today, you have to explain this one to me. And as you're trying to explain it to me, I will go look and see if I can find anything. Mm -hmm. Today is National Bubba Day. National what? Bubba. B-U-B-B-A. Ah, Bubba Day. Well, I think yeah. Bubba is a short version of brother. Yeah. And it's kind of a, kind a, of a slang. Southern, it is a southern word, yes. And they, out here they have a thing called Bubba Hamburgers. I haven't tried them yet. It's supposed to be frozen in stores, so I haven't tried the hmm. Bubba Burger yet. Hmm. You know, but uh, anybody hmm. want to send Patricia a Bubba Burger? She got room in the room. Bubba definition. <laughs> National Bubba Day. If you are a Bubba to somebody, mm -hmm. it's your day. And we missed National Donut Day yesterday. Uh, I protest. I protest. Okay. It's also National Rocky Road Day. You would like that one. Yes, I would. Uh-huh. Now, this one you have to explain to me. National Trails Day. Like a Boy Scout trail. hiking on a trail. Happy trail to you. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. National Trails Day. What do you think? Sad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? You know the Boy Scouts are changing their names? What are they doing now? The Scouts, that's right. Yeah, Scout BSA. They, they, have, they are allowing young ladies to uh -huh. the Scouts. And they so call what it are they calling themselves? Scouts BSA. And BSA is, you know, is what we, America. America. I wish they would just call it Boys and Girl Scouts of America rather than just calling it Scout BSA. I, I just think 
that's just, to me, I just think it'd be better just to call it Boys and Girl Scouts of America. But that's just... But I guess Girl Scouts are still going to remain in existence, even though they're letting girls in. <laughs> See? What a mess. What a mess. <laughs> yeah, we call them Scouts and Scoutettes. Uh-huh. Scouters. We all, we all we call them Scouters and Boy Scouts. You know, they're Scouters yeah. or whatever. Wow. Mm. Okay. Well, Monday, in addition to applesauce cake day, that would be good. You like applesauce cake? Mm-hmm. Well, last, Monday with Memorial, last Monday with Memorial Day, Mom and I went to a memorial right. service. And one mm-hmm. of the people involved was Jimmy Stewart's wing command, wingman in World really? War II. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. How moving. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yes. Yes, that's a great word. Okay, on the 4th, though, I have to tell you that mm-hmm. on Tuesday... It's Hug Your Cat Day. It's also a somebody's birthday that you know. June 4th. June 5th. June 5th is you. Yeah, that's right. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten to the 5th yet. <laughs> I, thought you, um, I thought you said Tuesday, but no, June 4th, Hug Your Cat Day. I love hugging cats. Uh, no, no, no. Tuesday, oh, I'm sorry. Monday is Hug Your Cat Day. Okay, that's June 4th. Tuesday is you day. And that is also, let's see, it is Hot Air Balloon Day on your birthday. So, so would you would you ever consider going on a hot air balloon? No. <laughs> I, I would have. <laughs> in my stupid days, you know, I tell you that my stupid days, I would have done it in my stupid days. I would not have jumped out of a plane. When, when do when, when do most people days. when do most people bypass their stupid days? <laughs> Some of them have stupid days until they kill themselves. I don't know. I mean, I I had I had my little raccoon encounter. Which I know my attitude on everything. Like, don't go into cages with black bears. <laughs> Stuff like that there. You but, were you were no, fear were you were just fearless. You were I was. you were fearless, I'm, Patricia. That's, that's stupid. Being fearless is stupid. Everybody should be have some element of caution and fear about strange encounters such as sitting with a couple of wolves in their compound. But could some people though be born without fear? Yes. Yeah. I think yeah, those are the, what are they called, the high-risk... Yeah, the skydivers or whatever. Extreme sports, yes. that's what they call it. Or that guy, Please remember that guy a couple of years ago, that Felix, they jumped out of the balloon like 30,000 feet up or something to he, see how he, fast he... Yeah, I don't know how he, and he broke the sound yes, barrier. Yes, he broke the, the sound barrier, yeah. With his body. Yes. Um, see, that's extreme sport. <laughs> <laughs> that is beyond sport. That is stupid sport. Oh gosh! With all due respect, sir, I know you survived, but please don't do it again. Can you? My, my thing is, how can you concentrate? Your heart, my heart rating would be so pumping so I, fast. I don't know what what the G's would be for something like that. I don't know. A plane takes a nosedive and they don't go all the way to the ground yeah. and, and live to tell about it. But you know, talk about five and six G's and a nosedive during stunt flying when you're diving. 
without benefit of anything except you hope to God your parachute yep. will open well, when you get there from 30,000 feet. I don't know what the speed is. What breaks the sound barrier? More than 500 miles an hour. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. General, General, the General, Ye General, um, Jaeger, or, or no, the guy who broke the sound barrier. I think he's still he's still alive, and he has a website. His son runs it. I'm surprised he didn't squash his flight. Seriously, <laughs> his, his blood vessels did not get so much. Uh, I can't believe it. Hello, who's there? Hello there, you're okay. here. This this is John in Maryland. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you? Okay, happy birthday, Walden. Thank you, John. I'm working, I'm working, I'm working on June, Yeah. On June the 1st was our 61st wedding anniversary. Oh. oh, congratulations, John. You think it's going to take? You're going to stay yeah. together, do you think? Yeah. So, do you, do, John, do you have a lifetime guarantee on the, on the marriage? Well, we, that's what we said when we took our vow. <laughs> I think you... I think you guys are qualified, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, we can, <laughs> we can take you to show and tell. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it was a long time ago. So. Well, you we know. Quiet, we had a quiet day at home. My daughter took us out to a steakhouse. Ooh. And then my son, my youngest son, came up. Uh huh. So nobody gave you guys desserts? No, no ice cream. No, no okay. he, he brought up a lemon meringue pie. Oh, oh that'll work. Yep. Yeah, that, that'll work. Yeah, that was okay. that was good. My dad promised me two pies this coming week for my birthday, so I'm looking forward to that. Two pies. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Well, he's a fan of lemon, lemon meringue pie too. What can I say? So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. Uh, and, uh, uh, Are there a pie that you don't like, John? Pies that I don't like? Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever met one. <laughs> Nor did I. Is there one you don't like? I can't think of any. Like mincemeat pie. I've never had mincemeat pie. So I don't. I like, like. I don't know what I'm missing there. I think mincemeat pie is all right. Yeah, I like it. It's hard to find one. Up here you have shoe fly pie. And, Ooh, and apple shoe fly pie. And apple fan dowdy, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I don't know what apple pan dowdy is. Sounds good though. What? It's, it's, made, it's made in a pan. It's I, actually made in a pan. I think yeah, we like it, apple dumpling. I think we looked it up one years ago, I Patricia. Did. I did, and I can't remember what it was. Because John, John remember the dinosaur had a big hit of that song in 1946. Uh -huh. So yeah, I remember that. Yeah. You fly pie, apple pan, daddy makes your uh, tongue swell up and your tump stomach say howdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dinosaur. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That will work. Okay, John. Now you were you were in metallurgy. Am I correct? The metal. Correct. Uh huh. Metallurgy. Okay. Boy, how's that for a memory? <laughs> You're good. If you if you gave a lifetime guarantee or or you received a lifetime guarantee on an item, and I'm using an electric frying pan, what is a lifetime guarantee? 
It's not your lifetime. It isn't. It's, it's, it's the lifetime that they figure out how long it should last. It's like uh, obsolescence. Uh-huh. And that's so, what you consider a lifetime. So in, instead of guaranteeing a lifetime, you know, issuing a lifetime guarantee, they should issue a guarantee for 12 years or uh -huh. 15 years, whatever they establish yeah. as the... Um, poop gauge of their product. <laughs> that is correct. But they don't do that. A lot of a lot of companies after the war they they put in planned obsolescence where ah. they figure yes. out how long something mm -hmm. would last before it would break and you had to buy another one. Yeah. And they yes. and they would then they would figure out a formula where they could even make it less, it would it would last a, a smaller amount of time. That's yes. what they call planned obsolescence. That's what the, mm -hmm. the car car manufacturers were doing. That yeah, yeah. every Rupert's every model change, every, every model change, they would uh, change the uh, specifications that they required to build the automobile. <laughs> So that tells you the, the truth. Some of the older stuff does last a lot longer because they were built better. Yeah. There used to be, I don't recall when there was a, uh, a fire department out in the Middle East somewhere mm -hmm. around the Chicago area where they have a light bulb that's been worn continuously for like 80 or 90 years. Wow. I don't know if that's still around, but uh, I knew one time they were they were showing it. Wow. Somebody didn't plan that one. Did they? <laughs> it was wow. they, they, they didn't. They built things to last. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could go off an automobile when you were small, and you could smack the automobile, and then it wouldn't scratch, wouldn't do anything. It was like Grandma's Lysol. I was at, um, in 2010, Frank Brzee and his wife Bobby sold his mother's house on Hudson Drive, and it was, um, it sold 2000, it still had appliances from the first owner in 1929 still working in the kitchen, like refrigerators and things. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> refrigerator, our refrigerator, we were lucky, lasted the whole war. We didn't have to get a new one. Lasted the whole war. Lasted longer it, than that. It, it was built. It was built during the uh, just before the depression. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, uh, oh, wow. Okay. And it lasted uh, the entire length of the World War Two. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I doubt if that'll happen anymore. I mean, my oh. my daughter's her her ice maker just went up in her refrigerator. Oh. That's a catastrophe <laughs> when your ice maker goes up. It's true. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> what we consider catastrophes, people were, they thought they were living in luxury to even have it. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's how you make money. You make a necessity. You make a, mm -hmm. a uh, uh, let's, how can I word this? You make a luxury a necessity. Uh-huh. That's how you make money. Well, what was it? Uh-huh. Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright had a philosophy in life. 
uh, he didn't care about about worrying about paying for the basics. All he cared about how did he pay for the luxuries of life. So he figured if he could pay for the luxuries of life, he didn't have to worry about the basics. So. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind if I mention that that's stupid? <laughs>
I was going to say astronomy, but I don't think that. No, but yeah, there was a professor who was a astronomy professor. One, and I think this was only one broadcast that I noticed. He liked to play chess with professors oh. over the phone. Oh. But no, he only, he one, only no. played chess with, with professors who could afford it because he never made the call. They always called him to get, find out what move he made. I'll be doing. No, I don't remember that episode. And I guess, and I guess, in some ways, some people used to play chess via the mail. They would, you know, yeah. they, they would make a move and write it down and send it to their opponent. I these these ham operators used to do the same thing. They really, yeah. Operate the ham radios. They correspond with people, you know, in, in different countries, mm-hmm. and, and they would get up a chess game, and they would. Play over the radio, the ham radio. Uh-huh. I wonder how many people in our family know how to play chess. I know Patricia does. I know. I bet John did. You play chess? In, 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 <coughs> ever? I, I played chess years ago. Yes. Yeah, I did. So we, we. Because years ago we we played board games yep. and card games and. Uh, like like people should be doing now. It, it, it was a part of American culture, yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of fun playing. I loved Pinochle. I've never played it. And I, kind of, and I guess it was, I never played Pinochle or... Um, bridge. I played Bridge sometimes. you got to find four people who like to play Bridge. Oh, what's the other one besides Pinochle? I think it's two decks. Um, oh, Canasta. Canasta. I never played Canasta. Canasta. I never played that, so I don't, so. Yeah, when I first came out, people were getting canasta clubs together. Really? And the canasta club. Mm. But uh, people should get back to that, really. I mean, these can, I tell you what, I hardly ever look at Facebook anymore because the language is something I don't care for. Mm-hmm. And, uh. There's a lot of untruths on there, yeah. and I, I just don't care for that kind of activity. So you're not gonna find Patricia on Facebook. She doesn't know what that is. <laughs> I don't. I don't do Facebook. No. Well, oh, John, I'm so glad you called in. I'm so glad you called in, and maybe next week you can have a a World War II story for us. Would you do that? Yeah, I'll have to think up one. Okay, a lot of that. I, I know you do. I know you do. You've got some really great ones. Yeah, I told you about the spy and all that. Uh huh. A lot of yep. people was, that was making that up, but I didn't. No. Oh no, I know you don't make those things up. So we get another one next week, okay? Okay, if I get through to you, I'll have one for you. Okay, John. Okay, John. Thank you. Have a good week. Okay. You Take too. Bye bye. Bye bye. I was looking up some interesting museums this week. You know, I'm always looking for interesting museums, and I found five, so I sent invites. There is a King Autry Museum in his hometown in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. There is a Tom Mix Museum in in Oklahoma. Uh There is a John Wayne Museum in his hometown in Iowa. Before it became a museum, and over a million people have visited it. In some small wow. town in Iowa. And there, there was a Catherine Hepburn Museum in Massachusetts. That's interesting. Yeah. 
So those are. Do you know anything about it? Nope. I have just sent invites to them and see if we can have them on the show. You know, uh, we we do creative things around here. You know, as you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh. 714-545-2071. Patricia will be here for about another 25 minutes or so before she's got to get a snack and get hunkered down for the mall. Because, you know, she's a busy bee. You know, what can I a say? A little bit busy. Yeah. 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 Busy, busy, busy. We used to say that. Terry Thomas. Busy, busy, busy. <laughs> it was great. And by the way, Bubbles will make another appearance the day before Father's Day with a poem. So she's about, let's see, two weeks away. So hopefully Bubbles uh-huh. hopefully Bubbles will have something for us. Hello there. You're on the air. Well, hello and happy birthday. Thank you, Celeste. How are you two? I am fine. Hello. Good. Is this your birthday today or yesterday? My birthday Tuesday. Oh, it's Tuesday yeah. because June first was my wedding anniversary. Same thing with and you. I, yeah. I'm gonna look in the paper here and tell you if you were today this is what was happening. Ah. Your work, health and labors flower this year. Uh recesses five uh, reassess financial plans. <laughs> a surprise provokes alternative direction. Discipline pays long-term benefits. A cash flow surge this summer supports an exploration before a creative buzz harmonizes. <laughs> I mean, if you had that kind of year, you'd be busy every minute. <laughs> <laughs> you won't have time to breathe. That's true. That is so true. <laughs> That's well, funny. Well, so what? You sound good. Are you feeling better than last week? I'm, I'm feeling better. Still have a little um, throat problem and all that. But okay. I went to the doctor again this week, and I'm doing better. And my son comes over and takes care of me. He's a good nurse. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I do feel better. Okay. <clears throat> How are you feeling, Patricia? I am doing very well, thank you. Um, I think I'm all better. The leg? (laughs) Is the the leg doing well? (laughs) The leg is doing very well, very well. I'm hardly using a walker, and it's only when I get really tired and I'm in pain that I use it. It's not because my leg is not working. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad to that. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I, I knew Patricia was going to be okay. Everybody else wasn't too sure last year, but she beat them again. What can I say? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, I hate to tell Patricia, but, you, you know, Patricia, you, Walden and I made a pact that you were going to be okay, didn't we, Walden? That's right. Yeah. Just made a pact yep. that you'd be okay. You know, I, I just knew... Well, Right, and I thank you for that. Yeah. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you weren't on the air, Walden with my my uh, trench uh, told me how you were doing. Yeah. We discussed that yeah. all the time. Yeah. I think I mentioned I had a doctor's appointment last week, uh-huh. and he looked at he looked at me and he said, "We saw those reports come in, and we didn't think you were going to make it." And I said, I oh. told you. <laughs> I told you. But he didn't. He, he really didn't. He thought, 
I was, for all intents and purposes, I was out the door permanently. You are kidding. Oh, no. My really. goodness. I mean, well, I, I'm, I'm amazed because I, I don't mean to sound that way, but I didn't, we didn't have any indication. Now, maybe Walden did, but I didn't have any indication of that, and it kind of takes me back. Well, I, I was very optimistic because Patricia had her issues on a Tuesday, and everybody was so concerned, and Saturday afternoon, from the hospital, there was Patricia calling me just to let me know she wasn't going to be on the show that night. And yeah. Um, if yeah. I can remember my phone number, know who I am, and let me know she wasn't going to do the show, she was going to be fine. <laughs> do you remember what Saturday that was? I had to go back and look. Um, Would you? Yeah. Because I don't have any sense of time for that entire month. Okay. I would say like <laughs> April or May, but uh, I've May. It was May. It was May. Yeah, it was May. It was sometime after the 15th of May. Okay. Well, and that's the first time you went back to your apartment? Well, she was in her apartment a few days, and then she had the issue, and then uh, she, she... You had to go back to the hospital? I, yep. I know that it's after the 15th because I asked my doctor to go back on the records and tell me when the last time I was in to see him. This was the first time I saw him since I was sick. And well, you saw him on a Thursday, I think, and then the, the whole thing... And, and he, the, the appointment was on the 15th, which was, I think it was a Tuesday. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Let me see. I have to, I have to back up. So, but any, in any event, it was obviously after the 15th, because I was alive and upright on the 15th. Yeah, well, so. I, I will see if we, we'll pull the, we'll, we'll, we'll have, uh, yeah. we'll double check the, the records. Yeah. Yeah. He, was, he was really serious. They they just about kissed me goodbye in the emergency room. Well, now, tell me this, Patricia. Uh, sounds nosy on my part, but what did you? What was wrong with you? What was wrong with your leg? Oh, um, over, overall, it, it was a back problem. I've got um, a really bad disc in my back. And, uh, and that probably happened to... question about whether or not I had a mini stroke. I don't know about that. But... Um, in the hospital, it was diabetic ketoacidosis, and I had septic shock, and I was... Oh, my goodness, goodness, goodness. Kidney shut down. My kidneys shut down. So I was really a mess. But well, I'd say, I told them, <laughs> that was an illness for two or three people. Too much for two or three people, I'll tell you. It was enough to, uh, you're right. It was enough to kill three people. You are absolutely right. And he, I mean, he looked around. He said, no walker even? It tells you, and it's true, no doctors know your time. You know, if, if, if no. no doctors no. know your time. If you're meant to still be here, you're mm -hmm. going to be here no matter what they, any doctors yeah. are going to say. You know, you know, it's just, it's the truth. Yeah. You know? And a, a, a good doctor is really a, a help through all of it. Uh, I, I'm convinced that a lot of our illness, when we're really ill and need a doctor, I'm convinced that the doctor's attitude and, and knowledge of what you have and how they tell you about that, and if they're kind of spiritually and, and hopeful, I think that's so helpful. That tells what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. The doctor, don't you think? I think, I think, yeah. I th I th I'm not, I'm not 
you know, I'm not laying fatality off on a no. doctor, but I'm talking about a doctor over a period of time. I think that makes a big difference. Well, I I think it does because uh, our friend Beverly Washburn, um, what she does, and I think this is really good. And I hope, and I wish more hospitals and medical offices would do this. Uh, the university in Las Vegas hires actors and actresses to go in and become a patient. And they videotape their doctors how they treat the patient. Uh-huh. And so the, the actors and actresses, they get their script the night before, they study it, and then the doctors have no idea. These are basically you know, young interns or whatever learning. And, they video, and then they go over after they see the patient what did they do right? What did they do wrong? You know, they, they, they worked on their bedside manners and their, and their things around a patient. And let's face it, that is so important that, that um, the doctor connects with their patients in terms of, uh, you know, being a good listener, in terms of uh, how do they react. Just all those things that I think we, when we're all having male voices, we want that treatment from our doctor who want to feel like uh-huh. you know we're connected sure. to them. of course yeah. yes yeah. and it is I, I just it's just necessary it's one of the things you must have mm-hmm. my doctor moved in uh, pretty close to me and she's part of a big uh, conglomerate <clears throat> she is the sweetest thing she's Canadian and her husband's Canadian and they moved here a while ago and she has three little boys, and her mother-in-law and father-in-law take care of the children. And she's the most wonderful doctor. She just goes over everything with you. And if you don't ask it, she'll tell you. <laughs> so that's what I was, my son took me to yesterday because I was feeling really bad. And she gave me some new prescriptions, and it seems to be working pretty yeah. well. Yeah. But attitude, she just has such a good attitude and um, I've never had a female have you had a female doctor Patricia yes I have and like? wonderful loved yeah. her yeah same here you can just tell that they're interested I, sometimes I know this is my maybe this is my liberal imagination sometimes I don't feel male doctors are listening to you when you're talking to them what do you think <laughs> That is not your female imagination. <laughs> no. Well, don't, did you ever feel... It is notorious. Oh. Yeah, it is a notorious problem that uh, male doctors and female patients frequently just cannot connect with each other, and it's the, the male doctor who has a poo-poo. Uh, yeah. They just tend to poo-poo something, and then people will write and say, you know, I, I had 107 fever, and I was convulsing over oh, on my the God. other side. Oh, my and gosh. And and a man came in with a hurt finger and got treated first. That kind of stuff, you know. You, I, I, of course, that's an exaggeration. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. My but, gosh, that's horrible. I am so sorry you had to go through all that, Patricia. Good. Oh, I was asleep most of the time. Well, I, I understand, but still, when you wake yeah. up, you know the reality of what you've been through. Oh, no. I didn't. I didn't know who I was. Oh, and this, my to be honest, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. They would ask. They would ask me my name a couple of times a day, and I just didn't know. Just didn't know. Well, um, what was that? What was that that caused that? I don't want to be too nosy, but what? What caused it? It was. It, 
diabetic crisis. Ah, okay. All right, all right. And, and that uh, everything just cascaded from there. Oh, my gosh. Well, you sound lovely tonight. Right. Yeah, you sound good tonight. Yeah. Walden, now live up to all these things in this birthday, and then you're going to make so much money, you can send some to Patricia and send some to me. We'll be happy to do that. We need to have a family reunion for Patricia and Sarah get together and talk about us behind our back. You're going to have a cash flow surge this summer. Supports an exploration before a creative buzz oh. that harmonizes. <laughs> the people that write this stuff I always wonder what they look like. Oh, who knows? You're funny. <laughs> yeah, they are. Well, I'm going to let somebody else call oh, you, too, so and we love you both. Same here, Glad so you're doing Thank better, you Patricia. Happy Thank birthday, Walt. Thank you, Sue. Okay, bye-bye. 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 Yeah, we are so pleased to have Patricia with us. Yeah. Yeah. I am, so. You know, the show would not be the same without you. I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be you're talking with Patricia. I know. You wouldn't have that. I know. Okay, it was. I called you. Apparently, I called you on May twentieth. Oh, okay. I had a, I, yeah, a doctor's appointment on the fifteenth, mm -hmm. and that was because I cut myself so badly in the last fall. Okay. And I had the the home health nurse was coming to change the dressing, so I went down. I guess on the sixteenth. Well, yeah, you were trying. To, I remember you had a doctor appointment on Monday, and mm -hmm. the, the thing with the, the crisis was on a Tuesday, and you right. called me that Saturday. Right. See, we got so this all worked we, out. At least by Saturday, I remembered you. You by did. Saturday. But so. but but Barbara, at, at, even after that, uh, was still mm -hmm. worried. But I just knew if you could put it all together, get to call me, you're gonna put this all back together, and you did. <laughs> and I did. You did. I did. Hello there. It was a trip and a half. Yo, I'm with Patricia. Is it my turn? It is, Dave. Oh. Hello. Are you? This is our friend Dave way up there in Rhode Island. How in the world are you? Very well. How are you doing? I am doing very well, thank you. Good, good. And Walden, right? I'm ready. Yeah, I'm. I'm good. I'm okay, good. I'm. I'm being. I'm in a cribbing tournament. No, Scrabble tournament with my mom. Oh yeah. I'm up. <laughs> I'm up to twelve games to nine. Can't oh. believe it. We're gonna grieve, and. Once we start playing the radio show, I, I'm gonna go back and see if I can pull off the upset again and win it my 13th game. So that, that's oh my, that's, you know that's amazing because today I did I did something today I finished. It's taken me five months, and today I finished a, a jigsaw puzzle. You did now. Is it one of those? Is it one of those one thousand pieces? Which one is it? No, well, well, I know now. See. Patricia's laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, 2,000 pieces. 2,000? Oh, don't tell me it was a no, 500 no, piece and it took you five months. Well, Patricia, listen, you're not impressed five months, but you got to remember on the cover of the box it says four to six years. So. <laughs> this is true. Very good take. So, so how, well, how many pieces? How many pieces? Yeah, what did, what did it yeah, turn yeah, out yeah, to yeah. be? No, 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 no. It, it was a joke, Walter. Oh. 
Oh, Dave. The four to six. Oh, boo, hiss. Boo. I told you I am so trusting. I am gullible. You get me every time. But, but Trish would be a wonderful audience when you do your stand-up comedy show. No, she didn't. She didn't get the joke. <laughs> well, I did after you told it to me. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the one in the back saying, what? What? That could be a new routine. It's just playing the joke to Patricia. That could be a whole new... That could be a testament. You know, I actually have a friend whose wife has the perfect sense of humor for the audiences that I play. And I run my material by her. If she laughs, the audience will laugh. Mm. Oh, great. It's really, I'm, I'm very serious. When I did, when I put together the Misgiving show years ago, she was the one I ran the material by. And everything she laughed at, the audiences laughed at. So when you're desperate, it, it, when you're it, desperate, do you take it with you to the show? That way you have some. No, no, no. I don't have to. No, I, I test them beforehand at our house or. That begs the question: Did you put in material that she didn't laugh at, and what were the results? No, I did not. Um, well, I had a couple that I liked that I left in, but she was right. Her her instincts were right. It's amazing. She just has the perfect. A, a mid-range uh, a, a sense of humor, uh-huh. and and I mean, I mean, and I've been just I have been trying a joke out in my show for the last month and a half, and I won't tell you. What, I'll just tell you the joke, and you tell me if you think it's funny. Okay, okay? Funny you ready? <laughs> okay. Okay. There's two guys, and they're walking in the woods. And, and they're just out taking a walk, and they see a huge hole in the ground. And they look in the hole, and they can't see the bottom, and they're very, they went, they, they, they've never seen that hole that looks this deep before. And one of them says, I tell you what, he says, let's, let's get something and throw it down that hole, and we'll listen for it to see when it lands, and we'll get an idea on how deep this hole is. It looks the deepest I've ever seen. So they said, okay. So they look around. And they happen to see an automobile transmission under under a under a bunch of bushes. So they go over and they grab it, and they the two of them drag the transmission all the way over to this usual and drop it in the hole. And they're waiting to hear it land. And suddenly behind them they hear leaves rustling. And they turn around, and there's a goat that's come running. And the goat runs, 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 and dives head first into the hole. And they can't get over it. And, and just then a, a farmer appears. And the farmer says, excuse me, boys, can you tell me, have you seen a goat around here? And one of the guys says, yeah, 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 we just saw a goat run directly by us and dove head first right into that hole. And the farmer said, oh, no, it couldn't be my, couldn't be my goat. My goat was chained to a car transmission. <laughs> I, got, I got it as soon as you started. <laughs> that was good. That was good. I got it before you gave me the punchline, though. Well, good for you, but that joke dies as died every time. You're kidding. Maybe they knew the answer, too. No, what? No, it's happened. No. I thought. Well, I thought. It, I thought it was hysterical. That's good. Yeah, you have to have a certain. You have to have a certain sense of humor. Now, 
My wife, what, you know, what happens is at the end of my shows, invariably somebody will walk up and say to me, I got a joke for you, right? And they're usually horrible. <laughs> um, and you know, like, like and, and they have no, they have no, no sense of funny. I, I will finish misgivings. This is a show that I do on a collar. And, and, and I've had people walk up to me, and guys walk up to me and say, okay, so these are two hawkers, right? <laughs> no, 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 thanks, no, thanks. So, I mean, because no, no, no. have no sense. Right. So, so a guy came up to me one night and told me that joke, the goat joke, and I told it to Joe and my wife, Joanne, uh, when I got back in the car, and she was hysterical. She thought that was a, such a funny joke. So she said, you've got to put it in the show. So I put it in my jokes show. And nothing. Next to nothing. Like, nothing. And, and I can't get over it. And you're laughing at it. And Joanne thinks it's funny. And I thought it was really funny. And nothing. So now it's coming out of the show because I'm, I've done a test on it. And it dies every time. You know, it's well, I think that's a new routine. What's about my sense of humor? Well, you know, you, you have a bit of a... See, the thing is, you, have a, you may have a quirky sense of humor. And the I do. I need, yeah, and the stuff that I need is, is the stuff that my friend's wife laughs at. Yes. Because yes, that's well, for mass, mass appeal. Well, why don't you... Know. Why don't maybe, you we, maybe we can use reverse psychology on that one and tell me the joke, and if I laugh, drop it. <laughs> Yeah, that that could be. Yeah, we could try that. Or well, yeah. when I have a routine, all joke that joke that dies here on the stage, you know, get through nothing but joke that you know is like never going to make it. Jokes that never, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of guys have done a career out of that, <laughs> never worked again, you know. Short careers, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just did a show tonight um, out in East Haven, and, and they, we had a great night. We had a great night, and uh, when I tuned in, I heard you talking about health, mm-hmm. and it reminded me of, the, of one of the stories in my show, where this guy walks into a hospital and he sees a nun come out of, a, of an examining room, and she looks awful. She's ashen and weak, and she's holding the wall, and she's walking very unsteadily, and he's quite concerned, and then he sees the doctor come out of the examining room. He says to the doctor, doctor, is she okay? My God, she looks like... He said, oh, no, she's fine. He said, I had to tell her she's pregnant. <laughs> he said, oh, my God, she's pregnant? He said, oh, no. He said, but it killed her hiccups. <laughs> don't, don't put that one in there. I laughed. Oh, yeah, no, no, that, that's a big one in the show. They like, that's a good one? Like, um, okay. Yeah, they like that one. Right. Oh, anyway, that's what me call. I have an amalgam. Well, if you have it, you know. I have an amalgamated sense of humor, sure. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I just said, had an amalgam. I said, if you have it, Lance, maybe it would be okay. But. <laughs> Go to your room. Go to your room. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I just wanted to check in and say hi to you guys. Hi, Dave. I'm so glad, Dave. It's so much fun when you call. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's nice to know you guys are good, and I just got in, so I'm waiting to... Uh, to come down a little bit from the show, so yeah. it gives me a chance. We, we bring you down. This is great. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put that one first, down in my notes here. Put it in put Patricia's resume. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the person. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll talk to you guys. All right, Dave. To both. Okay, okay, Dave. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Well, it's almost midnight, about three minutes till. Uh-huh. So. Well, I have a question for you. Yes. In eagle, illegal sports betting, mm-hmm. this is across the board, how much money do you think changes hands in illegal sports betting every year? And, you know, they, they, they look like we're going to have a change in the rules and that. Uh, you know, just yes, sort they're of going to allow the... Yeah. The, um, yeah. My guess would be a half a trillion dollars. It's only $150 billion. I thought it would be more mm. as well. That's still a hefty chunk of money. Yeah, yeah. But because, especially because it is the illegal uh-huh. portion of it. It is not betting across the board. It's the illegal betting. Well, you remember, you remember my, remember my one great trivia question, and we, and you and Ron Bond working. Uh, well, I was thinking the one that you and Ron Bond worked on together. I asked what uh-huh. state, what state had the most legalized form of gambling. Oh God! Yes. <laughs> and it took you to state the forty-nine to figure we out. To the forty-ninth state. The, the, the only one was left. Which one was left? It was I. It was. Iowa and somebody else, and you guys chose Iowa, and that was the and one. I chose Iowa, but yeah. I can't remember what the, fi- the 50th was. We yeah. probably got the best <laughs> kind of but That was incredible. That's yes, true. I remember that one very well. Hello there. Oh, that was legal gambling. That's true. Hello there, you but Patricia. Hello, Patricia. Walden. Paul. How are you? Hey. Paul in, Pretty. Paul in California. You, How are you? you sound a lot better yeah. this week. Pardon me, Walden? You sound a lot better this week. I know last week you weren't feeling too well, so you sound a lot better this week. Yeah. Well, I still got stuff going on. Yeah. At right this moment, in this last half hour, pretty good. Good. Feeling pretty good anyway. Good. Yeah. You know, that. um, I see why that that joke bombed, uh, (laughs) uh, I'll, I'll say, why for me. Like you, I figured out, too. When it went diving in, like, uh-huh. but the thing is, well, how did that transmission end up in there? Especially when, you know, the farmer says he ties it to it, but he didn't tie it to it at the bottom of the water. You know, it's like, well, how did it, how did it get there? Right. You know, when he, when he came running from some distance, apparently, anyway, <laughs> with it missing, you know, the goat missing. Anyway, that joke reminded me of a real life. Okay. Uh, thing the. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Back when I was working in laser weld, one of the guys in there. Uh, he was older than me, and he was uh, in the Navy during the Vietnam War. Are you there? Yep. We're all here. Okay. All right. It sounded so extra quiet here. I, I thought maybe well, we we, uh, we 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 didn't want to interrupt this great story. So. Okay, <laughs> he was on a aircraft carrier, and um, he wanted to take this nap without being caught mm-hmm. napping, and so it's like on this. If you looked over the side a, a bit, there was a cutout that he could. Um, be laying in, I guess that's wide enough to make you not feel like you're just going to end up falling right out. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, he, he would. He was laying in there, and he was sound asleep, 
I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of it. <clears throat> I hope I say it good enough. But these guys uh, that wanted to play the joke on him, they they tied a rope around his his ankle. Yep. And they had a big old they had a big old pile of rope there. Okay. And they on the other end they tied a well see what they tied on his ankle was a short piece, okay? Mm-hmm. With the rest of the long piece, at one end they tied this five gallon bucket of grease onto the rope. Okay. And so these guys shook him awake, and they all waved goodbye, and they threw the five-gallon bucket over the side of the ship, Uh-oh. and he's seeing all this rope going, you know, from this pile, and he's looked at his ankle, and she's a tight him. He's like, you know, freaking out. Um, but I think, he, I think he, like, dove towards these guys and hung on to them as tight as he could. So maybe that cutout wasn't on the outside, maybe it was on the inside, but hid him well enough. Wow. Something like that. Something that made it so, you know, officers could catch him sleep. Sure. sure. But these guys knew where he was. Uh, you know, okay. you, under, you understand what happened, right? Yep. I do. Anyway, yeah. Patricia? Yeah, it, it does. I do. Okay. It sounds like we're getting married. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I thought I thought that's pretty funny. This guy, he's a little short, little guy mm-hmm. that, that this happened to, and he's quite a—he's tremendous joker himself. I never have met anybody that knows as many jokes as he knew. It's incredible. I mean, I would hear jokes yeah. I've never heard before mm-hmm. from him. It's like, well, what a memory! It's incredible. So, yeah. Patricia, I was only hearing the. Um, a little bit about your uh, health stuff. Uh, I heard about the cascading. Um, you, you've known all of this for a while, because I know it's been a, a fair amount of time a while back that I asked you. You know, well, what you know, what's causing it? And and you said, no, they don't know what's what's wrong. Why I can't walk right now? So it took uh, them a long time to figure out. It was Patricia vertebrae that was the issue. It took them a while. I just didn't know. Did you have back problems before, Patricia? No. Not that I knew of. I didn't know I had this either. (laughs) (laughs) What we don't know about our bodies is sometimes a very good thing. Sometimes it's not a very good thing. Yeah. Was it herniated or... I beg your pardon? What what exactly was uh, causing the pinching on your your nerve? Yeah, uh, the disc is just blown to pieces, yeah. Oh, had right him blown out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a big bulge. It's I I can't remember herniated and ruptured, and I can't remember what the gradation is, but it's the highest one. <coughs> oh wow! Okay, so anyway, so you had that operated on? I you know I'm kind of iffy about it. Oh, you haven't had it done yet? No. No, no. And that's why it's been a miracle yeah. for her. She's been able to walk and right. exercise and get some things done. So that's why oh. it, her physical exercise and her rehab uh, yeah. have worked so uh, well for her. So. I, I understand 
you're, you're concerned, actually, uh, I need to look further into uh, possibly getting a uh, situation cleaned up uh, in my cervical spine. Oh. Wow. Uh, my, pre- my first neurologist um, saw that, and because I was having such severe headaches at the time every day, and he says, well, you know, this it may be the cause, and uh, really, it's no big deal. He says, they do this all the time. It's no big deal. But I understand that. You could go in, well, I'm not trying to scare you. You know all the ifs, ands, and buts. But let me tell you about my, my, oh, you can pay attention to this one. No, my brother had his back operated on. I didn't even know that he had any problems with it. Next thing I know is uh, he had his back operated on, and uh, they had his arms, you know, laying on each of his side there, and the table apparently, excuse me, I'm getting all congested here, Uh, the table, um, had a raised lip around it, and they had his uh, arms laid in such a way that it was pinching on uh, nerves and his elbow areas. Yeah. And he comes out of that with permanent uh, nerve damage, which means that he can't grip and hang on to things like, like he could before. Well, and apparently, and they make you sign a thing that says, we won't sue you. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe this guy still didn't do something wrong, but my niece, she certainly uh, experienced a thing uh, that, a, that a doctor did, a lady doctor, that uh, she severed, uh, I can't remember if it, I think it was her bladder that she ended up, uh, anyway, because the paper she signed that said she yeah. couldn't even be yeah. sued. And she didn't even try to make it right. She just, like, completely backed herself away from it. And well, we're, go- we're going to have to rename our show, Walden. What that? This is a medical call-in. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it's a medical call-out system. That's true. Uh, well, well, we are past our our good night time here. Patricia's going to go off to bed, and so okay. we're going to play radio show. So, Paul, thanks for calling. Yeah, Patricia, I hope I don't hear you from maybe uh, from getting what should be taken care of. <laughs> no. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. And so you have a good night. week, Paul. Take care, Paul. Pardon me? Take care. Have, well, a, have a good week. All right. Love you guys. Same here, Paul. Bye-bye. Love the family. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye-bye. Love you. Oh, right. Well, I gotta go play. I gotta go play Scrabble with Mom. You have to go play Scrabble, and we have to rename <laughs> our show or something. I don't know, because I really do have some old-time radio questions that I'm going to save for next week, and we will not get off the air without my asking old-time radio questions. Okay. Okay. Me? <laughs> do you think we can do it? Of course. I have faith in anything you say. We're supposed to do. We will do it. That's right. Okay. All right, my dear. I know you and I will be busy working together this week. So, yes, we so will. you know, so 
get a couple hours of sleep. I will. All right, my dear. I will. Thank you, everybody, for being with us. And we will, honest to goodness, we'll have some old-time radio next week. Yay. <laughs> Good night, Good night, Patricia. Thank you for being you. All right, same here. Bye-bye. And there's the adorable Bye-bye. one. And we're going to be featuring radio shows heard on uh, June 4th and June 5th, 1944. And it's 10 minutes after uh, 9 o'clock here on California. So it's a prayer. Dear Lord, thanks for the opportunity of being here. Bless this wonderful country we live in. Bless the families. Help those who are in hospitals, in nursing homes. Help those who might be going through physical problems, Lord. Emotional or spiritual. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright, we got three shows left on June 4th, 1944, which was a Sunday. So you're going to hear The Great Gildersleeve, The Jack Benny, and Fred Allen Show. Next, here on Yesterday USA. Presents the Great Gildersleeve. Craft presents the Great Gildersleeve. The Craft Cheese Company, makers of parquet margarine and a complete line of famous quality food products, presents Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve. Craft brings you the Great Gildersleeve every week at this time, written by John Wheaton and Sam Moore. the great Gildersleeve in just a moment. Naturally, husbands who work hard in the victory garden expect you to serve vegetables at their delicious best. And with the help of Pabstet, the delicious golden cheese food, you can do any vegetable up proud. Make it better tasting and even more nourishing, too. Melted into a smooth, luscious cheese sauce, Pabstet adds rich, mellow cheddar cheese flavor to hot cooked vegetables. Pabstet also gives salads an extra tasty touch. Or it's equally delicious, sliced and served with tomatoes or fruit. Pabstet spreads smoothly, too, and toasts to perfection for serving in many other delightful ways. And Pabstet is wholesome and nourishing. It's an excellent energy food, rich in protein and milk minerals. Contains important vitamin A. So buy Pabstet as often as you can. Tomorrow, treat the whole family to this delicious golden cheese food. Don't forget, the name is Pabstet. Now let's see how things are going with the great Gildersleeve and his campaign for mayor. He's really hit his stride this week. He's made personal appearances at smokers, rallies, bridge luncheons, on street corners, and even at a fire that broke out in Frank Crutch's ice house. And for every occasion, he's had a ready song. Today, we find him with his niece and nephew in the honor box at the ballpark, beating a little singing before tossing out the first ball. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the crowd. 
find me some penis and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back, so it's root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Or if it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Thank you, thank you. I'd just like to say, ladies and gentlemen, that nothing is closer to my heart than the great American game of baseball. Yes, sir, I'd like nothing better than to be right out there on that field with you boys today, knocking that old horse hider out. Why, I grew up in Sandlot baseball. What position did you play, Commissioner? Well, they always made me catcher, friend. Maybe because Mother Nature gave me my own chest protector. <laughs> that ain't all she gave you. <laughs> uh, well, seriously, folks, baseball is a great institution. I haven't much use for any man who isn't a baseball fan. In fact, I wouldn't even trust a man who doesn't like baseball. By the way, where is my opponent, Mayor Terwilliger? I don't seem to see him here today. Let's <laughs> tell them what. I don't mean to imply that his honor doesn't know how to play baseball. He'll play ball with anybody, ladies and gentlemen. He's proved that. And he's stolen plenty of bases when the taxpayers weren't looking either. However... Oh, let's get on with the game. Uh, yes, you're right, my friend. <laughs> let's have the ball, Leroy. Here, let's see how far you can heave it. Don't you worry about that, my boy. Uh, ready out there? Yeah, come on. Oh, brother, what a wind-up. Play ball! Hey! Hey, look, duck lady, duck! Oh, he almost hit a woman. Uh, sorry, madam. A little out of training, I'm afraid. Toss it out in the field, somebody. You must have been some pitcher, Unc. I told you, Leroy, I was a catcher. How did you ever throw the second? I always put him out at first. Now shut up and let's watch the game. Unc, can I buy a hot dog? It's too early in the game to start that. If I buy it with my own money, can I? Huh? Can I? You huh? haven't got any money and you know it. Well, yeah, you want to see it? I got 15 cents left over from... Hey! Hey, I did have it. I had it right in my pocket. Oh, somebody stole it. I have 15 cents right here in my pants. Now, now, don't get excited, Leroy. Empty your pocket first. But if you didn't carry so much junk around... Yes. Ye gods, Leroy. Well, I need it. That's all valuable stuff. A knife. Skate key. Pebbles, rusty nail, rubber band, eraser, old hinge, marble, Wilkie button. <laughs> What's this envelope, Leroy? Oh, that? Yes, that. It's addressed to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a note from Miss Goodwin. I forgot to give it to you. When did she give you this, young man? I guess it must have been yesterday. Huh? Or maybe it was the day before. Oh, my goodness. It's all right, Unc. I found it. It's not all right, Leroy. When you're asked to deliver a note, you should deliver it. But I found the 15 cents yep, in yep. the other pocket. Now can I buy a hot dog, can I? I don't care what you do. Oh, boy, one side, Marge. Careful. Well, pull in your big feet. Yes. What does the note say, Uncle Mort? I don't know. I'm just reading it, Marjorie. Marjorie? I wasn't reading it. Gosh, if this note is two days old, I don't know what she must be thinking. I better get over there right now. Oh, look, they're going to start the game. Who gets the bat first, Uncle Mort? Uncle Mort? Uncle Mort! Where did he go? Dear Throckmorton, it seems as if I'd hardly seen you for weeks. I know you've been busy with your campaign, and I'm very proud of you. 
I've been busy, too, working late every afternoon. But couldn't we play a little hooky together just once? <laughs> she misses me. Besides, I have some good news for you. So do let's try to get together real soon. Your loving Eve. <sighs> well, I'm not the man to keep her waiting. Come in. Uh... My name is Throckmorton. I was told to come to the principal's office. <laughs> oh, Throckmorton, you silly. Miss Benson sent me down here because I was a bad boy. <laughs> I'm, I'm the worst boy in 6A. Oh, really? Well, what did you do that was naughty? I kissed every girl in the room except Miss Benson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's terrible. Uh? Stand in the corner and recite the multiplication table a hundred times. Oh, Eve, we can think of something that's more fun than that, can't we? <laughs> uh, are you through with your work? Well, not quite. Now, be fair, Eve. As soon as Leroy gave me your note, I dropped my work. What were you doing? Watching a ball game. <laughs> Come on, Eve. It's a beautiful day. Let me take you home. I'll carry your books. Well... Come on. I'll even buy you soda. I'll hold your hand under the counter. I'll... That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Morton, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Well, you're walking so peculiarly, I can't keep in step with you. Oh, <laughs> I'm trying to step on all the cracks. Oh, my goodness, a grown man. Well, Eve, don't you ever do things like that? Never. You miss a lot of fun. Sometimes I step on all the cracks, and sometimes I try not to step on any. It's fun to walk with your eyes shut, too. You want to see me? No. It I'll show you what's even more fun than that, if I can find a stick. Throckmorton, I don't know what's come over you. Yeah, here's a stick that's made to order, Eve. All right, what are you going to do with it? Well, I could spank you, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> you better not. Yeah, wait till we come to Mr. Lawler's picket fence. Well, of all the ways to entertain a girl. What can I do? I can't kiss you here in the street. Or can I? No. <laughs> well, all right then, listen to this. <laughs> Let me try it. Sure, go out. I must say it's more fun than I thought. What did I tell you? <laughs> Wish there was more fence. Huh? <laughs> There'll be some more a little farther along, Eve. Let's hold hands and skip. What do you say? Throckmorton, I'm the principal of the Summerfield Grammar School. That's nothing. I'm the water commissioner. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Throckmorton, you're impossible today. Yeah, what do I care? <laughs> Throckmorton, I don't understand you. Huh? What do you mean, Eve? You're not human. I told you in my note that I had some news for you, and you haven't even asked what it is. I forgot all about it. What is it? Oh, I don't think I'll tell you now. That's no fair, Eve. Now you got me all curious. Come on, what is it? No, I don't feel like telling. Please, Eve. No. Will you tell me if I buy you a soda? Here's a drugstore. Mm, I might. Come on, then. But I might not. Oh, look, Mr. Peavy's got a new sign in the window. Fresh strawberry sundaes guaranteed to please. <laughs> <laughs> Talented, Eve. <laughs> will, a, uh, will a strawberry sundae make you talk? If it's good, it will. <laughs> It'll be good, and I hope it makes you talk better than that. <laughs> After you, my love. Well, good 
afternoon, Miss Goodwin. <laughs> Good afternoon. Hello, Peavy. We want two of your fresh strawberry sundaes. And if you don't like them, we want our money back. I think you'll find them very enjoyable. I had quite a run on them today. Oh? <laughs> here, sit down here, Eve. We'll watch the great artist at work. Thank you. <clears throat> Darn it, TV, why don't you put some booths for your soda customers? Can't you afford a booth? Well, I've got a phone booth. <laughs> All right, we'll have our Sundays in there. <laughs> How about it, Eve? Isn't he awful, Mr. Peavy? No, he's only joking, Miss Goodwin. He can't get in the phone booth himself, let alone... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's your Sundays, folks. You like a few chopped nuts sprinkled on top? Oh, yes. It's uh, a nickel extra. Oh, that's all right, Peavy. I feel like throwing money around today anyway. Well, uh-huh. glad you dropped in. You don't happen to need any staple drug items like uh, aspirin? Yeah, now, now, don't try to sell me the store, Peavy. I came in here to make this lady talk. This strawberry sundae is supposed to uh, loosen her tongue. Hmm, I think maybe it will, too. This is delicious, Mr. Peavy. Hmm. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Miss Goodwin keeping a secret from you, Mr. Gildersleeve? Yes, he's trying to, Peavy. I ask you, is that a nice thing for a man's fiancée to do? Well, it's customary. <laughs> the ladies like having their little secrets. Every so often, Mrs. Peavy gets some little piece of information about one of the neighbors and holds on to it. Oh? Just deviled you with it, eh, Peavy? Well, she likes to tease me a little. <laughs> Just a few days ago, for instance, she had an item on Mr. Wheeler. He lives two doors down from us. Charlie Wheeler? Hmm. Oh, what was it, Peavy? Well, I can't tell you that, Mr. Gildersleeve. Yeah, you don't have to. Poor old Charlie. I bet it was something about his... <laughs> you ought to be ashamed of yourself, Throckmorton. You're right, though, Mr. Gildersleeve. It was that little habit. Mr. Peavy, why, you men are the worst gossips I ever saw. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I guess everybody likes hearing juicy little things about their neighbors. Well, I'm certainly not interested. I scarcely know Mr. Wheeler. Of course, the Wheeler children are in school, and they're a bit of a problem. I know Mrs. Wheeler very slightly. Does he beat her? (laughs) I'll tell you if you tell me your secret, Eve. Come on, what is it? Well, mine isn't gossip. Mine is just good news. Oh, good news, eh? What is it? My mother's coming to visit me tomorrow. Huh? (laughs) Liz, is that all you have to say? I've told you how much Mother means to me, Throckmorton. Oh, yes, I think it's fine that she's coming, Eve. Great, I can't wait to meet her. <laughs> I was hoping you could drive me over to Moore's Junction and meet her train tomorrow morning. Oh, certainly, fine. Glad to do it, Eve. Uh, how much are the Sundays, Peavy? Oh, Fifty cents, Mr. Gildersleeve. That includes the nuts. Nuts? Oh, yes, yes, well, here you are. Uh, all through, Eve? Yes, thank you. Eve, that's certainly fine about your mother. So long, Peavy. Uh, see you later. Goodbye, Mr. Peavy. Goodbye, Mr. Gildersleeve. Goodbye, Miss Goodwin. My, my, she never found out about Charlie Wheeler's little peculiarity. Well, for that piece of news she had, she didn't deserve to. Greg Gildersleeve will be with us again in just a few seconds. And now more about that tempting golden cheese food that spreads, slices, and melts, tastes good, and is mighty good for you. It's Pabstet, of course. Pabstet, the delicious golden cheese food of a hundred uses. Pabstet spreads like butter at room temperature, slices neatly when chilled, melts quickly and easily into a smooth, luscious cheese sauce. And what grand variety. 
Pabstet macaroni dishes, Pabstet souffles and omelets, Pabstet sandwiches, fish and egg treats with Pabstet cheese sauce, and dozens more, all extra delicious, extra nourishing with this marvelous cheese food added. Your dealer may not have Pabstet the very first time you ask for it because so much dairy food is going to war. But everything is being done to keep dealers supplied. So watch for Pabstet in the familiar round flat package. And when you can, buy this wholesome, nourishing cheese food, Pabstet. Well, let's get back now to Summerfield and the great Gildersleeve. To anyone passing Gildersleeve's house, it would be apparent that something important is about to happen because Gildersleeve is out in the driveway preparing to wash his car. By George, I don't know how the old bus gets so dirty. I had it washed only last February. Here's the sponge in the bucket, Mr. Gildersleeve. Thank you, Bertie. And now we can get started. We? Ever washed a car, Bertie? No, sir. Can't say that I have. Oh, it's an experience, Bertie, an experience. Watch the way I do it. And you'll know how to do it yourself, if the occasion should ever arise. Yes, sir. I can see it arising. <laughs> May seem like a simple thing, washing a car, Bertie, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do everything. Yes, sir. Now, the first step is to remove the dirt. That sounds reasonable. Yeah. Watch. Watch closely now, Bertie. You observe that I take the sponge and immerse it in the water until saturated. You do what? I take the sponge and dunk it, Bertie. <laughs> now, with the sponge soaking wet... I start at the top of the car, and uh, <laughs> it's running down my sleeve, Bertie. <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> you ought to roll up your sleeves, Mr. Gillsleeve. Well, that's not so easy. I have my good clothes on. But you haven't any sleeves, Bertie. I tell you, Mr. Gillsleeve, why don't you use the hose instead of the sponge? That would be easier, and you wouldn't get so wet. Hose? That's a good idea, Bertie. A very good idea. You're catching on very quickly. Uh, drag it over here, will you? Yes, I'll get it. You seem to have a knack for this sort of thing, Bertie. I wouldn't be surprised if I could entrust the whole job to you before long. I wouldn't be surprised either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fine. Now you go turn it on. Good afternoon, Frostmorton. Leela. Well, hello. Washing your car, Frostmorton. Yeah, just washing the car. Oh, oh you... gracious! Look out, stand back, Leela. You get all wet. Now don't you point that hose at me, Frostmorton. You hear? Oh, I wouldn't, Leela. Because if you did, I'd just never forgive you. Understand? Don't you? Maybe I won't. Maybe I will. <laughs> Look out, Leela. Here I come. <laughs> All right, turn it off, Bertie. Turn off the hose. Martin, I declare you're the worst mine. I am. <laughs> that ain't getting the car washed, Miss Gilsey. No, it isn't, Bertie, but I'll get around to it. Uh, tell me, what are you washing your car for? You must be stepping out somewhere, huh? Not exactly, Leela. Eve's mother is arriving tomorrow. Oh, your mother-in-law. No, she did Well, I suppose she will be at that. Oh, you poor boy. <laughs> I know just how you feel. Now, Leela, Eve's mother is not like that. Eve's mother is different. Mm. Eve's mother is very close to her. They're more like sisters. How nice. You met her then. No, but Eve's told me all about her. I see. Shall I turn on the hook, Miss Gill, please? Uh, just a minute, Bertie. I I've got to go now, Throckmorton, but I'd just like to say one thing. Yes? If you ever need someone to sympathize with you, if you ever need someone to turn to, remember, I'm right next door. But I tell you, <laughs> I like Eve's mother. Darn it, I like her. Goodbye, Niall. <laughs> 
Turn on the hose, Brady. Okay, Miss Gilfie. Hello, Leela. Leaving? Yes, I'll have to, Judge. Oh, my goodness. Well, Gildy, washing your car. What do you think I'm doing? Taking a bath? <laughs> watch it, watch it. Yeah, hold it, Bertie. Turn it off a minute. What's the big occasion, Gildy? What big occasion? Washing the car. How come? Neighbors complain? <laughs> my mother-in-law is arriving in the morning. Your mother-in-law? Well, that is my mother-in-law-to-be. Deepest sympathy, old man. Deepest sympathy. She's only coming for a few days, Judge, and she's staying with her daughter. So there. Uh-huh. Coming to town to look you over, huh? Well, I suppose so. Only natural for a mother to want to know what kind of a man her daughter is marrying. What are you going to do when she finds out? <laughs> now listen, you old goat. Turn on the water, Bertie. No, I, I didn't mean it, Gildy. Only joking. Yeah. Hey! Yeah. Run along, Judge, or by gosh, hey, I'll hey. let you have it. Can't, can't you take a joke? Sure, can't you? Dance, Judge, no. dance. No! <laughs> Oh, hello, Peavy. What's that you say? What's going on? You washing your car? Can't hear you. I'm washing my car. <laughs> hey, turn it off, Bertie. Now, what'd you say, Peavy? I see you're washing your car. Yes, Peavy, I'm washing my car. I'm planning to take the family out for a little spin, Mr. Gildersleeve? No, Peavy. I'm planning to go down and meet my future mother-in-law at the train tomorrow morning. I want the car to look nice. Hmm, mother-in-law, huh? And no remarks, see? Oh, I wasn't going to make any remarks. Well, everybody else has. I have a mother-in-law myself. That is, I did up to the time she passed on. Well, my mother-in-law isn't like most mother-in-laws, Peavy. My mother-in-law is different. That's what I used to say. Mother Horsefall, I always called her. She, she liked to have me call her mother. My wife's name was Horsefall. Yeah, I hope so. And so was her mother's, yeah. Mother Horsefall. Mother Horsefall. I've always had a sneaking fondness for the old girl. Well, I'm glad to hear you say so, Peavy. Yes, we got along pretty well for the first few months, but after that... Uh, well, such is life. With that thought, Mr. Gildersleeve, I'll leave you. Good day. <laughs> Good day, Peavy. The idea... Miss Gildersleeve, how about it? Let it go, Bertie. Why can't they let me alone? Why can't they let me polish my car? Oh, the devil with a car. Let the old lady ride in it the way it is. Just think, Throckmorton, I haven't seen Mother in almost a year. Oh, that's all? Well, I'm excited, aren't you? You bet. I was hoping you'd find time to wash the car. Oh, well, I was going to, but some things came up. <laughs> How much farther is it to the station? Another four or five miles. We got lots of time. I wouldn't want to be late. Don't worry. Uh, how about a little kiss just to pass the time? Hmm? Oh, now, dear, please be sensible. Not while you're driving. All right. Why are we stopping? You said to be sensible. <laughs> now, how about a kiss? Throckmorton, you think of making love at the strangest times. What's strange about 10 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> But we're hurrying to meet a train. Please, Throckmorton, I'd just die if we were late. We can't possibly. Please. Please, darling. Just one kiss? Just one. Oh, you're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> the train is due at 1027, dear. How can you be thinking about timetables? Well, after all, it's my mother. We must go on, Throckmorton. All right. 
Well, that's funny. Is the ignition on? Oh, sure. I'll choke her a little. She must be flooded. <laughs> this old bus gets that way once in a while. She does? Yeah, but don't worry. I know her like a book. Just left the letter set there for a minute. I wish we hadn't stopped. Now, Eve, there's nothing to worry about. 30 seconds and we'll be on our merry way. Well, you can't blame me for being nervous. <clears throat> can't you try it now? Too soon, Eve. I know this car like a book. Oh, dear. Yeah, give it a few seconds more. Now, she'll start off like a B-24. Is the ignition on? Oh, yes, it's on. <laughs> well, I... Just have to look under the hood, I guess. Check a few things. Oh, dear, this is awful. <laughs> this won't take a second, my dear. Are you sure there's gas in the tank? Oh, yeah, I put in two gallons just this morning. <laughs> the needle isn't even touching the E. What are you pounding? Don't worry, I fixed it this way once before. <laughs> you just leave it to me, my dear. Men understand such things. That's what men think. What's that, Eve? Oh, Nothing. Please hurry, Throckmorton. Ye gods, what can I do? Do you want me to give you a piggyback ride to Moore's Junction? Well, there's no need to lose your temper, Throckmorton. I just thought if you'd stop some car that's going by, there might be someone who could help you. I'm perfectly capable of finding the trouble, Eve, and I can fix it, too. So just relax, for heaven's sake. Very well, Throckmorton. Uh, leave me alone a minute so I can concentrate. Oh, dear, poor mother. Throckmorton! I know, I heard it. sake. What's it now, Eve? Do you realize my mother's been sitting in that station for half an hour? Yes, and I wish you were sitting there with her. Oh! Uh, ooh, I didn't mean that, Eve. It kind of slipped out. I mean, <laughs> I'm doing the best I can, Eve. Haven't you found out what's wrong yet? Well, no, but if I... For goodness sake. It seems to me that... What's that wire hanging down there? Wire? Well, uh, what wire? This one. It ought to go somewhere. It could go right here. No, no, Eve. That's part of the radio. I don't think so. Hook it on here. Huh? Uh, there. Now, why don't you try the starter? It couldn't be that. Well, try it, Throckmorton. Well, all right, Eve. Couldn't possibly be that. No, afraid it's not that. <laughs> I didn't think so. Did you have the ignition on, Throckmorton? Ignition? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, what do you know about that? Some people are born lucky. Oh, dear, there's not a soul around the station. I just know the train got in hours ago. It wasn't due till 1027. If anything's happened to Mother, I'll never forgive you, never. Nothing's happened to your mother, Eve. She'll be around somewhere if she's got any sense. That's right. Blame the whole thing on Mother. Eve, I'm not blaming on anybody. I just... Uh, look, could that be her? Where? Over there, sitting on the barrel. Mother. Mother, we're here. Eve, darling. Oh, thank goodness. How long have you waited? Oh, not long. Oh, I thought we'd never get here. Well, I looked around, and when I didn't see you, I just said to myself, I don't... Oh, this, I suppose... 
It must be. Yes, this is Throckmorton. Mr. Gildersleeve, my daughter has written me so much about you. Well, favorable, I hope. Oh, yes. Oh, very. Oh, dear, yes. <laughs> Why, she wrote uh, me only... Throckmorton. Huh? Oh, her bags. Oh, yes. I'm afraid they're terribly heavy. Uh, can't be too heavy for me. <laughs> uh, the car is this way. I... Uh, I feel I ought to apologize to you for being so late. Oh, not at all. It just gave me time to finish my magazine. Well, you see, something went wrong. The with... whole thing was Throckmorton's fault. If he hadn't insisted on stopping, the car would never have stalled. And if he'd used his head and done as I asked him to, we wouldn't have been all day getting started. But Eve... I was never so furious with anyone in my life. Why, Eve Goodwin, I don't think that's a nice way to talk about a nice man like Mr. Gildersleeve. Here he's carrying my bags and he's driven all the way down here to meet me. I think that's very nice of him indeed. Oh, but, Mother, you don't understand... I think uh, Mr. Gildersleeve seems like just about the nicest son-in-law anyone ever had. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Mrs. Goodwin... Uh, call me Mother. Uh, you know, Mother, I've been telling people you're not like other mother-in-laws. You're different. And by George, you are. Why, if you were 20 years younger, or if I were 20 years older... Yes? Uh, but we're not, are we? <laughs> Maybe we better be getting along. Dear Diary, well, you have to expect these little misunderstandings, I guess. I guess you have to take the bitter with the sweet. That's part of the fun of being in love. Give and take. That's what real love is based on. Gosh, you can't really be in love with a girl if you get all upset over every little thing. <laughs> Who was it said that forgiveness is the greatest of all virtues? Well, I forgive her. But by George, she's not going to tell me how to run my car. Good night. <laughs> Music on this program is directed by Claude Sweet. This is Ken Carpenter speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company, makers of parquet margarine and a complete line of famous quality food products. Kraft invites you to listen again next week for the further adventures of the Great Gildersleeve. Today, America's bakers are making so much good bread, bread that's enriched for even better nutrition, you'll want to eat plenty of it and enjoy it more, too, by spreading your bread with delicious parquet margarine. This quality spread for bread that's made by Kraft, yes, Kraft makes parquet margarine, has a flavor that's both delicate and appetizing. Parquet adds flavor goodness that makes bread and hot toast, biscuits and muffins taste so good. And parquet margarine also adds extra nourishment to these wholesome foods because every pound contains 9,000 units of important vitamin A. Besides that, parquet is also high in food energy. Tomorrow, then, when you buy bread, buy enriched bread. And tomorrow, when you buy a spread for bread, buy a vitamin-fortified spread. Buy parquet, P-A-R-K-A-Y, parquet margarine made by Kraft. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jack Benny. Friends, the black market in gasoline has undoubtedly made necessary some of the past cuts in coupon values. For there's no magic source of supply for black gas. There's just so much to go around for civilian use. 
and black gas comes out of honest people's gasoline tanks. If you buy gas without the proper coupons, you actually encourage robbery and counterfeiting. We have reached uh, nearly the top productive capacity from our reserves, yet our armed forces need more petroleum products than ever before, for we are facing the crucial hour of this war. Your part, and the part of every loyal American, is to do all you can to stamp out the black market and conserve precious gas. Don't apply for any more than you actually need, and never buy one gallon of gas without the proper coupon an honest coupon issued by your ration board. It's one more blow for victory. One more way we can back up our fighting boys. The Grape Nuts and Grape Nuts Flakes program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies, if I suddenly pointed at one of you and said, you're neglecting your husband, <laughs> I'll bet you'd be very indignant. But just think back a minute. Think back to breakfast time. Do you let that hard-working husband of yours dash down in the morning, snatch a gulp of coffee, and then sprint for the bus? Well, if he does, you are neglecting him. And he isn't going to thank you either when he gets that letdown feeling from lack of food round about 11. Now, lady, if your husband comes up with the old one that he hasn't time for breakfast, just have your answer already. Just feature at breakfast a big, tempting bowl of quick-to-fix grape nuts flakes brimming with good, rich milk. Boy, how he's going to enjoy those grape nuts flakes. Crisp, toasty brown with their distinctive, malty-rich flavor. And what swell nourishment they'll bring him because grape nuts flakes are a whole-grain cereal crammed full of whole-grain nourishment. And remember, nutritionists say a cereal with whole grain food values is a must for that adequate breakfast we should eat every day. Eat a good breakfast, do a better job. Enjoy delicious grape nuts flakes every morning. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this being our last program of the season, I feel a tribute is in order. Oh, Don, please. It's been said that Jack Benny has brought more laughs to more people than any man who ever lived. And now we bring you the man who said it, Jack Benny. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, I must say that was one of the most unusual introductions I've ever heard. Well, Jack, I'm glad you liked it. I didn't say I like it, I said it was unusual. <laughs> you started out, uh, Don, you started out very cleverly, but, uh, but, uh... But what? 
Well, it's the first time I ever heard a man talk himself into a raise and out of a job at the same time. <laughs> Don, since you brought up the subject yourself, tell me, who is there in radio that gets more laughs than I do? Well, there's Bob Hope, Fibber McGee and Molly, Red Skelton, Burns and Allen, Jimmy Durante, Abbott and Costello, Groucho Marx, and Eddie Cantor. I mean besides them. <laughs> Anyway, what makes you think that they get bigger laughs than I do? Jack, they're all great comedians. Well, what do you think I am, John's other wife? <laughs> huh? You certainly got the shape for it, Jackson. <laughs> Phil, don't let these tight slacks fool you. you know? <laughs> anyway, what are you butting in for? Don and I were talking about comedians who get bigger, I mean, who try to get bigger laughs than I do. And I didn't even mention Fred Allen. Don, Fred Allen doesn't get as many laughs as the bull of a watch time announcement. <laughs> and he, he's supposed to be an ad-lib comedian. Well, Fred is an ad-lib comedian. Ad-lib comedian. If he ever went down to Allen's alley, knocked on the doors, and nobody was home, he'd shoot himself. <laughs> Some wit. Well, I don't know. I'll never forget the laugh he got when he called you Flat Top's brother, False Top. <laughs> Now, that's the corniest thing I've ever heard. Anyway, Alan should talk. With those wrinkles on his face, he looks like a convertible with the top halfway down. <laughs> and with those... <laughs> I like that one myself, you know? <laughs> And with those bags under his eyes, he looks like a short butcher peeping over two pounds of liver. <laughs> I don't pull another one unless I top it, brother. <laughs> no. Now, look, this is our last program, so let's not clutter it up with a lot of junk. Come in. Yes? Remember me? I'm Herman Peabody, the insurance salesman. Oh, yes, yes. Come on in, Herman, and say, what's that tape measure over your arm. Oh, it's just a company regulation. When I sell a policy, I have to measure the customer. Measure the customer? Yep. With a shortage of help, well, we don't like to dig the hole any bigger than we have to. <laughs> I see. Now look, uh, Herman... <laughs> Irvin, this is my last program of the season, so... Uh... That's why I came over. I wanted to say goodbye. Well, that's very thoughtful of you, Herman. You know, every time I listen to your program, you make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I make you laugh, kid. Yeah, you really give out, don't you, Herman? Oh, yeah, sometimes I get hysterical. <laughs> excuse me for being boisterous You're excused, you're excused Well, maybe I ought to go now I have to take my dump truck back to the insurance office Your dump truck? Yeah, I drive that around to service our 48-cent policy Well, that's the cheapest policy I ever heard of But what's the dump truck got to do with it? 
Well, at that price, if you die, we don't give you any money, but we guarantee to cover you up. <laughs> well, that, uh, that uh, policy sounds reasonable. Yeah. Reasonable? It's dirt cheap. Herman. <laughs> 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 Herman, now don't, don't exert yourself there. We got a, a show to do, so would you please go over there and sit down? Oh, certainly. Oh, by the way, where's Mary Livingston? Mary? Oh, she couldn't come down today. She's got laryngitis. Oh, I didn't know that, Jack. It's too bad she couldn't be here for the last program. Yeah, but she's all right. She's home listening to it. Well, that's one listener we're sure of. I don't know. Mary's pretty particular, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Phil. Play a band number, and then we'll be able to come in. Mr. Benny? Yes? I understand this is your last program until next fall. That's right. Well, I hope people miss you as much as they miss me. Why? Who are you? Just an old cuspidor. <laughs> Amazing how many people try to ruin a good show. Play, Phil, and do your bit, will you? Guys played by Phil Harris and his Jam Session Orchestra. Jam meaning jelly, jelly meaning preserves, preserves meaning pickled, and you can take it from there. <laughs> and now, folks, look, Jackson, it's bad enough that you keep panning my orchestra all year, but you don't have to do it on the last program, do you? Well, Phil's uh, right, Jack. If Phil likes his orchestra, that's all that matters. He knows whether their music's good or not. Or he does, eh? Listen, Don. Phil once followed a guy with squeaky shoes for three blocks, trying to find out who made his arrangements. <laughs> and a lot he knows about music. He found these boys in a pool room. In a pool room? Yeah, you notice when they came in for rehearsal, you know, he doesn't sit them in position, he just racks them up. 
Hey, I'm pretty good myself today, you know. And now, folks... Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, my boys don't play any pool any more than anybody else. Any, any, any. Phil, all I know is you had to get rid of that violinist with the bald head because the clarinet player kept shooting him into the tuba. So don't... So don't try to... Hey, my wife played the tuba. What? What was that, Herman? My wife played the tuba for 25 years. Your wife? Well, that's an unusual instrument for a woman. Uh-huh. Mr. Benny, did you ever kiss a tuba player? No, I... I, uh... No, I can't say that I have. Well, if you ever do, you'll know what they mean by a slip of the lip can sink a ship. <laughs> Herman, now go back to your chair and sit down. Thank you. Now, let's see. Uh, <laughs> let's see, where were we? You were panning my orchestra, and you want to know something, Jackson? What? When you find out what I'm going to do this summer, you'll be glad that you're one of my colleges. That's colleagues. Colleagues. <laughs> well, what are you going to do this summer, Phil? Well, I'm taking over the K. Kaiser program. The K. Kaiser program? Sure, get a load of this. Evening, folks. How y'all? Come on, chillin', change your stance The professor's here, yes, dance, yes, dance <laughs> So you're gonna ask the musical questions Phil, that is something, really even, even I know more about music than you do Oh, yeah? Look, Jackson, I wanna ask you a question Oh, Phil, don't bother No, come on, I wanna prove a point Now tell me, who wrote Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Oh, Phil Come on, come on, tell me now Who wrote Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? All right, Sherlock Holmes all right, so I gave you an easy one. Uh, Bill, let me ask you something. When you take over the Kay Kaiser show and ask those musical questions, you're going to be so embarrassed. Now, wait a minute, Jack. I, I don't think you're being quite fair to Phil. What do you mean, Don? Well, uh, you've been discussing classical music, and the only thing Phil has to know on Kay Kaiser's program is modern stuff. You know, the popular tunes. But he doesn't even know that. Oh, I'm sure he does. Now, look, Phil, I'm going to have the band play something, and you tell me the name of it. Okay, Don. Go ahead, boys. Everybody? Yes, Jack. Everybody knows that if you eat a good breakfast, you... Yes. And everybody knows that grape nuts or grape nuts flakes covered with sugar and milk make a good breakfast. Everybody knows that, huh? Yes, everybody. Don, I have a little shock for you. In 1936 in Chicago, I was walking along LaSalle Street at 8.30 in the morning. A panhandler came over to me and said, Hey, buddy, I haven't had any breakfast. Could you spare a dime for a cup of coffee? You hear that, Don? He didn't have his breakfast. He didn't ask for grape nuts or grape nuts flakes. <laughs> he asked for a dime for a cup of coffee. You get that, Don? A cup of coffee. Did you give him the dime? That's beside the point. <laughs> he just wanted a cup of coffee. Well, Jack, all I can say is whether the man wanted a cup of coffee or a bowl of grape nuts is not the important thing. Now, there was a derelict. A man broken in body and spirit. A man who needed a helping hand. He asked for a dime, and you should have given it to him. Don Wilson, I did more than that. I not only gave him a dime, I gave him a job. And this derelict, this outcast, 
was so grateful that he took that dime I gave him and saved it to this day as his good luck charm. Phil, show him the dime. <laughs> Go ahead, Phil. Show it to him. Here you are, Don. Thanks, Phil, for proving my story. Now, let's have another band number. Benny the Philanthropist. That's me. This is the G.I. Jive. Man alive. It starts with the bugler blowing reveille over your bed when you arrive. Jack, that's the G.I. Jive. I rudely too. Jump in the suit. Make a salute. Mmm, boo. Then you wash and dress, more or less. You go get your breakfast in that beautiful little cafe they call the mess. Jack, when you convalesce, up out of your seat, on back to the street, make with the feet a wreath. Now, if you're a PVT, then it's your duty. You must salute a L-I-E. But if you brush the L-I-E The MP makes you KP But on the cutest This is the G.I. Jive Man alive They give you a tank that features Features that little device Called a fluid drive Ooh, Jackson, if you still survive Then get all your junk Right back in your trunk Fall on your bunk Claw Soon you're counting jeeps But before you count to five You'll be on back digging old G.I. G.I. Jive, played by the orchestra with a vocal refrain by Phil Harris, the panhandler. <laughs> Phil, I'm glad you sang that. It was a nice touch for our last broadcast, and I'm sure you'll do a great job on the K. Kaiser program this summer. Well, thanks, Jackson, but don't look so happy. I'm going to be back with you in the fall. I know, I know. It's amazing what trouble a dime for a cup of coffee can get you into. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Say, Jack, what are you trying to do this summer? Make that picture at Warner Brothers? Which one? Oh, you know, the story of your life. Oh, no, no, Don, I canceled that. I had too much trouble. Hey, Jackson, why is it that every time you make a picture, you always have trouble? Because I insist on being in it. <laughs> anyway, I read the script, and it wasn't anything like my life. They had me leaving Waukegan, traveling all over the country, playing my violin on street corners... Then at the end of the picture, they had me on a freight train going back to Waukegan. <laughs> Some idea. What were they going to call the picture, Jack? Well, Lousy Comes Home. <laughs> oh, Lousy Comes Home. <laughs> oh, Harris, it's remarkable how you can keep up this pace week after week. 
you darling boy, you. That's right. Keep ad-libbing. Just keep going. <laughs> keep right in going up into the Fitch bandwagon. <laughs> goes right in, you know, for the next hour and a half, you know. <laughs> Phil, that wasn't the title at all. They were going to call it The Life of Jack Benny. And another thing, they wanted to get somebody else to play the part of me. I never heard of anything so ridiculous. I should play Jack Benny myself. But Jack, even if you did play the part yourself, they'd have to get somebody to play you when you were younger. Well, yes. How about C. Aubrey Smith? <laughs> <laughs> talking about see Aubrey Smith they wanted Danny Kay to play my whole life and I wouldn't stand for anything come in special delivery for Jack Benny I'll take it bud here here's a tip for you oh boy a nickel now my wife can have another baby <laughs> fresh guy who's the letter from Jack it's a uh... hey fellas it's from Dennis Dennis Day no kidding well, what do you know about that? It's from the Naval Station at Tucson, Arizona, where Dennis is in training. Hey, what does the kid say, Jack? Yeah, read it to us, Jack. Okay. It says, Mr. Jack Benny, care of the Great Nuts Program, Hollywood, California. Dear civilian. <laughs> hmm. I have been stationed at Tucson, Arizona ever since I left your program, and the air here is much better. <laughs> I like being in the Navy. Last night I had fish for dinner, and it was nice to meet someone who had been to sea. <laughs> Down here we all sleep in hammocks, and for the first three weeks it was very uncomfortable. Then somebody told me that you're not supposed to lay the hammock on the floor. <laughs> so I hung it up like they told me to, and I like it much better, except it seems funny to swing and sway without Sammy Kaye. <laughs> ha ha, isn't that a funny joke? I told it to my admiral, and he must have liked it because he told me to tell it to the Marines. <laughs> I also told my admiral I used to work for you, and ooh, what he said. <laughs> no other news. Give my best wishes to everybody, and give Mary a big kiss for me. You always seem to get more out of it than I do. <laughs> Love to all. Yours truly, Dennis Day. P.S. Please excuse the ink, as I am all out of pencil. <laughs> Good old Dennis. It's sure good to hear from him, wasn't it, fellas? Yeah, I got a kick out of that. <laughs> Say, Jack, can you imagine me ever sleeping in a hammock? <laughs> Don, any bed you sleep in looks like a hammock. It won't make any <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to write to Dennis tomorrow and tell him all the news that's happened since he's been away, and I'll take it. Hello? Hello, Mr. Benny. This is Rochester. What do you want, Rochester? I got some big news for you, boss. I'm going to get married. Married? Yeah, you know how long Cuban's been shooting those arrows at me? Yes? Well, last night he hit me with a secret weapon. <laughs> so you're going to get married, eh, Rochester? Well, tell me all about it. How did it happen? Well, last night I went to a party and there she was. I met her at 1040 and at 1045 the wedding was planned. That's pretty fast, isn't it, Rochester? You only knew her five minutes. Well, it's amazing what you can do when you meet someone if you don't waste time shaking hands. 
I see. Well, Rochester, this must have been love at first sight. I never heard you talk this way before. Oh, yes, boy. She's beautiful. Really? Yeah. Did you ever see the statue of Venus de Milo? Oh, sure, sure. In bronze? (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly. You know, Rochester, I feel a little sad about this. You've been with me all these years, and now you're going to get a wife and set up housekeeping for yourself. Oh, no, Mr. Benny. Don't look at it that way. What do you mean? You ain't losing a butler, you're gaining a cook. Well, right now, I sure could use one. Anyway, good luck, Rochester, and I hope you'll be very happy. Thanks, boss. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, say, Rochester. Yes? Uh, since this is our last program, I'm having a few friends drop in for a little celebration, and I want you to stay home and have some drinks ready. Okay, boss. I want to try a new recipe I learned last night. What's it like? Well, first you take a 12-ounce glass and put it in a dash of bitters. Uh-huh. Then you add a jigger of gin. Then you add another jigger of gin. Uh-huh. And then you fill the glass up with gin. <laughs> Rochester, what kind of a drink is that? Boss, did you ever hear of jet propulsion? Yes. Well, this opens the jet. <laughs> Forget about that and serve something mild. Goodbye. Goodbye. If Rochester doesn't discover Mars, nobody will. Say, Mr. Wilson, I want to ask you something. Oh, so it's you again, Yeah, eh? Mr. Wilson... If you were a sweet June girl graduate, what would you like for a graduation present? Some jewelry, maybe? Look, I'm not a sweet June girl graduate. Well, my daughter is, so put yourself in her place. Would you like some dainty lingerie? No, really, really, no. I want to talk about grape nuts. Why, of course, that's the answer. Grape nuts. Well, grape nuts are delicious and nourishing, but I hadn't thought of them as a graduation present. Oh, I mean, I'll give my daughter some helpful advice. You'll give her advice for a present? Well, I might throw in an umbrella at the same time. (laughs) Oh, fine, fine. Now, now what's the advice? Eat a good breakfast, do a better job, and feature Molly Rich Grape Nuts. Good advice for a girl graduate. And good advice for anybody, for we all need a good breakfast in the morning. And crisp, delicious grape nuts make a swell basic breakfast dish. Grape nuts bring you whole grain nourishment, the kind nutrition experts recommend as a daily must. And grape nuts taste so tempting. Malty, rich, and sweet as a nut, you'll enjoy every spoonful. So, friends, eat a good breakfast, do a better job, and make delicious, nourishing grape nuts your feature breakfast treat. Well, folks, this winds up our last program of the season, but we'll all be with you again next fall. Meanwhile, Mary and I and our whole gang want to thank all you listeners for sharing this half hour with us throughout the season. I also want to thank our sponsor, General Foods, for a very pleasant association over these many years. And I know Dennis Day joins us in all those sentiments. Also, excuse me. Hello? Hello, boss. I got some more news for you. What is it now, Rochester? The wedding is off. I ain't gonna get married. Why? What happened? My girl's father said with what you're paying me, at least one of us would have to live with him. (laughs) What? He intimated that financially I was hooked up with the wrong man. Rochester, you mean he inferred that I don't pay you enough? That's what he said. That's what the man said. He said that. (laughs) Go 
Don't worry about it. You'll find another girl. Goodbye. Goodbye. Good night, everybody. A word to the wise is sufficient, I feel, so all I need say is hot grape nut wheat meal. Delicious, nutritious, it's rich, brown, and hot, so get grape nut wheat meal, it hits the right spot. And what a bargain in quantity and quality. When you buy hot, brown grape nut wheat meal in the big new 30-ounce economy size package, that's 30 full ounces of swell-roasted wheat flavor, full-bodied texture, real whole wheat nourishment. Get hot grape nut wheat meal tomorrow. This is the National Broadcasting Company. KFI Los Angeles, Earl C. Anthony, Incorporated. Two Jackman, three Tedder. The Fred Allen Show, specially rebroadcast for the American Armed Forces and their allies. Here are Fred Allen, Portland Hoffa, the mighty Allen Art Players, High Low Jack and the Dame, and Al Goodman, his chorus and orchestra. Everybody with gold will be rolling gold. We'll be out of the doldrums, manana. There'll be lots of pretzels, manana. There'll be strawberries floating in sight. All your skies will be blue, all your chairs will be filled, all your floors will be viewed. Manana, there'll be high time, high in the sky time, so come you mourners and pick your party, there's a great day coming, manana, if manana ever Great day coming, manana. 
if manana Last week, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Einstein called on the intellectuals of the world to organize and form a union of thinkers. Tonight, we bring you one thinker Professor Einstein forgot to mention. He's Fred Allen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And Jimmy, I do want to thank you tonight for referring to me as a thinker. You did say thinker, didn't you? <laughs> Why, yes, Fred, I did. You uh, weren't lisping? No, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, a slip of the lip can also ruin me, besides what it will do to a ship, you know. <laughs> Jimmy, it looks as though our days in radio are numbered. Well, how do you mean, Fred? Well, I read in the papers this week that one of the broadcasting companies and Columbia University together are going to train students to be radio writers and announcers. Oh, you think college boys are going to take our job? Yes, Jimmy, and it's going to be pretty embarrassing. Yes? How, Fred? Well, imagine a fellow studying for four years to be an announcer. He finally leaves college and gets his big chance. It's the Rinso White program. He rehearses all day. The show goes on the air. After another announcer reads the Rinso White commercial, the college man steps up to the microphone and says, And don't forget, <laughs> spelled backwards, is... <laughs> My lip is gone. <laughs> but you know, it's going... Oh. Benny's off the air. It's good to breathe again. <laughs> well, it's... Sir Allen! Portland, gee <laughs> You're just in time, Portland. Jimmy and I were hashing over the news here. Oh, I read that the Dion quintuplets were ten years old. I saw that. Mr. Dion gave them a for their birthday. Well, it won't be much fun, five little girls on one pony. Yes, it will. They all have whips. Uh, <laughs> they should... Uh, <laughs> they should cross the pony with a dachshund. They'll get a horse that's long enough that way. <laughs> Tell me, what else is new, Portland? The Supreme Court let the Hudson Sioux raise the fare from Jersey City to New York. I saw that, too. It used to be eight cents. Now it's ten. I wonder why. Will pay anything to get out of Jersey City. <laughs> you are winning us new friends, I see across the way. <laughs> well, as Shakespeare said, to be MT or not to be MT, that is the question. That used to be the question. <laughs> That's done it. I'm off for Alan's Alley. Raleigh, I am. Raleigh, I'm off for Alan's Alley. Raleigh. <laughs> What is your question tonight? Well, this past week we had the hottest weather we've had so far this season. It's always interesting to compare the current hot spells with the heat of yesteryear, don't you think? <laughs> and so our question is, what is the hottest day you ever remember? Shall we go? As the shoestring said to the finger, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Portland. Portland, here we are back in Allen's Alley. There's a light in Senator Bloat's window. I guess the senator is in. Let's see. Yes? Uh, senator, that beard doesn't strain your voice talking through it, does 
Senator Bloat, what is the hottest day you ever remember? July 8th, 1929. The heat was bad? It was so hot, the Hoboken Ferry took off its slip. <laughs> what, uh, what about this week's heat uh, wave, Senator? Are you taking action? Yes. If my bill, the Bloat bill, goes through... Yes? The government will give every taxpayer one package of cigarettes. What cigarette can give people relief from the heat? Cools. <laughs> Senator, on a hot day, what is your idea of comfort? Puffing a cool with short drawers. <laughs> well, the senator has something here, and it won't hurt if he loses 80 or 90 pounds of it. Well, let's try next door. Hello, Mr. Smellin. Well, Mr. Eat the Peaches. <laughs> what is the hottest day you remember? Well, it could was be last summer, June the 19th. How hot was it? If the heat was so hot, who? Yes. My brother, a 32nd degree mason, went up 10 degrees. Now, <laughs> uh, uh, it must have been terrible. I'm sitting in my house. Yes. Outside, the air is scorching. Gosh. I'm opening the window. Poof! He's coming in a hot blast. The canary is fainting. Gosh. I'm turning on the radio. I'm fainting. Well, the radio made it worse. What was on? Gabriel Heater. <laughs> I should give up, but I'll try one more door. No. Oh. <laughs> Ah, Mrs. Nussbaum, what is the hottest day you recall? When I'm a little girl, the year I couldn't remember. Well, how hot was it? My little puppy, a water spaniel, is perking to death. <laughs> you lost your dog? What did you do? To my puppy, I am dedicating a poem. Oh, that's sweet. What is it called? A puppy on a hot day I wouldn't want to be. That's the title, huh? Well, how does it go? A puppy on a hot day, I wouldn't want to be. A puppy on a hot day could be someone else, not me. A spanking on a hot day, I would be. Likewise, a guppy. But one thing I would hate to be on a hot day is a puppy. <laughs> a puppy on a hot day could wag his tail a minute. This will stir a breeze behind, but the puppy isn't in it. <laughs> for a puppy. On a hot day, he will pant. I can't take my coat off, but a little puppy can. Thank you. That's very nice. Well, that brings us to the lavender-colored lean-to at the end of the alley. Onions are white, iodine is brown, Falstaff's here, let's go to town. <laughs> Troubadour Openshaw, you have more poems tonight? Indubitably. Really? Have you heard, though the fairy was quite hairy, he didn't frighten Mary? <laughs> no. Or, uh, I knew my victory garden was haunted when that tomato spoke to me? <laughs> no. Or perhaps this one. She laughed and said, you're one in a million. It was the first time she'd ever seen a civilian. <laughs> Thanks to you, this program is constantly being mistaken for Dr. No IQ. Tonight, we have been discussing excessive heat. Why I am here. 
Uh, I've skipped it precisely. Thank you. Just tonight. If you've written a poem, what is it called? In rebuttal. <laughs> How does it go? In answer to Mrs. Dustbaum and her puppy in his little pine box, I'll recite a very short poem tonight. I call it A Paradox. What is a paradox? Without ado, I'll try and define the word for you. A paradox is the baby bear with his heavy coat of thick brown hair. He's hot in the sun, he's hot in his lair. How can he be hot when he's a little bear? And as Falstaff leaves, he nudges Al Goodman, who promptly jumps up to conduct the number for Hilo Jack and the Dame. Their song, Let's Sing a Song About Susie. Portland, we better get things ready for our guest. Who's coming tonight? Uh, Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie? I'll see you later. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come back here, Portland. What are you running for? Well, in the movies, Mr. Laurie's always killing people. I'm frightened. Look, who is Peter Laurie? Annie Laurie's brother. <laughs> what is there to be afraid of? Come in. Has Mr. Laurie appeared yet? Uh, no, sir. Oh, good. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, any knives, daggers, stilettos, dirks, or other cutlery found sticking in people's backs after Mr. Laurie leaves tonight must be wiped off and returned to the Keen Cut Cutlery Company at once. <laughs> These utensils have merely been loaned to Mr. Laurie. Remember, just because it's in you, it doesn't mean it's yours. <laughs> That guy sounds like the shadow's brother-in-law. Mr. Allen, I'm trembling. You're trembling. I'm shaking like a crapshooter's cuticle, Portland. <laughs> but we have got to be brave. From me, is this Fred Allen's program? Yes. Oh. What do you want, little boy? Are you from the... <laughs> Are you from the Western Union? I'm Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie? So you 
are Peter Lorry. Well, Portland, Mr. Lorry isn't anything like we expected, is he? No, he's smaller than Mayor LaGuardia. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. But you sure, you sure, you sure are a letdown, Peter. Do I disappoint you, Fred? Yes, I thought you'd come creeping in here on all fours, drooling arsenic with a buzzard on a leash. <laughs> You're supposed to be a brutal killer. You couldn't take a kumquat away from a Chinese baby. <laughs> That's what I keep telling them down at the morgue. You spend a lot of time at the morgue? Well, it's so nice and cool and peaceful at the morgue. Well, I, uh... I wouldn't know, Mr. Lorry. Oh. Well, if it wasn't for me, a lot of people wouldn't know about the morgue. Now, please, quit talking about the morgue. You sound as though you're slab-happy. <laughs> but it is so nice and cool and... I, I and know. Peaceful. I know you said that. You said that. You are an odious little runt, aren't you? Fred, why do people think I'm such a monster? I'm just a lovable little guy trying to get ahead. Ahead, I know. <laughs> and you're not getting mine if it's any more. Well, if people knew the story of my life, they'd see that I'm not a mad, twisted creature. They'd feel sorry for me. But you're so untall, Peter. You must have grown up with a weight on your mind. I did, Fred. I did. When I was two years old, I was an orphan. No father, no mother. Oh, you poor kid. What happened to your father and mother? Uh, oh, oh, I strangled them with a yo-yo. <laughs> You unfortunate child. Who uh, who brought you up? One oh, uncle took me in. Good. But my uncle had three heads. Three heads your yes, uncle had. One of the heads took a violent dislike to me. The other two heads were friendly, were they? Yes, very friendly. But one night his big head ordered me out of the house. I left. Why that dirty head picking on a poor tot like you? Where did you go, Peter? Two nights I would climb a big oak tree and sleep in a vulture's nest. <laughs> you slept with vultures? Well, it was a large nest. There was plenty of room. Oh, you weren't cramped in the... No. Well, tell me, how did you, how did you live? <laughs> For a while I worked for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Really? Doing what? Well, when Dr. Jekyll would turn into Mr. Hyde, <laughs> I had to remind him to put his money in his other pants. <laughs> had two pairs, lucky chap. <laughs> well, your lean days are over, Peter. Now that you're a big success in pictures, you must have many friends in Hollywood. No, no, Fred. I just hang around with boys, Carlton, Bela Lugosi, and Dracula. Well, what do you, what do you boys do for excitement? Oh, every day we give bluff to the Red Cross. <laughs> well, doesn't, uh, doesn't giving blood every day weaken you? Well, it is now blood. <laughs> I'm sure that now that you've opened your heart, people will understand you. Oh, I hope so, Freda. And I want to thank you for letting me tell my side of the story. From now on, the public will know that you weren't always a master of mayhem. 
especially for the men and women in the United Nations Armed Forces. Now let's move to Monday, June 5th, 1944. Fred Allen Show is rebroadcast especially for the men and women in the United Nations Armed Forces. Now, all step four. All Featuring tab. the music of Al Zubman and his orchestra. MSN Outlook Office Scott Windows M Desk M My Music M My Document Enter Documents Items J Jack Birch Radio Jack Birch June 1st 3rd Enter Shelf 2 Jack 3 10, 4 Lumina Enter Lumina Abner what's going on down in Pine Ridge. Well, 
Lum finally managed to talk Abner's father out of making a trip to Fort Smith to say hello to somebody's cousin named George the other day. And since then, things have been going along on a fairly even keel in the Peabody household. As we look in on the little community today, we find the old fellows in their jotting down store and library putting up some grocery orders. All right, now hand me down a can of them solid packed tomatoes. Uh-huh. Then get me... Wait a minute, this ain't tomatoes you handed me. It's a can of pickled beets. So it is. Yeah. You've been handing me the wrong stuff all morning. What's the matter with you? You worried about something? Well, no, not exactly. Is it something about your papa? Well, Mom, I'm sort of worried about him and Elizabeth. Are they starting to have trouble now? No, they're getting along pretty good, I reckon, but... I don't know how much longer it's going to last. That's what's got me worried. Has Elizabeth said anything about it? No. Well, what are you worried about then? Well, Lom, I just know some of them little things that Papa does are just going to get on her nerves sooner or later. Little things? Yeah, like Papa helping her with the dishes now. Well, she ought to appreciate that. Well, she does, Lom, but he always puts the dishes away in a curious places. Elizabeth has to spend half the day hunting for them before she can cook a meal. You mean he hides them? No, he just can't recollect where they belong. He's always putting them in the wrong places. Well, that ain't nothing to get uh, extra upset over, I wouldn't say. Well, these other things, too. Like leaving his pipe laying around the house, and he never can recollect where he left it. And I know it just must scare Elizabeth half to death, Warren, for fear he'll burn the house down. Yeah, I reckon that would worry her a little. And then when we do find a pipe, why, there's ashes strolled all over everywhere. Just keeps Elizabeth busy cleaning up ashes after him. Well, why don't she tell him not to do it then? Well, you know, Elizabeth, Long, she hates to say anything that might hurt his feelings. Fact is, she ain't even mentioned it to me, but I know how she feels. Well, why don't you tell your papa then? Well, I've tried to, but I don't know. It's hard to tell him anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. he's getting up in years, Long, and his feelings gets hurt awful easy. Yeah, I can so. He's childish. I still think there's ways you could tell him and not make him feel too bad. Telling a fellow where to put dishes and uh, pick up his pipe don't sound hard to me, necessary. Well, of course, there's more side to it than that. For instance, every morning now, there's that trouble over hearts aflame. Hearts aflame? Yeah, since Papa got here, Elizabeth don't even know what's happened to George. George? Who's George? George Panelton. The fellow was going to marry Martha Barrington until uh, Mary Marlborough come along. Wait a minute now. Who are all these people? Who's Mary Marlborough? She's engaged to Chadwick Hobart, but he's actually been making cheap eyes at Valeria Carlisle. Valeria Carlisle? Yeah, she's the one that got married to set her cap for George, and that's why Martha jumped right there. Martha jumped? Yeah, and George don't know it, you know, because he's disappeared. Wait a minute. Where did Martha jump? Right out of the window of J. Ingram Wardmore's office. He's a rich architect, and his office is on the 10th floor, you know. Oh, my goodness. Well, did it kill her or what? Well, we don't know. Papa won't let Elizabeth find out. He won't. Don't he like Martha? Oh, he likes her, I reckon. Fact says he claims that's his favorite radio program, but every morning... Radio program? Yeah. Is that what you've been telling me about? Just a radio program? Yeah, hearts aflame. 
comes on every day about 9.15. Oh, for goodness sake. Elizabeth ain't missed it since the day it started, I don't believe. And now, every morning, Papa turns the radio on at 9.15 so as him and Elizabeth can listen to it, you know. Well, that's nice of him to do that. Sets two chairs right there in front of the radio for him every day to sit in. Well, that sounds thorny. I don't see why you say there's any trouble over hearts of flame. Well, here's a trouble. On the minute the program comes on, Papa starts talking and he don't stop one second till it's over. Talk steady for 15 minutes hand running every morning. Oh, I see. Well, that is aggravating. I'll admit that. Why, of course it is. And I know it's going to drive Elizabeth just stark raving mad crazy. Well, it appears to me the only thing for you to do is just sit down and have a heart-to-heart talk with your Papa. Just come right out flat-footed and tell him these things. Well, every time I try it, Mom, oh, I don't know. I I just sort of get the feeling ashamed of myself. Ashamed of yourself? Yeah, them things he does, they seem like such little bitty tiny no-count things to mention that I'm just ashamed to bring them up even. Well, maybe so, eh? But it's the little things, not the big things, that general upsets a home, I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I just can't bring myself to tell Papa that. Don't you, if it was my Papa, I'd tell him. Well, me and you are just different, I reckon, then. I wouldn't go pussyfooting around about something like this if the happiness of my woman was at stake, I can tell you that. Well, Ron, there's just some things that you can't tell a old fella like Papa. All right, have it your own way. I still think that's a ridiculous point of view, but... Nothing I can do about it, looks like. I'm worried. Come on, we got to finish putting up these grocery orders. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, hand me a can of them solid-packed tomatoes. Uh-huh. Then give me a jar... Wait a minute. You give me the pickle beets again. Uh-huh. Granted, if you don't settle down here and pay attention to your work, I'm going to have to get me a new partner. Oh, Mom, um, I'm trying to pay attention, but I'm just... Uh, don't get away a minute. There comes Papa right now. Uh, Long, would you do me a favor? A favor? You said you could tell your papa anything you wanted to, so would you have a talk with papa for me? You mean you want me to tell him not to... Now, there he comes, Long. I'll tell you what. I'll slip out the back way so him and you could be alone together. I'll go over and see if we got any mail. All right. Don't say nothing to hurt his feelings now, Long. I won't. I know how to handle such things. Well, how do you do, Mr. Peabody? And I says to him, I says, you can have your drip coffee. I want mine boiled, and I want it boiled good. Uh, it, how's that, Mr. Peabody? I didn't quite catch you there. Huh? He, oh, oh, hello, Ron. Hey, where's my boy, Anna? Why, he just he, went over to the post office, I believe, Mr. Peabody. Coffee that ain't boiled ain't fit for man or beast. Take, uh, like it's, uh, oh, Abner's over at the post office, you see. Yeah. Hey, well, that's good. Uh, I I want to see you alone anyway. That's, uh, I want to have a little talk with you, Lum. Well, that's sort of a coincidence, looks like. Yes, I say, I say, I want to have a little talk with you, Lum. Yeah, I, you said that. Uh, oh, uh, yes, sir, Lum, I, I want you to tell me the truth about something. I, well, natural. Uh, I... I don't want no beating around the brass, neither. I, I, I want this straight from the shoulder blade now. Well, that's the only way I believe in talking, uh, Mr. Peabody. I'm worrying about... Uh, you're a good boy. Good, steady boy, Lum. Mm. And I'm proud my son has went into partnerships with you. Well, I'm uh, proud to have Abner for a partner, too. He helps me quite a bit. Uh, 
Well, Lum, uh, tell, tell me this. Uh, do you think I'm a burden? A burden? Uh, do you think I'm a burden to him and Elizabeth? Why, well, uh, of course. Has, 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 Ab, has, has Abner said anything to you about it, Lum? Well, you mean, uh, what, what did you ask me? Uh, of course, they ain't said nothing to me, Lum, but sometimes a feller sort of reads tricks to lines, you know? I I don't want to be a burden to nobody, Lum. Well, I'm sure you ain't no burden, Mr. Peacock. They're, they're still young, and I'm old, Lum. I, I'm an old man, Lum. Oh, no, you I'm, ain't old. A feller's just as old as his fields. I've always said that. I'm uh, trying to, to fit myself right into the young ideas, Lum. I don't want to be no burden. Well, that's a good thing to do. Uh, for instance, now, there's... there's there's some radio program Elizabeth crazy about. Uh, uh, hearts of Flutter. That's Hearts of Flame. Yeah, that's it. That Hearts of Flutter. Uh, I don't care for it myself, but I always make a pint of sitting there and listening to it just for her sake. Yeah, well, now, about that radio program, Mr. Yeah, Peabody, maybe if you wouldn't... That's the only reason I listen to it, Lum, I, just for Elizabeth's sake. She... She sort of likes to have me join her, you see, and I... Yeah. I but maybe if you never I, talk... I now, don't no. want to be a burden, no lum. I'm old, but I don't want to be no burden. Well, you if ain't. I, now, you just get that idea right out of your head, Mr. Peabody. Uh, do you think they want me there, lum? Why, sure they do. They're tickled to death. To yeah, am, am, am I doing the right thing? You to, just to, keep to, right on doing like you're doing. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> oh, well, that's mighty comforting, lum. Mighty comforting. <laughs> if fella gets to worrying about these things, you know. Well, just don't worry no more. Cause, uh, wait a minute, there comes Abner back from uh, the post office. Uh, Abner? Uh, oh, well, say, I, I believe I'll slip out the back way. I don't want him to know I come down here to have this talk with you. Well, wait, uh, Mr. Peabody. I, I don't believe Abner will care if he I'll, did talk to you. I'll more than likely see you tomorrow, Lana. So long, now. Well, so long, Mr. Peabody. No mail, Lom, except to be off from the wholesale house. Where's Papa? Oh, he went out the uh, back way. He's going summers over in that direction, I think. Oh, well, did you have a talk with him? Yeah, yeah. had a talk. <laughs> How'd you make out? <laughs> Pretty good, I reckon. I know that I'm glad to hear that. That's a big relief to me, Lom. Now, maybe we can get busy here and get them grocery orders put up. <laughs> yeah. I'll take over here, Lama. Uh, here, first hand me a can of them solid-packed tomatoes. Can of solid-packed tomatoes. And, uh, want a jar of... Wait a minute, Lom. You give me pickle beets. What's the matter with you, anyway? File tab button escape items view multi select list box for Lumma Dapner 4406055 minuses driving Elizabeth crazy 39440605 minuses driving Elizabeth crazy Lumma Dapner PR 5 Lux Radio Theater 4406054142 J Nair. Six Cavill Cantor.
Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, maker of better things for better living through chemistry, presents Joseph Cotton and Richard Wong in Treason. Before we begin our play, here's a word about DuPont's durable repellent finish, Zelan, spelled Z-E-L-A-N. When you buy rainwear, jackets, children's wear, work clothes, or sportswear, look for the Zelan tag. Zelan sheds water and resists stains like all good water repellent finishes. But here's how DuPont Zelan is different. Its protection doesn't come out in washing or cleaning. Tonight we bring you a story about a traitor, Benedict Arnold, who broke faith with his own generation and so with the future. And about a young officer in the American Revolutionary Army, Major Matthew Clarkson, who had to choose between blind loyalty to his commanding officer and loyalty to his country. Adapted from Robert Gessner's historical novel, Treason, tonight's cavalcade stars Joseph Cotton as Major Matthew Clarkson and Richard Worf as Major General Benedict Arnold. I have come a great distance over many years to say this to you. And in my own time, I was neither great nor especially brave. But I had first-hand knowledge of one thing, treason. We are betrayed by what is false within, not by men alone. It's true there are certain men branded as traitors, and I know some of their names. They begin with Judas Iscariot, who plotted for 30 pieces of silver. The roll call following his name is long and impressive. But remembering their names doesn't seem to be enough. For in your time, Norway was betrayed by a man named Quisling. France was eaten away by Laval and Patan. And in Czechoslovakia, there's Heinlein. Yes, write their names down and remember them. But remember this, too. Treason may begin like a small seed with one man's ambition, but it will only grow in earth that is ready for it. Treason is one man and the blindness of people around him, I know. For my name is Major Matthew Clarkson, and for a time I served under a major general in the American Continental Army. His name is Benedict Arnold. I was assigned to General Arnold's staff early in the fall of 1777 and was ordered to report to him near a place called Saratoga. I found the general sitting alone in his tent and gave him my credentials. As I walked into his tent, he said, Well, Major Clarkson, I see that you were in the Battle of Long Island. Yes, General Arnold. I was wounded there. And what do you say for yourself? Say, sir? Well, it's not the best recommendation. You ran like sheep, I hear. We... We were green troops, General Arnold. Green troops, yellow officers, I'd say. But General Washington Excepting himself... the commander-in-chief, of course. You'll see better fighting here if you can stand the pace. We hope to engage gentleman Johnny Burgoyne soon. What will you think of that? I... I hope to be of service. Nicely sir. stated, Clarkson. Ah, Major Franks, it's about time. The scout reports Burgoyne is ready to attack. Good. Now we'll trim his fancy curls and his German mercenaries. What a fine day for a fight. Uh, there's also this dispatch from General Gates. Gates! Oh, now to see what the devil... By the way, Major Franks, this is Major Clarkson. He's my junior aide. Welcome to Saratoga, Major Clarkson. Thank you, Major Franks. I knew it. 
Gates is a fool. He's a yellow fool. What are his orders, sir? Orders? You think I'd take his orders? Sir, I know it's not for me to say, but Gates has influence in Congress. Yes, that's why he sends these orders. He's afraid. Afraid someone else will win the war. Well, what do you say, Clarkson? It's not for me to say, sir. I, I just got here. Oh, come on. Be a man. Speak up. But uh, I don't know what orders... Were... That's the point. The point is, should I obey the orders of General Gates? Well, since he is your commanding officer, I... I who win battles take orders from that man the militia calls the old fishwife. You obeyed stupid generals at Long Island, Clarkson. What did it get you? A defeat. No, Clarkson. A good general makes his own rules. We're going, sir. He's attacking. Listen to that. It's a sound I like. And General Gates' orders, sir. His orders are that the left flank is not to engage the enemy. I won at Ticonderoga. I waded through the wilderness to attack Quebec. And he wants me not to engage the enemy. General Gates commands this army, sir. Clarkson, if you're on my staff, I think we should understand some things. Yes, General Arnold. No matter who commands this army, I command you. And I want no timid men around me, do you hear? We need victories to win this war. That's obvious, sir. Obvious? It's not very clear to General Gates. If it isn't clear to you, take your blasted orders and go back with them. Well, what do you say? I... I'll stay, sir. Good. Major Franks, tell my orderly to bring my horse. Right away, General. It's going to be a first-class fight, Clarkson. I'm glad to hear it, sir. Tell me, Clarkson. I've seen many young officers in this war. Most of them are weak. They quibble over everything. But you came around very quickly to my point of view. Why is that? Well, sir, we were defeated on Long Island. Badly beaten. And it makes a man sick at heart, sir, that kind of defeat. Yes, Major? So I made up my mind, sir, that if I could find a strong man, a real leader... Why, I'd follow him to hell and back. Clarkson, think you could drink this? Give you strength. Thank you. What's wrong with me, Major Franks? I, I've been unconscious. Just a neck wound. You lost a lot of blood. And uh, the general? Right here, Clarkson. They got me in the leg. <clears throat> We'll convalesce together. Oh, I didn't see you, General. I'm sorry about the legs. Well, it's true. If it weren't for this, we'd have chased them into the Atlantic. Uh, it was a first-class fight, sir. Just what you said. The uh, General told me you did well, too. I didn't see you. He did nobly. Brought credit to himself. Carried my dispatch right between the lines. Well, tell me, sir, your, your, your leg, it's not serious. No, right? no, no, no. If I can keep those doctors from amputating. But even then, to be wounded in a victory is easy. I could even wish it had been my heart. No, sir. Well, I'd have my glory then and no more stupidity to contend with. And uh, General Gates, sir, uh, what has he done about the orders? He's conveniently forgotten them so that he takes some credit for trimming Johnny Burgoyne. Oh, I knew there was no risk. There are even rewards for disobedience. They're going to reward you? Yes, I'm appointed military governor of Philadelphia. Well, well, speak up. Do you like that? Oh, Philadelphia, sir. I... There's not much action there. I hear it's mostly dancing and Tory ladies... Doesn't seem right for you, sir. <laughs> There'll be plenty of action, Major. Tory ladies, yes, and Tory men. A pretty kettle of intrigue, Philadelphia. How does it sound to you, Major Clarkson? Well, sir, I told you I'd follow you to hell and back, and I guess that includes Philadelphia. Miss Sally Cornell, I... I never thought we'd meet again in Philadelphia. Oh, neither did I, Major Clarkson. But, Miss Sally, you were a rebel girl. You don't belong here. And you were a rebel man, yet you were here. Yes, but I'm with an army and a rebel general, so I can't be corrupted. Shall we dance, Miss Sally? If you wish, Major Matt. Yes, you're here with an army. But the British don't fight the swords in Philadelphia. No? What are the weapons? Well, 
Look at your general now. He's already lost his first engagement. Oh, you mean the redhead? What's dangerous about her? She's Peggy Shippen, and the British call her the Red Siren. I think General Arnold should be warned. He's talking to her now on the other side. Upon my soul, Miss Peggy, Cliveden's a lovely house. Tell me, what are those bullet marks? In the Battle of Germantown, General, the British held this house. I hear they still do. In a way, General. But you don't seem to mind. No, no, I don't mind. I mean, sitting here in this chair, which looks very like a throne, you seem pretty much a royalist yourself. It's to please you and your royalist friends, Miss Peggy. I know you prefer a throne, no matter who's on it. And would Mr. Washington care for your jokes? The king, Miss Peggy may call him Mr. We call him General Washington. Very well, General Washington. After all, what can I do? You've conquered Philadelphia, and we are all... Oh, Miss Sally, uh, come on out on the terrace with me. All right. We'll go through here. Do you see what I mean, Matthew? She hasn't left him for a minute. <laughs> Sally. Miss Sally, my general won't lose his head, and... Besides, I brought you out here to kiss you. Oh, please, Matt, I'm serious. You don't know how bad it is here. Did you notice that tall, dark man who spoke to the general and Peggy a few minutes oh, ago? Look, there have been dozens of people around him all but evening. But this I... man is a Tory merchant. He trades with the British. If General Arnold isn't weak for redheads, he may be for money. And this man can offer him a great deal of money. Miss Sally, believe me. General Arnold is the strongest man in the Continental Army. He won't be interested in money and... Besides, how do you know about this Tory merchant? I know about him because he's my father. Come in. Oh, Major Clarkson, come in. I don't like to disturb you, sir. No, it's all right, Matthew. I thought I ought to consult with you about the summons. I'm ordered to appear at the State House tomorrow to, to testify. Testify before those yapping politicians about what? Well, I suppose, sir, it's about the court-martial they threaten for you. Oh, yes. And this worries you? You can count on me, sir. They won't get any information from me. And what information could they get? That I've made sacrifices, that I've spilt my blood and my money while the members haggle over my back pay? Sir, you know I don't question your loyalty. No man could who's fought with you. And out with it. What worries you? Well, sir, it's, it's all these months in Philadelphia. It's, uh, it's a bad place, sir. There's gossip and constant intrigue. And is gossip something that you fear? No, sir, but it... It might make it easier, sir, if you were cautious. I never thought I'd hear you urging caution, Matthew. In little ways, General Arnold. Like, uh... Well, like not seeing so much of Miss Peggy Shippen, sir. Her reputation... That's it... enough, Matthew. I get enough meddling from these fools without you. Oh, no offense, sir. And I think that you should know that I am going to marry Miss Peggy. Hear ye, hear ye. The Supreme Executive Council of the State of Pennsylvania is now in session. Mr. Joseph Reed presiding. The clerk will now read the charges submitted against Major General Benedict Arnold. The indictment against Major General Benedict Arnold is... It is charged, first... General Arnold issued clearance papers to the ship Charming Nancy, suspected of trading with the British in New York. Such clearance being issued without the knowledge of the authority of the state. Second, General Arnold used public wagon for the transport of private property. The first witness before this body will be Major Clarkson, aide to General Arnold. Major, will you be seated? Thank you, Mr. Reed. You understand this is not a court, but merely an investigating committee. 
You will not be required to take the oath. I understand that, sir. But still, uh, we expect your cooperation. We are investigating profiteering and will make uh, certain recommendations on our findings to the Commander-in-Chief. I'll oblige you all I can, Mr. Reed. Splendid. That's the proper attitude. Uh, Mr. Reed. Uh, yes, Mr. Matlock. May I uh, put the first question? You're right ahead, Mr. Matlock. Thank you. Now, Major, what can you tell us of General Arnold's dealings with Mr. Cornell, the merchant? You mean Mr. Cornell, who owns the charming Nancy? That's right. I'm afraid I can tell you nothing, sir. Nothing? <laughs> That's ridiculous, Major Clarkson. You signed clearance for the charming Nancy. Did you do it on orders from General Arnold? I can't tell you that, sir. Major Clarkson, I don't think you understand the issue here. The issue is whether you are serving General Arnold or your country. If you insist on shielding General Shield Arnold... Shield him? From what? Surely you know that the people of Philadelphia are sick of his extravagances. It takes a barrel of money to buy a barrel of flour. Yet Arnold lives like a king. You'll pardon me, Mr. Matlock, but I know only one thing. And what's that, Major? I know that when I serve my general, I serve my country very well. I know that his record in battle is my country's greatest glory, and I know that in return he has received only slander and ingratitude. And uh, is that all you have to say? Yes, that's all, sir. If you're finished with me, I you'll... know. You'd better wait outside until we're through. You can take a message from us to General Arnold. A message? Yes, Major. We're going to show General Benedict Arnold the Congress is running Philadelphia. You are listening to Treason, starring Joseph Cotton and Richard Wolf on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Among the DuPont better things are Duco and Deluxe, which in peacetime will again beautify and protect America's automobiles, trucks, and refrigerators. As our DuPont cavalcade continues, General Arnold, played by Richard Ward, Major Matthew Clarkson, aide de camp to General Arnold, played by Joseph Cotton, has returned to Cliveden, Arnold's home, and is talking to his fiancée, Sally Cornell. It's all over? Yes, Miss Sally. It's the general here. He'll be here. What happened? I have a message for him from the executive council, General Washington. General Washington? Then he had... I can't tell you, not, not until I speak to General Arnold. Matthew, no, no matter what happened, darling, don't be depressed. Oh, how can I help it? After all, the executive council does represent the people. And one man isn't so important. One man? How can you talk like that? Have you forgotten Saratoga? Of course I haven't. But anyone could have changed. He could have changed. Miss Sally, you misjudge him. Everyone does. It seems no one knows the meaning of loyalty except myself. And Miss Peggy, thank the Lord, he has Miss Peggy. Yes. And he still has his charm. Please, Sally. Please. Oh, I can't help it, Matt. I can't help feeling angry. When you came to Philadelphia, you were sure Peggy would have no effect on him. You knew she was bad, a Tory. But you had faith in him. Now, when he's done what you said he wouldn't... You still have faith in him. Oh, it's not that. Uh, after all, Miss Peggy doesn't know harm. Except that she corresponds with enemy officers. Oh, you mean Major Andre? <laughs> what harm does that do? Silly letters about the latest styles in New York? I... Oh, you're all mixed up, Sally. Oh, I wish I could make you see. Well, Matt, I see the vultures turned you loose in one piece. Is Peggy here? She's in the library, General Arnold. So, Matt, give me your news. I'm afraid it's bad news, sir. Bad news? Well, they couldn't prove... They proved nothing except the charge of using the public wagons. Well, that's not a capital offense. No, sir. So what's your bad news? It, uh, it's going to hurt, sir. You see, 
The committee recommends that General Washington publicly reprimand you. But Washington never in this world... He will, sir. You'll receive his reprimand in the morning. Oh. Well, it's come to this. You say Peggy's in the library? She's expecting you. I'll see her now. Remain here, Matthew. Peggy, I want to see you. Oh, it startled me, Benedict. I'm sorry. Came in so quietly. Come here, you look ill. Ill? Yes. I am ill. Oh, sit down here, dear. Shall I get you something? No, no, no. Thank you. What is the matter with you? Oh, I know. It's the executive council. Yes. Well, tell me what happened. Washington. General Washington will publicly reprimand me. And is that so frightful? It's more than I can stand, Peggy. Washington. Yes, I still believed in Washington. I'm glad it's happened. No, Peggy. Why, the only thing holding you back from realizing your, your destiny was this infatuation for Washington. Now, you know he's like all the others. No, Peggy, he can't be. He's jealous, Benedict. Jealous because you're the greatest general since Marlborough. Only a king can appreciate you as you deserve. A king? Now, you will go ahead. Write to General Clinton in New York. You can send a letter by Mr. Cornell to Major Andre. No, 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 I can't risk it. Easy. When Washington reprimands you, take it graciously with a smile. You can afford to. And after we're married, ask him to appoint you to West Point. He never will. And your king will pay you handsomely for West Point. I suppose there's no dishonor in changing sides. It's been done before. And you'll be the leader of your country, not Mr. Washington. Yes, the leader of my country. And I... I'll be a duchess. Benedict. Benedict, do be quiet. You're so nervous. What? Oh, I'm sorry, Peggy. Who'll be at dinner? Major Clarkson arrived this afternoon. Matthew's here? He and Sally have been touring the fort. Oh, I don't like him snooping around. He's an idealistic boy... You might wonder at how the place has become so run down. Matthew adores you. He'd never suspect. Well, it doesn't really matter. The British will attack within a few days, but it's bad waiting. Oh, yes, but afterwards. Oh, my dear, it would be wonderful. General Clinton should have the plans of the fort by morning. Andre's on his way with them now by way of the Tarrytown Road. Washington. You may catch him in your net, too. That would be a victory. A strange sort of victory. No fighting. Clinton will attack. Oh, but the attack will only be a formality. We'll be outnumbered four to one. <clears throat> The first battle in history with the same general commands both sides. <laughs> that is military history. Oh, it's dinner time, Peg, and I'm hungry. Well, come along. Sally and Matthew are probably waiting. I hope there's something worth eating. Sometimes, General, I think you forget this war. Um, Matthew, Peggy said you'd arrived. Welcome to West Point. Thank you, sir. Well, we'll try to make you feel at home. <laughs> that won't be difficult, sir. After all, Miss Sally's here. Well, listen to him. And we spent the afternoon quarreling. Quarreling? What do you find here to quarrel about? Oh, the usual thing. Miss Sally's intuition. She worries about spies. Spies? <laughs> Miss Sally's lived too long in Philadelphia. Well, shall we sit down? Yes, let's. There's not much to eat. Only common soldiers fare. Salt fish. I despise it. Peggy, where's the butter? There isn't any. We'll manage without butter, General Arnold. I know. Where's the oil I bought in Philadelphia? Here it is, dear. Yes. Try this on your fish mats. Fine oil. I paid $80 for it. $80? Well, my friend Smith says that's 80 cents in continental money. Smith is a Tory, sir. What? Oh, yes, yes, I suppose he is. Miss Sally wrote he'd visited here. Well, what of that? The devil might visit here. Perhaps, sir. But you shouldn't be seen in the company of a man like Smith. He's dangerous, sir. After all, you've already had trouble. You... Are you threatening me, Major Clarkson? Benedict, please. I'm not threatening you, sir. But I think you should know that Smith is a spy. That's ridiculous. For whom? How do you know this, Matthew? I asked. 
I inquired of people I knew in Albany. You inquired? You had the nerve? I did it to protect you, sir. You went over my head to make inquiries in Albany? And I thought I could trust you. But you're like the rest, sneaking, prying. Benedict, be careful. Major Clarkson, I order you... You to pack your things and leave West Point by tomorrow night. I thought I could help you pack, Matthew. I'm almost finished. Miss Sally, just sit there and talk to me. I suppose you think I was a fool. Oh, no, Matt. I was proud that you stood up to him. Maybe now you'll believe me. Believe the general's a traitor just because he lost his temper? Nonsense, Miss Sally. But I told you this afternoon I have proof. Here, read this. A letter addressed to General Clinton in New York. From whom? Read it. Sir... I may soon be in a position to command the defenses of West Point and am respectfully inquiring what price... Miss Sally, where did you get this? From my father. It's a copy. And? He took the original to New York. You think it's from Arnold? I'm sure of it. Matt, I wasn't sure when I first read it. Only afraid. But what else explains conditions here at West Point? A hundred men could take this fort. No. No, Miss Sally, I, I'm sure there's an ex explanation. Oh, Matt, you're a blind, silly boy. But if you're going to hear his explanation, you'd better hurry. Why, Miss Sally? Just before I came here, the general got a dispatch, and it upset him. He asked that his horse be saddled. He's going somewhere. General Arnold, may I speak to you, sir? I'm in a devil of a hurry, boy. It'll only take a minute. Well, what is it? I don't want a prize, sir, but... Where are you going? Well, you know that Washington is inspecting the area. Well, Sally told me you got a dispatch. Well, this is a military fort, Major Clarkson. I, I thought there might be some connection, that the dispatch was why you are leaving. Matthew, what are you driving at? I don't quite know, sir. All I know is that this time I must be sure. Sure of what? I must know what, what's in that dispatch. Matthew, you're upset. We had a regrettable quarrel. Believe me, I'm sorry. I'm it. sorry, too, sir. Then we'll forget it. And you can forget about the dispatch. The dispatch is incriminating. It won't incriminate you, Matthew. That's not what I asked, General Arnold. Well, then... Why not tell you? It is incriminating, from a rebel point of view. Was it about West Point, sir? I'm leaving, Matthew. My messenger to General Clinton was stopped, and he carried the plans for the fort. It was Major Andre. Then Miss Sally was right. Now, don't stand there, boy, like a sick puppy. If you're afraid for yourself, I'll take you with me. After all, you've served me well. Yes, I've served you well. You've been like a son to me. You have youth, idealism. I've needed that. You call it idealism? Oh, come now, Matt. It's an easy choice, and I won't forget your loyalty. Yes, I have had loyalty. But whom will you be loyal to, Benedict Arnold? Well, are you coming with me? No, no, General Arnold. I'm staying. General Washington. Major Matthew Clarkson reporting. I've heard of you, Major. And now you command West Point. You joke with me, sir. No, I knew Arnold would run when he heard we'd stopped Andre. And I knew we'd find you there. I'm submitting myself for arrest, sir. Arrest, Major? For treason, sir. That's a big word, Major Clarkson. And an evil one. But we have no reason to believe... No, I'm guilty, sir. I'm guilty because I believed in Arnold. Even when I should have known. That's treason, sir. I followed him blindly. Blindly. That was treason against yourself, Major Clarkson. I can't arrest you for that. Against myself, sir? And I parole you to yourself. Major Clarkson, we who love the people must live and learn. 
And the hardest lesson is this, that men come to our cause for many reasons and leave it for many reasons because some men love only themselves. But there is one thing that is constant. Yes, I know, sir. Our cause is constant. Thank you, Joseph Cotton and Richard Worf. Mr. Cotton will return in just a few moments. And now here is Gain Whitman speaking for DuPont with news about beefsteak and chemistry. You'd like to be able to go to your butcher and buy a tender, juicy steak whenever you felt like it. We all would. We Americans have found that we need more meat, not just for the armed forces in wartime, but for the whole country in peacetime. A chemical made by the DuPont Company, disodium phosphate, added at least four million pounds of beef on the hoof to our national supply last year. There is every indication that it will add more than that in the future, as cattle raisers learn more about it. The need for this supplementary feed is a strange one. You might call it a deficiency disease of pastures. The soil in some sections of the United States is lacking in phosphorus. There can also be a phosphorus shortage when the feed supply is restricted because of a drought, say, or from overgrazing or because the type of feed used just doesn't contain enough of the mineral. And a diet without enough phosphorus has serious consequences. Beef cattle get into what cattlemen call a creepy condition. They lose weight, and their value is tremendously lowered. Cows often become barren, and those cows that do have calves can't maintain themselves and the calf. Many cattle die. Investigations made by the U.S. Department of Agriculture the Texas Agricultural Experiment Stations, and the King Ranch show that the bad effects of a lack of phosphorus can be corrected by adding disodium phosphate, a DuPont product, to cattle feed or drinking water. Cattle getting phosphorus in this manner and otherwise well-fed stay fat and sleek. Breeding cows often produce a third more calves, calves which are healthier, hardier, and often as much as 65 pounds heavier when they're weaned. Today, science stands on the very edge of discoveries of the greatest significance for human health and happiness. Recent discoveries in the prevention and cure of disease through chemotherapy are already being applied, as well in the field of animal husbandry. This latest contribution, adding millions of pounds of beef to our national food supply through the supplementary feeding of disodium phosphate to beef cattle, is a typical achievement of chemical science and a typical illustration of accomplishment on the part of one of DuPont's better things for better living through chemistry. Now, here is Joseph Cotton, co-star of tonight's Cavalcade. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I suppose the world is full of Matthew Clarksons who've been misled by their blind admiration for big and little Führers. But I'm inclined to believe that this generation of G.I. Joes is, by comparison, pretty hard-headed and clear-thinking. Next week, Cavalcade's audience will hear another exciting story, My Fighting Congregation. It's the thrilling and true story of Chaplain William C. Taggart. And one of your favorite actors, Brian Donlevy, will be starred in it as Captain Taggart. So I'll be listening with the rest of you. Thank you and good night.
Cavalcade is happy to remind its audience that Joseph Cotton will soon be seen as one of the stars in David O. Selznick's newest picture, Since You Went Away. Richard Worf appeared through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor musical, Bathing Beauty. Cavalcade's music was composed and conducted by Robert Armbruster. This is James Bannon sending best wishes from Cavalcade sponsor, the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware, and inviting you to listen next Monday evening to My Fighting Congregation, starring Brian Dunleavy with Wally Mayer. In weeks to follow, Cavalcade will present other favorite actors with stars such as Richard Conte, Kevin O'Shea, Walter Pidgeon, and many others. Monday evening is good listening over NBC. For your further listening pleasure, may we suggest that you stay tuned for the Firestone program, the Bell Telephone Hour, and information, please, which are to follow over most of these stations. The Cavalcade of America came to you from Hollywood. National Broadcasting Company. Alt F4. Windows M, Desk M, My Music M, My Document Enter. Document J, Jack Birch Ray, Jack Birch Show, June for Enter. Sh- 2, 3, 10, 4, Lumma Dab, 5, Lux Ready Enter. Lux present Hollywood. <laughs> The Lux Radio Theater brings you Orson Welles and Loretta Young in Jane Eyre. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. This is the beginning of a busy week for me. With Gary Cooper and the story of Dr. Wassell opening in New York tomorrow night and here in Hollywood on Wednesday. And tonight, the week is certainly off to a wonderful start with two of our town's most accomplished artists in one of the immortal love stories of the English language, Loretta Young and Orson Welles in Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre almost a century ago. And yet in a world at war, this tempestuous story of the emotions is a bigger success than ever, for several new editions of the novel have appeared in the last few months. And the recent... 20th Century Fox picture version has been one of the hits of the motion picture year. Tonight, you'll hear Orson Welles as Edward Rochester, the same role he played in the picture. And as the lovely Jane Eyre, we have the lovely Loretta Young. We'll go back to England of the 19th century when a fast sailing packet astonished the world by crossing the ocean in 16 days. A dictator with delusions of world conquest had just been exiled to a small island in the Atlantic Ocean. And the richest duchess in England would have traded all her beauty secrets for one cake of Lux toilet soap. And so if the gay whirl of 19th century society seems more exciting than keeping house, you should remember the Duchess of 1820, who'd be happy to exchange places for an automobile, electric lights, or little modern luxuries like that cake of Lux toilet soap. And here's a warning signal for the curtain to go up on the first act of Jane Eyre. Starring Orson Welles as Edward Rochester and Loretta Young as Jane Eyre. My 
My name is Jane Eyre. I was born in 1820, a time of harsh changes in England. Money and position were all that mattered. Charity was a cold and disagreeable word, and religion, well, too often merely a mask to cover bigotry and meanness. As a child, I had no one, only an aunt. And I cannot remember even once did she speak a single word of kindness to me. When I was ten, she sent me away to school, to a place called Lowood. What do you want? I'm the new girl, sir, Jane Eyre. You are aware of my identity, Eyre? They told me you're Mr. Brocklehurst, sir. That is correct. I am the supervisor of this institution. Institution, sir? Did I give you leave to question me? No, sir, but... Perhaps the word institution annoys you. Excuse me, sir. I thought this was a school. Lowood is a refuge, Eyre. A refuge for paupers and orphans who but for these portals are without home. Here we give everything. In return, we demand nothing short of absolute obedience and humility. I've tried to be a good girl, sir. You've tried only to torment your poor aunt. From what she told and from what is readily observed, you're a wicked and worthless child. That isn't so. In all the earth, there is no sight so terrible as a wicked child. But I promise, all wickedness will be driven from you here. Here? Yes, sir. Get to your knees. We shall pray together for the salvation of your soul. That was my introduction to Lowood. It was like a prison, dark and cold. But never so dark nor cold as Mr. Brocklehurst. His hand reached everywhere through those somber walls and in the guise of Christian charity, tormented body and soul alike. Two weeks after my arrival, he found cause to assemble all of the children and ordered me to stand before them on a stool. Pupils, observe this child. Be on your guard against her. Shun her example and avoid her company. And you, the teachers, watch her well. Punish her body to save the soul. For already the evil one has found in her a willing servant. She will remain on this stool for 12 hours. Return to your classes. If we who were children at Lowood did not flourish, at least we survived. True, we had nothing to cling to save each other, but the very anguish that was lowered bound us together still more closely. Life was bearable, I know, because I was there for ten years. Shortly after my 20th birthday, Mr. Brocklehurst sent for me. This is a solemn moment, dear. Little did I imagine that the unregenerate child I received into this institution would in ten short years become one of its teachers. A teacher, sir? Trustees have seen fit to bestow that honor upon you. But I cannot accept the office, sir. Why not, pray? I do not wish to stay at Lowood. This is unheard of. In gratitude. I have had ten years of harshness and drudgery, sir. For that, I have no gratitude. Willful and stiff-necked as ever. I see we have been sadly deceived in you. And where do you intend to go? Out into the world, sir. I have never seen it. You know how the world treats young paupers, friendless and without connection. I intend to find a position as a governess. I have advertised in the newspaper. Doubtless you have been overwhelmed with demands for your services. No, sir. This is ridiculous. You have no talents. Your appearance is insignificant. I warn you, Air. If you persist in this folly, this haven will never again be open to you. I am leaving Lowood, sir. <laughs> My advertisement brought me a solitary answer. A letter signed by a Mrs. Fairfax. It bore the crest of Thornfield Hall. 
I was a whole day in reaching the estate. At the nearest village, a coachman met me, and for two hours we rode through the desolate moorland. And then, in the shadows of evening, it loomed before me, ancient and huge beyond anything I had visioned. Its great tower stretched into the darkness, and its massive stone walls butted out into the misty gloom like the ramparts of a fortress. I had arrived at Thornfield. You and Miss Ale, my dear? Yes, ma'am. I'm Mrs. Fairfax. There's a nice, cozy fire burning inside. Come and warm yourself, child. Thank you. I'm so glad you've come, Miss Ale. Living here with no company but the servants, it's none too cheerful, I tell you. Only the postman and the butcher to have a word with since this hard weather has set in. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing Miss Fairfax tonight? Miss Fairfax? Yes. Oh, you mean Miss Adele. Uh, is it not your daughter to whom I shall be governess? Oh, gracious, No. Adele is French. Oh? You will see her in the morning. She's Mr. Edward's ward, his niece. Mr. Edward? Mr. Edward Rochester, the owner of Thornfield. I'm only the housekeeper. Well, will he wish to see me this evening? Oh, he's not here. He's very seldom at Thornfield. And then his visits are always sudden and unexpected and brief. Oh, it is such a beautiful home, Mrs. Fairfax. Well, it's hard to understand why Mr. Rochester would choose to... Well, remain away. It is strange. But then, Miss Ayer, Mr. Rochester is a strange man in many ways. Now let me show you to your room. Thank you. I spent all the next day with Adele, a beautiful and charming child. Like myself, she too was an orphan, and she won me over so quickly. That night, as I was making her ready for bed, she showed me one of her dolls. This is Mimi, Mademoiselle. Oh, and such a beautiful dress she had at the Mama had a dress like that. Did she? It was a dancing dress, Mademoiselle. Oh? Mama was a beautiful dancer. I also can dance. Do you wish me to dance for you? Now, madame, do you mean to say a minute? No, you like me see Rochester. For him, it is never the right moment. Oh, does it make you sad, dear? Sometimes, Mademoiselle. I love Darcy. I should like it, too. A great many gentlemen and ladies came to see Mama Darcy. And where was that? In Paris. Uh-huh. But when Mama had to go to heaven, then Mr. Rochester came and brought me here. Oh, I see. Mademoiselle. Yes? Do you like Mr. Rochester? I have not met him yet. That big huge chair downstairs. Yes? That is his chair. He sits in it and stares into the fire. And frown. Oh, but I'm sure he's very kind to you. Oh, sometimes he brings me beautiful presents. <laughs> but when he is angry, that's terrible. Oh. But do not be concerned, mademoiselle. Tonight in my prayer, to, I shall pray to God to make him be polite to you. So you will stay with me forever. Oh, thank you, Adele. Thank you, dear. Later that week, Quite early in the evening, I went for a walk alone. It was cold, and huge clouds of mist clung to the ground. It was like walking through a dream, with the road ahead inviting and, and invisible. There must have been a turn in the road, for I saw nothing and heard nothing until it was upon me. And then, out of nowhere, there was a fearful clatter of hoofs, and a man frantically shouting, and then both horse and rider crashed to the ground. General, you mean by that? I'm so sorry, sir. I must have frightened your horse. Can I do anything? Well, apologies won't mend my ankle. Oh, stand out of the way. But you're hurt. I told you to stand aside. But I can't until I see if you're fit to ride. Where are you from? From Mr. Rochester's house just below. 
Well, do you know Mr. Rochester? No, sir. I've never met him. You're not a servant at the hall. I'm the new governess. The new governess? Yes. Well, if you're satisfied now that I've no bones broken, hand me a whip. Get on out of my way. Here you are, sir. Thank you. Now, if you'll kindly stand clear for a moment. Yes, Quickly, dear. He's been asking to see the new governess. Who? Mr. Rochester, of course. Rode in on us without warning and in such vile humor. Where is he? Inside, before the fire. In his chair. Oh, thank you. Yes, sir. Have you no tongue? I... I was waiting, sir, until I was spoken. Come here. Next time when you see a man on a horse, don't run out into the middle of the road until he has passed. Oh, I assure you, sir, it was not deliberate. Sit down, Miss Hare. Where are you from? Lowood Institution. Sir. What is that? A charity school. I was there for ten years. Ten years? Yes. You must be tenacious of life. No wonder you have rather the look of another world about you. When you came on me in the mist, I found myself thinking of fairy tales. <laughs> I had half a mind to demand whether you'd bewitched my horse. Indeed, I'm not sure yet. For your parents? I have none, sir. And your home? I have no home, sir. Oh, who recommended you to come here? Well, Mrs. Fairfax answered my advertisement. Uh, and you rushed here just in time to throw me off my horse. You play the piano? A little. Of course, that is the established answer. Go into the drawing room, I mean, if you please. Go on, take a candle, leave the door open, play a tune. What do you wish me to play? Anything, anything you wish. Enough! Enough! You play a little, I see, like any other English girl. That's rather better than some, but not well. Good night, Miss Eyre. Good night, sir. What sort of man was this master of Thornfield? So proud and so cynical. So unmanly. Instinctively, I felt that his harsh mood had its source in some cruel cross of fate. I was soon to learn that this indeed was true. After he said goodnight, I went to my room. I had scarcely fallen asleep when I heard it. Like a voice in a nightmare, a wild, insane laughter, a woman's laughter. It seemed to come from somewhere in the tower of Thornfield Hall. I opened my door, and at the end of the long hall in front of the stone steps, leading to the tower, I saw Mrs. Fairfax. She was talking to someone. But I tell you, you must be more careful. I told you time and time again. It can be heard all over the house. I know. I see. Good night. Oh. Jane, did I disturb you, my dear? There's nothing wrong. Wrong? Oh, dear, no. I was just talking to Grace Poole. She's the person we have to do the sewing. Oh. She does excellent work. She's a little peculiar. Oh, I see. Well, how did you get on with Mr. Rochester, my dear? Tell me. Is he always so changeful and abrupt? Well, he has his mood. But then allowances should be made. Why for him more than anyone else? Partly because that's his nature and partly because he has painful thoughts. In fact, I don't mean to be curious, but it does have many troubles, Jane. I think that's why he so seldom comes to Thornfield. It has unpleasant associations for him. Good night, my dear. Good night. Sit down, Miss Eyre. 
Tell me, you've been here now, how long is it? Eight days. Eight days. You puzzled me a great deal, Miss Ann. From the way you stare at me, it's apparent I also have something of a puzzle to you. Examine me, Miss Ann. Do you find me handsome? No, sir. Indeed. Oh, I, I beg your pardon. I'm too blunt. Now, don't turn away. What does my face tell you? Am I a fool? Oh, no, sir. Is it the face of a kindly man? Hardly that, sir. No, I am not a kindly man, though I did once have a sort of tenderness of heart. You doubt that? Please, Mr. Rochester. I right. have been knocked about by fortune, Monsieur. She has kneaded me with her knuckles. Till now I flatter myself I'm as hard and tough as an India rubber ball. With perhaps one small sensitive point in the middle of the lump. Does that leave hope for me? Hope of what, sir? Of my transformation from India rubber back to flesh. You're silent, Monsieur. Keep your silence, then, and listen. What I want you to know is this. I do not wish to treat you as an inferior, but I've battled through a varied experience with many men of many nations. I've roamed over half the globe while you've spent your whole life with one set of people in one house. Don't you agree that gives me the right to be a little masterful? You pay me 30 pounds a year for receiving your orders. Do as you please, sir. Oh, 30 pounds. I've quite forgotten that. Well... On that mercenary ground, won't you agree to let me bully you a little? No, sir. Only on the ground that you inquired of my feelings as your equal. Good. And you will not think me insolent. I should never mistake informality for insolence, sir. Now, where are you going? Well, it's time for Adele's lesson. Oh, you're afraid of me. You want to escape me. You look at me and you hesitate to smile, even to speak. Admit it. You're afraid. I am bewildered, sir. I am certainly not afraid. You see, I'm not a liar, sir. Hmm. I'm here, Adele. Look at me, mademoiselle. You too, monsieur. See, it is the ballet dress you brought me. Is it? Do I not look beautiful, monsieur? See? Go upstairs. But, monsieur... I said go upstairs. Come, Adele, come with me, dear. Miss Ayer, I'm not finished talking with you. Go to the nurse with me. Yes, I'll come up just a moment. Why are you looking at me like that, Miss Ayer? I don't care what your past misfortunes were... You had no right to revenge yourself upon that child. Well, you're quite right, of course. I was only thinking of myself, my own private memories and feelings. Miss Ayer, I am a battleground where nature and circumstance tear at each other's throat. Nature intends me to be a good man. Circumstance decrees otherwise. You may leave now. Thank you. I... I hope you'll be happy here at Thornfield. I hope so, sir. I... I think so. I'm glad. Three nights later, I was again awakened by that awful laughter and a noise in the hall like padding of running feet. I lit a candle and opened my door. I could see no one in the hall. But faintly, I heard a sort of crackling noise that seemed to come from his room, Mr. Rochester's. As I drew near his door, I saw it was partly opened. Just a crack. But through it came a strange light, and then suddenly I could see it. Smoke and fire. Mr. Rochester! Mr. Rochester! <laughs> it's out, Miss Air. The fire's out. Please open the window. Yes, sir. Look, the fire seems to be known as my bed. The bed curtain. Oh, get Mrs. Caretaker. What the devil do you want to call her for? Let her sleep. Well, someone started that fire, sir. 
I heard footsteps. Stay here. Why? Where are you going? I won't be long. Stay here and be as quiet as you can. He took a candle and walked quickly down the hall. The window of his room looked upon the, upon the tower and through the vents in the winding staircase. I could see now and then a flicker of the candle as it mounted higher and higher. There was something in the tower that had to do with the fire. The light seemed to cling to the top of the tower, and then, I don't know how long later, it glimmered its way down again. There were footsteps in the hall, and Mr. Rochester returned to his room. He closed the door and looked at me. You came out of your room. You saw the fire and awakened me. Had you seen anything else? No. Did you hear anything? Yes. A kind of laugh. A kind of laugh. You heard it before? Yes, once. There's a strange woman living here. Grace Poole. Grace Poole, so Grace Poole. Well, I can see now what must be done. Meanwhile, say nothing about this to anyone. And be sure that... Adele. Uh, Adele, I looked in the nursery just now. Adele is all right. Oh, thank heaven. She's asleep. Next to her head on the pillow, her dancing slippers. Oh. Trying to console herself for my unkindness to her. Child has dancing in her blood and coquetry. In the very marrow of her bones. She's shown you her doll, Miss Eyre. Her dancing doll, with a dress like her mother's? Her mother was a dancer in the ballet of the Paris Opera. Adele is the image of her. But she's dead. Adele's mother is dead. That is what we tell her. The truth is not quite so touching. Oh. She has so little to love. I shall try to make up for it. Are you always drawn to the loveless and unfriended? When it's deserved, sir. Would you say that my life deserves saving? I should be distressed if harm came to you, sir. Oh, you should be distressed. Oh, what a puny sort of sentiment is that. You saved my life tonight, Miss Eyre. I knew you'd do me good in some way. At some time. I did, I'm very glad. Good night, Jane. Good night, sir. In a few minutes, Mr. DeMille presents Loretta Young and Orson Welles in Act Two of Jane Eyre. And now, here's our Hollywood reporter, Libby Collins. Anything new, Libby? Why, Mr. Kennedy, I had a real thrill the other day. I met Irene Dunn. We had quite a conversation, too. It was on that all-important subject of feminine charm. Well, you certainly were talking to an authority, Libby. Irene Dunn is, above everything else, feminine and gracious. What are some of the things that impressed you most about her? Well, her voice, for one thing. It's low and soft. Delightful to listen to. You know, Irene Dunn started her career as a singer. Another subject of importance we discussed was clothes. Irene was wearing a beautifully tailored suit. She says she feels best in suits and almost always wears them. That's another rule for attractiveness, she thinks. Wearing the kind of clothes that become you. Makes a woman feel good when she has on a dress that's right for her. And when a woman feels at her best, why, she's most likely to be poised and charming. That makes good sense, Libby. And wouldn't that same argument apply to beauty care, too? If a woman knows, for instance, that her skin is looking fresh and smooth, well... <laughs> Why, she feels good, of course. Don't think we didn't discuss that all-important subject of complexion care, Mr. Kennedy. Irene said, 
Of course, you know, Libby, that I've used Lux Toilet Soap for years for my complexion and my bath, too. We found here in Hollywood that Lux Soap is a real beauty soap, kind to delicate skin. And, Mr. Kennedy, you should feel particularly interested when you hear the one real extravagance Irene Dunn allows herself. And what's that, Libby? Well, she loves fine perfumes, often blends her own. So when she told me she especially enjoyed the fragrance of Lux Soap, I thought that proved again what a really luxurious soap it is. Yes, Libby, and it's a luxury everyone can enjoy at a tiny price. Thanks for bringing us these hints on charm from such a lovely authority. Now, to any of you ladies who haven't yet tried the beauty soap of the stars, here's a suggestion. Why not get some fine white Lux toilet soap tomorrow? We pause now for station identification. Yes, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Two of Jane Eyre, starring Loretta Young as Jane and Orson Welles as Edward Rochester. There was no sleep for me, the balance of that night. The insane laughter, the fire, the story of poor little Adele, each was a fragment of a tormenting and frightening puzzle. But most bewildering of all was the master of Thornfield Hall, this brooding, melancholy man, bitter and unpredictable as the winds that raced across the neighboring moors. And like the winds, searching and longing endlessly. I was up early the next morning, but not early enough. Mr. Rochester was gone. At breakfast, Mrs. Fairfax told me where. He said something about Milkett. Perhaps he's bound there. Perhaps not. Milkett? Lady Ingram's estate, the other end of the county. She has a daughter. French Ingram and Mr. Rochester are old friends. Oh. Jean, you heard what happened last night? Yes. I, I was awake. It was just terrible. We might all have been burnt in our beds. Did... Did Mr. Rochester tell you how the fire started? He said he was reading in bed and fell asleep. The wind blew the candle onto the big curtain. Oh, I see. If you'll excuse me, Mrs. Fairfax, I'll go up to Adele. But Adele was still sleeping. As I left her room, my eyes turned toward the tower staircase. Almost against my will, I walked to the ancient stone steps and started to climb. Halfway up, a great door barred the way. But it was open, and I slipped past. At the top of the stairs was another door, but before I reached it, there came a sudden screaming and snarling human and half-animal, and a thudding sound as if a beast were tearing at the bars of its cage. I reeled on the stairs and started to descend, but the door behind me swung open and a voice rooted me to where I stood. What are you doing here? Who are you? They've told you who I am, Grace Poole. Never come up here. Never. Why? What is there? What are you hiding? No one is allowed up here. Do you understand? No one. Now go down. Go down. So to me, the mystery of the tower continued unsolved. Edward Rochester remained away, and the winter weeks dragged by. I found a measure of contentment in Adele's apparent fondness of me and 
And then early in the spring, he returned. But he did not come alone. He descended suddenly upon us with a dozen guests. Among them, Lady Ingram and her daughter, Blanche. Jane. Jane, I've been home for hours. Not a word out of you. Why? You've been with your guests? I have no wish to disturb you. What have you been doing while I've been away? Uh, teaching Adele? Yes, and getting a good deal paler than you were. But... What's the matter? Nothing. You're depressed. What about? No, I'm not depressed. So much sir. depressed that a few words more and there'll be tears in your eyes. <laughs> They're already there. Shining and swimming. Jane. Jane, you must tell me. What is it? Mr. Rochester. Ah, oh, what the devil. There's a gentleman to see you, sir. Oh, well, who is he? Uh, Mr. Mason, sir. Mr. Mason of Spanish Town, Mason. Jamaica. Spanish Town. Take you to my study, Mrs. Fairfax. Yes, sir. Jane. Jane. I wish I were on a quiet island. With only you. And trouble and danger. And hideous recollection. Far away. Can I help you, sir? If help is needed, I'll seek it at your hands. I promise you that. Jane. Yes? If all the people gathered in that other room came... And spat on me. What would you do? I'd turn them away if I could. But if I were to go to them, and they turned away and left me alone, what then? Would you go with them? Oh, no, no. I'd stay with you, sir. To comfort me. As well as I could. Thank you, Jane. I was to learn a little more of Mr. Mason later that night. It was long past midnight. The whole house was sleeping when it happened again. That awful screaming in the tower. Aroused and frightened, the guests flocked to Mr. Rochester. But he had a convenient explanation ready for them. It was one of the servants, he said. A servant having a bad dream. That's all it was, a bad dream. Now, since these halls are inclined to draft, I suggest you all return to your rooms. Lady Ingram, you set the good example. But I'm quite disappointed in you, Edward. I was so looking forward to seeing you shoot a robber. Weren't you, Mother? Less of your levity, Blanche, and get back to bed. Goodness, it's almost morning. <laughs> good night, Edward, and good morning. Sweet dreams, my courageous Blanche. There'll be no more disturbances, I promise you. Jane. Jane. Are you awake? Yes. Come with me quickly. We're going up there. The tower? Yes. You don't turn sick at the sight of blood, do you? I've never been tried, but I don't think Give so. Give me a hand. It won't do to risk a faint. It's warm and steady. Jane, what you see may shock and frighten and confuse you. I beg you not to seek an explanation. Only try to trust me. Can you do that? I can do that, yes. In the tower room, bloody and unconscious on a bed, lay a man. Across from him was a door, a door secured with a heavy chain. From beyond it came a horrible sobbing and scratching. Now and then the voice of Grace Poole, but I had not a time to think nor become frightened. 
Jane, I must get Dr. Rivers. That means leaving you alone here with this gentleman. If you'll sponge the blood as I do now, please. Yes. If he regains consciousness, don't you speak to him on any account. Is that clear, Jane? Yes, yes. Whatever happens, do not move from here or open that door. No. I'll be back as quickly as I can. Here's your patient, Doctor. Jane, you are all right? Yes, I'm all right. He's regained consciousness. You have 20 minutes, Doctor, for dressing the wound and getting the patient out of here. So you told me. Wait a minute. Oh, Mason. I've, I've done for it. That's nonsense. You've lost a little blood, that's all. She sank her teeth into me like a tiger. Ah. It'd be better if you don't talk and let me get to work. She said she'd drain my heart. Be I... silent, Mason. Forget it. Jane. Yes, sir. Go downstairs quietly on both the side passage door. You'll find Dr. Rivers' carriage there. See that the driver's ready to leave the moment we come down. Yes, sir, yes. Could have done some good. You thought, you thought. I still please. I've tried so long to avoid exposure. She'll make very certain it doesn't come now. Dr. Rivers will take you to his home. You'll remain there until you're quite well, Mason. Edward. Yes. Let her be taken care of. I will. Please let her be treated as tenderly as may be. I do my best and have done it. I will do it. Would to God there were an end to all this. Well, they're gone, Jane. Yes. And it's daylight again. I'd promised I'd turn to you for help. I didn't know it'd be so soon. I was thankful I was here. We could walk for a moment in the garden, Jane. It's so fresh and clean there. Mr. Rochester. Will Grace Poole live here Grace still? Grace Poole, yes, Grace Poole will stay. Don't ask for explanations. Just believe me when I tell you there are good reasons for it. You're my friend, Jane, aren't you? I like to serve you in everything that's right. And if I asked you to do something you thought was wrong, what then? But I know the answer. Very quietly, you'd say, Oh, no, sir, that's impossible. Would I? Jane, imagine you were a young man. Thoughtless, spoiled since childhood. Imagine yourself in a far-off land. Conceive that you there commit a capital error. One that cuts you off from all the possibility of human joys. And then suddenly, imagine that fate offers you the chance of regeneration and true happiness. Are you justified in overleaping the obstacles of mere custom? Tell me, Jane. Are you justified? But... How can I answer that? Every conscience must come to its own decision. But if it can't come to a decision, if you're afraid that you may bring shame to what you most cherish, or destroy what you most desire to protect... Oh, Jane, don't you curse me for plaguing you like this. No, I don't curse you. Give me your assurance on that, your hand. (laughs) Your fingers are cold. They were warmer last night. Jane, will you watch with me again another night? Whenever I can be useful. For instance, the night before I'm married, will you sit with me then? Are you going to be married? Sometime, why not? But what makes you think he's in the stable? Uh, Mr. Rochester, right before breakfast. Oh, what a place to be looking for. Mr. Dell. And the delectable Miss Ingram Blanche. Edward, Edward, is that you? Uncle Edward. What do you mean by running off like this so early? Excuse me, Jane, and what do you mean by rising so early? A correct host entertains you, yes. My dear Blanche, when will you learn? I never was correct and never shall be. Come along. Well, why do you stop, Blanche? I don't you know the rest of it. Edward, 
Does that person wish to see you? Person, person. Oh, come in, Miss Eyre. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I did not know you were occupied. I'm sure Miss Ingram will excuse me for a moment. Oh, certainly. But don't forget, Edward. You promised to show me the estate. Oh, I shall. Don't leave. Well, Jane. I overheard some of the guests after luncheon. They mentioned that you were leaving with them in the morning, and I wished to ask for a reference, sir. A reference? What the deuce do you want a reference for? To get a new place. Oh. You as much as told me that you were going to be married. Well? In which case, Adele would likely go off somewhere to school. I see. Adele must go off to school, and you must go to the devil. Is that it? I hope not, sir. <laughs> the time comes for you to get a new situation. I'll get one for you. Do you hear? Very well. I... I may not see you again before you leave. Goodbye, Mr. Rochester. Goodbye, Miss Eyre. Jane. Is that all? Seems so dry and stingy. Won't you do more than say goodbye? Oh, your hand. You'll shake my hand. Goodbye, Jane. <laughs> seen it all, Blanche. The fields, the forests, and now the garden. Such a beautiful place you're fond mm, of. As a dungeon, it serves its purpose. Dungeon? It's a paradise. A haven. Oh, yes. A haven of peace and love. Who's talking of love? Distraction is what a man needs. Distraction to keep him from peering too closely into the mysteries of his heart. I sometimes wonder if you have a heart, Edward. Have I ever said anything to make you believe that I have? Edward, are you never serious? Never more than at this moment, except perhaps when I'm eating my dinner. Really? You can be so revoltingly coarse at times. Can I ever be anything else? Would I have come to Thornfield if I thought you couldn't? Well, now we have something to consider. First, Mr. Rochester's revoltingly coarse and as ugly as sin. Edward, I never Secondly, said... he's extremely careful never to talk of love or marriage. However, and this is the third point, the Ingrams are somewhat impoverished, whereas the revolting Mr. Rochester has an assured income of $8,000 a year. Now, in view of all this, what attitude shall Miss Blanche be expected to take? From what I know of the world, I'd surmise she'd ignore the coarseness, etc., until such time as Mr. Rochester is safely hooked. How dare you! No, no, no horseplay. I've never been so insulted in all my life. Blanche, I've just paid you the enormous compliment of being completely honest. You're a boor and a cur. Leave me at once. Well, they've gone, Jane. My guests have all gone. We're alone again. I will be leaving too, sir. Soon to forget me. Oh, I'll never forget you. You know that. I... I see the necessity of going. Hmm? It's like looking on the necessity of death. Where do you see that necessity? And your bride? Hey, my bride, bride. I have no bride. But you will have. Oh, yes, I will. I will. So you... You think I can stay here to become nothing to you? Do you think because I'm poor and obscure and plain that I'm soulless and heartless? Well, I have as much heart and soul and fully as much as you have. And if God had gifted me with wealth and beauty, I shouldn't have made it as difficult for you to leave me. As it is for me now to leave you. There, I spoke of my heart. Now let me go. Jane. Jane. Jane, you strange. You almost unearthly thing. No. You that I love as my own flesh. Oh, don't mock me. Please. I have no love for Blanche. It's you I want. Answer me, Jane, quickly. Oh. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. Say it. Let me look at Say it, Jane. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. Edward, I'll marry you. 
God forgive me. Edward. God forgive me. After a brief intermission, Mr. DeMille presents Orson Welles and Loretta Young in Act Three of Jane Eyre. And now, the lady next door has just come into Mrs. Brown's kitchen. Hello, Mary. I won't stay a minute. I just got some roses from the garden, and I thought you'd like to have some. Oh, how gorgeous. Thanks ever so much. Sit down. I'll be with you as soon as I finish scraping out this roasting pan. Mary, you're not throwing that grease away, are you? Why, there's only a spoonful or two of old black grease here. It's hardly worth the trouble of saving. Trouble? Why, Mary, that's vital war material. That little bit of fat could make enough vaccine for dozens of soldiers. Or sulfur ointment for wounded men's burns. But I thought there was plenty of fat now. It's been taken off the ration list. Darling, that doesn't make the need one tiny bit less urgent. You see, those fresh new fats are needed for food. And the government doesn't want to take food fats unless it becomes absolutely necessary. The point is that to make medicines and war supplies, used fats are just as good. So it's up to you and me and every other woman to keep those used fats coming in. Mary, at the ration board meeting yesterday, they said the need was terribly serious. And that's a fact. Now, on the eve of invasion, the need for war supplies and medicines is the greatest our country has ever faced. Think of it. By turning in your used cooking fats, you actually help to make more parachutes, synthetic rubber, and life-saving medicines, such as insulin, tannic acid, and heart stimulants. Every drop you scrape from your frying pan or skim from soup is precious. I didn't realize that when I throw away even a little used fat, I may be depriving our men of some vital thing they need. I'll save every scrap after this. Yes, and turn it in quickly to your butcher. He pays four cents and two red ration points for every pound. Save fats in any kind of tin can. Never use glass fat in quickly. Here's a chance for you to make a real and valuable contribution to the war effort. And now, our producer, Mr. DeMille. You'll meet our stars informally after the play. But now the curtain rises on the third act of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Loretta Young. All my doubts and all the grim shadows that hung over Thornfield Hall were shattered and gone. I loved, and I was loved. Spring had come to the earth, and spring had come into my heart. Two weeks later, Edward and I were in the little church in the village. My hand in his, as now it would be forever. The minister had started the marriage ceremony. Be assured that if any persons are joined together, otherwise than as the word of God allows, then are they not joined by God. Therefore, Edward Rochester knew Jane Eyre, if either of you know any impediment why you may not lawfully be joined in matrimony, you do now confess it. Edward Rochester, wilt thou have this woman to be thy wedded wife? Wait! I declare the existence of an impediment. Proceed for the ceremony. You cannot proceed. Mr. Who? Rochester has a wife now living. Who are you? My name is Mason. On the 20th of October, 1824, Edward Rochester was married to my sister, Bertha Mason. At St. Mary's Church, Spanish Town, Jamaica. The record of the marriage will be found in the register of that church. You swear you're speaking the truth? I swear it. My sister is living now at Thornfield Hall. I have seen her there myself. Parson, 
Close your book. There'll be no wedding today. Instead, I invite you all to my house to meet Grace Poole's patient, my wife. Seemed without end, that journey back to Thornfield Hall. On the way, we stopped to get Dr. Rivers. Edward insisted that he come back with us. And that is all I remember the ride back. If words were spoken, I did not hear them. And then at length, I found myself with Grace Poole and the others standing again in the tower room. There was a clanking and unlocking of chains. The door opened, and the wife of Edward Rochester stood before him. Screaming, she flung herself upon him. Her clawing hands flashed around his throat. But she had no time to do him harm. Grace Poole and the doctor sprang upon her. And when they returned, and the door was shut again and the chains fastened, only then did Edward speak. The woman you have seen is my wife. Mad. The mad offspring of a mad family. To whom the church and law bind me forever without hope of divorce. This is what I wish to have. This young girl who stands among you now, so grave and quiet at the mouth of hell. Look at the difference. And then judge me. <laughs> Jane. Jane, may I come in? Jane, I did not even know her. Jane, I was married at 19 in Spanish Town to a bride already courted for me. But I married a gross, groveling, molite blockhead that I was. Jane, hear me. I suffered all the agonies of a man bound to a wife at once intemperate and unchaste. I watched her excesses driver at last into madness. And I brought her back to England to Thornfield. Jane, I did everything that God and humanity demanded. Then I fled from this place. My fixed desire was to find a woman I could love. A contrast to the fury I'd left here. And what did I find? An actress in Vienna, a milliner in Naples, a countess in Warsaw. Back in England... I rode again in sight of Thornfield. Someone was walking there in the mist. A strange, elfin-like creature. Frightened my horse and then came up and gravely offered me help. And her hand. And then, later that evening... Jane, do you remember? Say you remember, Jane. You came into that room. How shy you were. And yet how readily you answered my surly questioning. Then you smiled at me. And in that moment, I knew I'd found you. Jane, can you forgive me? I do forgive you. And you can still love me. I do love you with all my heart. I can say it now. For the last time. Jane. You mean to go one way in the world? 
and let me go another? Oh, please. Stay with me, Jane. We'd be hurting no one. Oh, we should be hurting ourselves. Would it be so wicked to be near me? Oh, Would it? I'm leaving, Edward. I'm leaving, Julie. You know that I must. You will not be my comforter. Oh, my rescuer. Jane, my deep love. My frantic prayer. I say nothing to you. Goodbye, Edward. Goodbye, and God bless you. Keep you from harm and from wrong. Jane. Jane. Going nowhere, I had nowhere to go. Without references, I could find no employment. I soon intimately knew hunger and unsheltered nights. And at last, without hope or help, I turned like a beaten dog back to Lowood. Mr. Brocklehurst forgot his word never to open his doors to me again. So you're back here, penitent and humble, I suppose, pleading for mercy and prepared as ever, I dare say, to return our favors with your accustomed deceit. If there is a place for me here, I am ready to beg for it. You would like to become a teacher here? Yes, sir. We need no teachers. We have need of a girl in the scullery. Do you want it or not? I'll stay. Get in the kitchen, then. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Wait. Some months ago, I had repeated inquiries as to your whereabouts from Mr. Edward Rochester. Obviously, I was unable to assist him. I know no Edward Rochester. I didn't ask you. Makes little difference if you do or not. In his last letter, thanking me for my kindness, he said he was leaving England forever. The summer passed. It was fall again, and then one day the watchman's wife came looking for me. Jane, there's a gentleman to see you outside in the court. I don't want to see him. I don't want to see anyone. I told him you'd come right out. Then tell him you were mistaken. Oh, girl, girl. Living all to yourself. Killing yourself in this cheerless place. Send him away if you want, but at least see him. Who is he? A doctor, Rivers. Oh, thank you. Jane, it is you. Yes, Dr. Rivers. But you look... Oh, forgive me. Have you been ill? I, I mean no rudeness, Doctor, but you're not here to inquire about my health. No, Jane. I'm here at the request of a friend. How did you know I was at Lowood? I didn't. But I've been trying to find you. I received a letter about you the other day. My friend asked if I, in my journeys about, would inquire after you. Oh. Well, I happened to see that villain Brocklehurst... Have you answered your friend? How could I, Jane? I've just found you. You haven't found me, Doctor. You tried, but no one knows where I am. Edward is back in England, Jane. He's at Thornfield Hall again. He's searched for you everywhere. Oh, I beg of you, tell him nothing. But why, Jane, why? No one knows better than you. Why? Yes. It's for you to say, Jane. If you'd rather I didn't answer him at all, well, then I won't. Yes, I would. I would rather you didn't answer him at all. Goodbye, Doctor. Goodbye, Jane. Jane. Oh. Jane. His voice. Night after night, I started to hear it. Jane. I struggled to shut my ears from it, but I could not. It was like a soul in pain. A wild, urgent cry, more than I could bear. I would see him again. 
speak with him again, and after that I neither knew nor cared what happened to me. All I knew was that I must go and go quickly. I reached the estate, but Thornfield Hall was no more. Fire had destroyed it all. I was staring at the pile of charred and blackened rubble when Mrs. Fairfax saw me. She came running from the gardener's cottage. Jane. Oh, my poor, poor girl. Mrs. Fairfax, what happened? It was she who did it. She killed Grace Poole as she slept and set fire to Thornfield. Her laughing roused us. I ran to the nursery and carried Adele to the garden. As I stood there, I heard the laugh again. She was on the roof. Mr. Edward was just coming from the house. He said nothing, but turned and ran back into the flames. I saw him get to the roof and make his way toward her. She saw him, too. She ran to the edge and jumped. When we reached her, she was dead. And Ed... Edward! As he was coming down, the great staircase fell. Oh. Mrs. Fairfax? Yes, sir? What the devil are you doing? Adele is waiting for a supper. I'm coming, sir. There's someone with you. Who is it? Who are you? His eyes. Edward. I've come back. Oh, my beloved. Jane. Her small, soft fingers. Her hair. Her little flower soft face. Heart, beloved, her heart. Jane. All you can feel now is pity. I won't have your no, pity. Edward. You can't spend your life on the ruins of a man. You're so young, so fresh. Oh, don't send me away. Please, Edward, don't send me away. You think I want to let you go? No. Oh, my beloved. As the months went by, he came to see the heavens once more. To see first the glory of the sun. And then the mild splendor of the moon. And at last, the evening star. And then one day when our firstborn was put into his arms, he could see that the boy had his own eyes as they once were. Large and brilliant and black. That, that applause invites the return of the two artists who gave such distinguished performances tonight. Loretta Young, whom we've presented many times before, and Orson Welles, who has made his first appearance in the Lux Radio Theater tonight. It's a pleasure to be back, Mr. DeMille. My, isn't the stage just crowded with producers tonight, hmm? Oh, just... Just two, Loretta, mm -hmm. Orson and myself. Well, that's what I say, and that's an awful lot of producers. Well, I'm not a producer or director this week, Loretta. Oh? I, I have been doing everything CB says, almost. <laughs> well, I, I must tell you, Orson, that I have a son who thinks you are the greatest director in Hollywood. <laughs> well, it must be, must be terribly lonely for him at your house. No, 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 no. You have other admirers there, too. Now, I personally... Oh, this, this I've been waiting for. 
I personally think Loretta Young is one of the loveliest stars in Hollywood. <laughs> is that what you were waiting for, Orson? Yeah, you uh, took the words practically out of my mouth. <laughs> Thank you, kind sir. And now, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Mr. DeMille, but I would like to say that I've used Lux soap for years, and I think it's a delightful complexion care. Mm, well, words like that are good for my morale, Loretta. Uh-huh. Especially from you. Thank you. You know, Austin, I was going to say that I've always thought you were a fine actor, but uh, I don't think I'm qualified to give an opinion on your directing. How long have you been in pictures? Since I was 25. <laughs> 25, yes, I'm... I'm afraid I haven't been in the business long enough. <laughs> I didn't start until I was 32. Of course, I was more or less the Orson Welles of 1913. <laughs> well, you never can tell, Mr. DeMille. Orson may make it all even by becoming the Cecil B. DeMille of 1970, huh? I must remember to get some hair tonic. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if my hair is standing on end this week, Orson, it's because Gary Cooper and I have the double opening of the story of Dr. Wassell this week, both here and in New York. Well, you've made a picture before, C.B. Yes, 60 or 70, somewhere in there. <laughs> Relax, Sonny, it'll come out all right. <laughs> now, seriously, C.B., I've enjoyed working with you immensely. Have you got a script set for next week? Yes, Austin. And I think it'll be very good news for our audience. Because next Monday night, the play is Victor Herbert's great musical hit, Naughty Marietta. And our stars, well... At long last, we're presenting one of the most famous teams of, in motion picture history, Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy. They starred together in the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer picture, and next week we have them in this gay drama with those unforgettable songs by Victor Herbert. Oh, I know it's going to be a wonderful evening, Mr. DeMille. Good night. Good night, sir. Good night, good night. Amazing to remember for a long time... Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy in Naughty Marietta. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying good night to you from Hollywood. Tonight we salute the National Association of Retail Grocers meeting in Chicago. They make this plea to consumers. Buy only the foods you actually need. Give ration stamps for every bit of ration food you buy. Pay no more than ceiling prices and see that no edible food is wasted. Orson Welles appeared through the courtesy of the makers of Mobile Gas. Loretta Young's next picture is the Paramount production, and now tomorrow. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. Three bells for three great shows. Same time, same station. Listen tomorrow night at Lux Time for George Burns and Gracie Allen. Listen Wednesday night for Frank Sinatra singing Where or When. Jane Wyman will be Frank's guest. This time, Lux Time, every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And this is your announcer, John M. Kennedy, reminding you to tune in again next Monday night to hear Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy in Naughty Marietta. She tried new Easy Mix Fry, and he said, Mmm, what a cake, your best ever. She tried new Easy Mix Fry, and she said, What a shortening, almost mixes itself. You try new Easy Mix Fry, and you'll say, It's amazing. Spry gives me lighter cakes that stay fresh longer. Buy Spry at your grocer's in the same handy jar. It's a CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Six, seven, enter.
Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild Players. The Lady Esther Screen Guild play tonight, The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse. The starling players... This is Edward G. Robinson. This is Claire Trevor. And this is Lloyd Nolan. Tonight, Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in a radio adaptation of the Warner Brothers picture, The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse by Barry Lyndon. It stars Edward G. Robinson as Dr. Clitterhouse, Claire Trevor as Miss Randolph, and Lloyd Nolan as Rox Valentine. The Lady Esther, Screen Guild players, and The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse. Make yourself at home, Lane. I'll fix you up in a jiffy. Thanks, Doc. Oh, Dr. Clitterhouse. Well, I didn't expect you back so early. Was Mrs. Updike's party duller than you thought it would be? No, just about as dull. <laughs> oh, uh, you remember Inspector Lane of the police department, Miss Randolph? Yes, of course. How are you, Inspector? The inspector's having a little trouble with his insomnia. He asked me to give him something for it, so I brought him back from the Updikes with me. Did you enjoy the musicale, Inspector? As a matter of fact, nurse, I didn't get there until it was over. Oh, the inspector was invited quite as an afterthought, Miss Randolph. It seems that while Mrs. Updike was singing Close Thine Eyes in the parlor, somebody was in her bedroom stealing $100,000 worth of jewelry. $100,000 worth of jewelry? Oh, that thief was no piker. Do you have any clues, Inspector? Not yet, but we'll catch the fellow, all right. Hey, uh, we're forgetting your insomnia, Inspector. Uh, Miss Randolph, will, will you get me the bottle of paradictal chloride tablets? Uh, I believe it's in the cabinet. Yes, sir. Oh, and uh, put my bag in the closet for me, will you? Yes, certainly, Doctor. Oh, I hope these pills fix me up. I haven't had a good night's sleep in weeks. <laughs> these robberies are getting on your nerves, huh? Yeah, yeah, this up bag affair is the fourth in the last month. All obviously done by the same man, too. The commissioner is screaming his head off. You have no idea who the crook is? Not yet, but he'll make a mistake. They all do. Uh, what kind of a mistake do you think you'll make, Lane? Is this that hobby of yours again? The medical approach to crime? <laughs> well, someday criminologists will thank me for that hobby. But I, I would like to know, uh, what kind of a mistake are you hoping for? Well, it would be nice if he went to the wrong fence. Fence? Oh, uh, a receiver, you mean? Yeah, the guy who buys the hot stuff. Oh, yeah. Sooner or later, our man will try to peddle his swag. That'll be the end for him. <laughs> no fence will take a chance with a crook he doesn't know. And I know them all. From the petty larceny guys right up to Rox Valentine. Rox Valentine. <laughs> what an interesting name. Doctor. Uh, oh, here are the sleeping pills. Uh, thank you, nurse. Oh, uh, anything wrong? Uh, n no. Well, you look a little upset. Ah, well, this is the paradictal chloride, all right. Uh, found it in the cabinet, hmm? No, doctor. It was in your medical bag. You opened my bag? Yes, doctor. Well, Lane, uh, these should do the trick. Uh, just take the dose prescribed on the bottle. Only half a tablet? Well, that's all that's given the sedative. And larger quantities, paradictal chloride is a deadly poison. Okay, Doc, and thanks. Good night, Lane. Good night. Oh, say, uh, this crook would make swell material for your book. 
When we get him, I'll invite you down. Oh, I'll be there, all right. So you opened my bag, Miss Randolph? Yes, Doctor. Rather glittering array of equipment in that bag, don't you think? Yes, Doctor. Did you see any uh, medical supplies you'd care to wear? Dr. Clutterhouse, you, you stole those jewels? They are the proceeds of my fourth burglary. You deliberately committing a robbery? Four robberies, Miss Randolph. Don't talk as if I were a beginner. But what can you possibly want with all that jewelry? I, I don't want it, candidly. It's a nuisance, an unfortunate byproduct of my experiments. You're experimenting with criminals? I'm being one. Uh, I've been uh, planning a book on the medical aspects of crime for a long time now, Miss Randolph. My book will show how the nervous tension caused by crime changes the blood pressure, the ratio of the blood corpuscles. In fact, it changes the entire mental and physical makeup of the criminal. But you don't know any criminals. <laughs> Precisely. So I became a criminal myself. I uh, planned a series of burglaries and went through them. And as accurately as I could, I analyzed my medical reactions to each crime. It's merely a research in a rather unusual form. Well, uh, let's shut up shop. I've had a pretty busy day, and tomorrow I pay a little visit to Rox Valentine. Uh, a patient? A fence. Well, let's... Uh, what are you looking for, Miss Randolph? A sleeping pill. For me? No, for me. you for the tenth time there ain't no rocks valentine in this apartment yes but he must be here hey wait a minute the swede never sent you did he well, uh, my good man it it doesn't pay to inquire too deeply into things that concern the uh, swede then you are from the swede who said i wasn't okay okay i i gotta be sure what's he look like the swede yeah i think he uh, has uh, blonde hair and blue eyes and what kind of an accent does he talk with? Swedish. I guess you're okay. <laughs> but I gotta be careful. The heat's on for Roxy. The cops are looking for him. He gets kind of nervous. Uh, really? Uh, uh, tell me, have you ever examined him when he gets nervous? Uh, I mean, uh, does he exhibit any outward signs? Uh, constriction of the pupils, for instance. Huh? I, I say, is there any constriction? Uh, you, you know what constriction is, don't you? Oh, sure. But I ain't worried. I'm past the age limit. Well, well, come on in. What do you want, O.K.? This guy wants to see you, Rox. He's from the Swede. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Who are you? Well, that has no bearing on our business. Say the word, boss. I throw him out. Now, take it easy, Poppas. I'll handle this. What do you want, buddy? Well, I understand your offense, Mr. Valentine. Yeah? Well, so what? What's your business? This. Holy yeah. smoke! Mm. Diamonds! Boy, what a hunk of ice. Hey, Pappas. Yeah? Get out your eyeglass. See if they're the McCoy. Sure. <laughs> boss, he's not only 100% his McCoy, but he's as positively in person, the Obdike brooch. What? The Obdike brooch. Yes, and here's the Obdike tiara, the Obdike necklace, the Obdike bracelet. Holy smoke. And the Obdike dog collar. Oh, Holy smoke. What a dog collar for a pooch. What's the leech made out of platinum? Hey, look, bud. You trying to tell us that you pulled the updike job? I'm telling you nothing. 
I think that these jewels, being in my possession, speak for me. Yeah? Well, they ain't saying why you came down here to see me. Well, it's all very simple, Rocks. I need you and you need me. What do you say to my joining you professionally? You mean become one of the mob? Yes. Oh, you're screwy. I don't know, boss. Maybe we could use him. He's got beautiful eyes. What's his eyes got to do with it? Not eyes. Eyes. I-C-E. Eyes. Well, I'm sorry we couldn't make a deal, Rox, but uh, that's your business. Now, now, wait. Wait a minute. Maybe we could use you at that, buddy. Only, remember, I don't trust no one, see? No one. Well, I hope I'll give you good reason to alter that philosophy. He talks like a universal professor, don't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, you want in the mob now, Professor. Come on, let's have a drink in it. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> here's to crime and research. Henry, what? Uh, never mind. Make it just crime. Yeah, drink it down. Huh? Here I am, a member of a bona fide group of thieves. It's amazing, gentlemen. Really amazing. Dr. Clitterhouse's office. No Inspector Lane. The doctor is still in Bermuda. Well, I can't say. It may be months. Oh, you say your headaches have returned? On account of robberies? Oh, all right, Inspector. I'll call you as soon as the doctor returns. Professor. Oh. Oh, uh, hello, Rox. Everything all right? Yeah. Yeah, that loft was a pushover. We split up. The boys will be back soon. Hey. What's that in that tube? Blood. I took this specimen from O.K. before he went out on the warehouse job. I'll take another when he gets back. You got more of O.K.'s blood now than he has. <laughs> you know... I've been wanting to talk to you, Professor. <laughs> All right, Rox. What's on your mind? Well, I... I don't like the way things have gone lately. Well, what's the matter? We've been successful enough, haven't we? Well, that ain't it. I used to be the head man around here. I don't like the way you moved in, see? And the main thing I don't like is that book you keep writing in. <laughs> yes, but I, I've told you a hundred times there's nothing in this book that concerns you. Yeah? Well, if it don't concern me, why don't you show me what's in it? Oh, really, Rox, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. I don't go in for this closed mouth business. Come on, open up, Professor. What's your name? Who are you, anyway? Uh, Rox, that is the major thing that doesn't concern you. Look, everything concerns me that has to oh, do with... Hiya, boys. The stuff is here and it's mellow. Oh, the most beautiful furs you ever see. I pick out a nice smink for my wife. Her sable coat was beginning to look even sabbier than her ermine. Here, throw the stuff on the table. Let's have a look at it. Yes, and while Rox is examining the take, I... I know. Here we go again. Okay, Professor, jab away. <laughs> uh, you too, Popus. Oh, uh, come okay. on, come on, roll up your sleeves. Uh, I'm ready with the needle. Uh, please, Professor. I got enough holes in me now from this. Uh, do you know how we spray the lawn at home in our house? How? I drink a glass of water and go out and stand in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, gentlemen. You've been very good subjects. You've told me all I've wanted to know. Oh, boy, this is really a horrible. Must be half a million bucks worth of furs there. My cut will come to plenty. Well, your cut will come to even more than you think, Rox. What do you mean? I'm going to divide my share among the three of you. Professor. Huh? You mean... You mean you, you don't want no money from this job? Exactly. 
What's the idea? Seems kind of funny to me. Funny? Is he incomprehensible to it? <laughs> well, you see, gentlemen, it's a little farewell gift from me to you. Oh, so? So you're walking out, huh? Just like that, huh? Yeah, just like that. Taking your little black book with you. Oh, indeed I am. Uh, pardon me, Roxy. I'd like to use the phone behind you. Uh-huh. Thank you. Hello? Uh, yes. Yes, I've decided. Uh, well, tell them, Mrs. Gansper, I'll see her in the morning. What? Yes, I've weathered all storms and I arrive home tomorrow for good. Uh, tomorrow, then. Goodbye. Well, goodbye, gentlemen. It's been very enlightening to have known you. So long, Professor. Uh, happy day, Spock. Thanks. Now, if there are no hard feelings, Rocks. Get out. <laughs> very well. I'll see you in the medical papers, gentlemen. You think the guy's daffy? Daffy nothing. I'm going to do a little research on my own. Where's that phone? Give me a screwdriver, Papas. You're taking the phone apart, boss? Yeah, sure. I fitted a piece of le- pencil lead under the dial. And when your professor spun it, it went around with the dial and made a mark each time. See? Holy smoke. Look. Yeah, it worked pretty good. See, there's seven marks there. Now all I got to do is sort of translate them. It's pretty nice of the professor to write down his own number for me, eh? Your phone in his number? Hey, Rock, that ain't right. Shut up. Hello? Uh, is this Plaza 74018? Who? Doc... Dr. Who's residence? Oh, yeah, uh, never mind, thanks. So that's who he is. Well, now it's my turn. Lady Esther has presented Act One of The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse, starring Lloyd Nolan, Claire Trevor, and Edward G. Robinson. In just a moment, we will hear the Lady Esther Screen Guild players in Act Two. But first, a word from our hostess, Lady Esther. I wonder if you've ever had this experience. You've dressed and made up carefully and gone out somewhere. You're gay and confident because you know you look your best. But after you've been out an hour or two, you catch a glimpse of yourself. My, you say, is that what I look like? Whatever happened to my makeup? Well, unless I miss my guess, one of three things has happened. Either your face is shiny, or it's caked and streaked, or tiny little lines are noticeable. On the other hand, here's what women who use my Lady Esther face powder tell me. Hours after powdering, the effect is still so wonderfully smooth and fresh, so glamorous, as though they had just spread the delicate film of Lady Esther face powder on their skin. And I'll tell you why Lady Esther is so different. At the point where other face powders are considered finished, my twin hurricane process begins. It blows the powder particles with such tremendous force, smooths them down so fine and velvety that they lie on your face like a soft, flattering veil, hiding little lines and blemishes, clinging fresh and smooth for hours and hours. I hope you'll try Lady Esther face powder right away and discover how much younger and lovelier the right face powder can make you look. Not for just a few minutes, but for hours and hours. Hello? 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 Hello?
Doctor, before I leave, I want to tell you again how glad I am that it's all over. My active career as a public enemy? Yes. Yes, that's finished. I've lifted my last collection of precious stones. From now on, gallstones. <laughs> Satisfied? Yes, completely, <laughs> Doctor. Is there anything else you want done? No, I believe not. I intend to work on my research notes tonight. All right, Doctor. Good night. Good night, Miss Randolph. My, you sound happy, mm. Professor. Rocks. How did you get in my office? Oh, it's a cinch. Kind of careless of a master mind to leave his windows open, Dr. Clitterhouse. Oh, so you know my name, too. I know all about you. You intend exposing me to the police? Oh, me do a thing like that? No, why should I? And what do you want? Take it easy, take it easy. We'll get to that. While I was uh, waiting for you, I've been reading your little black book here. My notes? Mm-hmm. Names and everything in here. Blood analogy. Analysis of OK after loft robbery. Pupils of Rock's eyes react slowly to strong light. Ought to make nice reading for the cops. Well, I intend to change the names to X, Y, or Z. You need to have no fears on that account. You bet your sweet life I don't. Doctor, I almost forgot. Mm. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were alone. It's all right, Miss Randolph. Uh, anything wrong? No, but I just forgot to tell you that I put some paradictal chloride tablets in your cabinet. Mrs. Gansbert might call. Yes, her insomnia frequently keeps me awake. <laughs> well, that's all. I'll see you tomorrow. Stick around, sweetheart. What? I said stick around, sweetheart. Maybe the doc's been shooting off his mouth to you. Doctor, what right has this man to... I'm terribly to... sorry, Miss Randolph. Apparently, I've made the same mistake as the immortal Dr. Frankenstein. This is my monster. Oh, then he must be one of the... I mean... Uh-huh, I was right, eh? The dame is wise. I assure you, Rox, that Miss Randolph is the soul of discretion. Please let her go. She stays, Doc. She knows what the score was, so she might as well know what the score's gonna be. You have a plan, Rox? Sure. These notes are yours proof plenty, and I got them. That sort of puts you over the barrel. I see. I suppose you force me to continue working with you. Oh, not with me, Doc. You'll be working for me. I'm the boss of the outfit again. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, it's wonderful. You're going to in with a lot of rich guys, and you're going to use it. You're going to slip me the layout of their houses, find out safe combinations, tell me when they won't be home. Oh, it'll be a cleanup for me. And just to show you I ain't a bad guy, I'm going to give you 10%. Oh, your generosity stuns me. You'll take it and you'll like it. Doctor, doctor, you mustn't let him do this to you. I'm afraid it's unavoidable. What else can I do? Nothing. Except maybe uh, offer you a new boss a drink, huh? Yes, yes, a uh, good suggestion. Yeah. I have some excellent scotch in the cabinet. Oh, it's swell. About six fingers in a water glass ought to do the trick. How about you, sweetheart, little sniffer? No, thank you. Ah, don't be like that. Say, you know, you ain't bad looking. Should I take them flat heel shoes off you and take some of the starch out of that uniform? Uh, leave her alone, Rocks. Oh, private stock, huh? Well, okay. But hurry up with that drink. Talking to her gives me a chill. It's on the way. Rox, do you seriously mean all you've said? Just try and cross me, Doc. You'll find out. Well, that's that. Here's your drink. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Not bad. <coughs> Quite old. You probably noticed the full smoky flavor. Yeah, well, here's a toast. 
to a killing for me and 10% for you. <laughs> well, couldn't you make that to uh, crime and research? Uh, you're still harping on research, eh? Yes, because I have some more to do. I've neglected a study of the greatest crime of all. What's that? Murder. Oh, that's bad business, Doc. You can't get away with oh, it. Oh, I don't know. It's quite easy for a doctor to eliminate someone. A poison administered in the guise of medicine, the body dropped in some convenient river, and the verdict would be death by drowning. You got a nasty mind, Doc. <laughs> Getting sort of sleepy. You are, Rocks? Yeah. Yeah, that, that drink, I guess, it sure hit me. Did it, Rocks? Uh, look at me. Uh, can you see me clearly? Hmm? No. It looks funny and small and far off. My voice sounds rather indistinct, doesn't it? Talk louder. We can't hear you, good. Doctor, what have you done to him? As you pointed out, Miss Randolph, there were paradigmal chloride tablets in the cabinet. Hey, Doc, I, I can't open my eyes. No, Rox, then you never will again. You, you, you are all fixed. There's no use struggling. Unfortunately, you placed me in a position where this was the only way out. I couldn't very well sacrifice my life's work because you were greedy, could I, Rox? Could I, Rox? No, I couldn't. You... You killed him? Yes. Uh, Miss Randolph, will you assist me, please? I want to take my blood pressure. Oh, Inspector Lane. Oh, delighted to see you. What brings you out so early, Inspector? Oh, got another splitting headache. Oh, well, that's too bad. How long have you had it? Since early this morning. It started when we fished the body of Rox Valentine out of the river. Oh, really? He was full of poison. Aradictol chloride. Well, how distressing for him. Uh, any clues? Yes. In his pocket was a book of matches with a telephone number written inside the cover. It was somewhat blurred by the water... But it's either Plaza 74018 or Plaza 74016. Well, it couldn't be Plaza 74018. That's my number. Yes, so it must be the other one. 4016? That belongs to the Beauty Form Girdle Company. <laughs> Valuable clue, Inspector. We'll get more. We just picked up Harry Pappas and O.K. Kinsella. And we'll soon have a complete description of the mysterious professor. I'm on the way to talk to him now. Yeah, but your headache, Inspector. It's almost gone. However, don't be surprised if I drop back later today. No, I won't. Uh, goodbye, Inspector. Miss Randolph. Yes, Doctor? Uh, get Chester Wood on the phone, please. Your lawyer? Yes, uh, tell him I want to see him immediately. Doctor, why did Inspector Lane come here? Was it... He had a headache, Miss Randolph. Oh. The contagious kind. Now I have one. I made a slight error last night. After all, it's my first murder. Inspector Lane will be back soon to place me under arrest. Doctor, it's not fair. Can't you make them see that? Now, don't worry, Miss Randolph. It's a clear case of monomania. It's my own personal position. I've just diagnosed my own case. Yes, Dr. Clitterhouse? I'm crazy. Miss Randolph, absolutely crazy. Order in the court, please. Will the foreman of the jury please stand? Hmm. Yes, Your Honor. Have you arrived at a verdict? No, Your Honor. We can't figure out the testimony of those aliens. 
They talk about melancholia and psychoneuroses and hyperamnesia until it's enough to drive anybody nuts. Uh, pardon the expression. <laughs> Their language leaves a doubt in your mind. That's right. We know Dr. Clitterhouse killed Valentine. He says so himself. But we've listened to all those experts, and we still don't know whether he's sane or whether he's, well... Uh... Uh, go ahead. I'll pardon the expression. Thanks, Your Honor. Nuts! <laughs> I'm sure that none of us has any desire to prolong this trial. Dr. Clitterhouse. Yes, Your Honor. Would you resume the witness stand? Certainly, sir. Mr. Foreman, I'm recalling Dr. Clitterhouse in order to put several questions to him myself. I hope it works, Your Honor. Are you ready for the questioning, Dr. Clitterhouse? Uh, look, Your Honor, I'm tired of all this nonsense. Let's get it over with. I'm not insane at all. I was aware of the consequences of my actions that night. You were? Yes. But uh, not of their extent or far-reaching possibilities. Your Honor. Yes, Mr. Wood. Your Honor, could we have a short recess? I'm sorry, Mr. Wood, but that's impossible. But I'm afraid that the strain on my client... Uh, that Mr. will be all, Mr. Wood. Now, Dr. Clitterhouse, as a competent medical authority, do you believe it's possible for an insane man to write a sane book? Em emphatically not. In that case, do you consider your book, Crime and Research, to be irrational and of no scientific value? Quite on the contrary, Your Honor. I consider my book completely rational and of definite scientific value. Say what you please about me. Do anything to me the law allows. But you cannot, you must not question the sanity of my book. I see. Now, assuming that it is impossible for an insane man to write a sane book, in your opinion, you are perfectly sane? Perfectly. Now, do what you will with me. I'm sorry, Dr. Clitterhouse, but if, as you say, you... Your Honor! Mr. Foreman? You don't have to ask him anything else. We've reached a verdict. Well, what is the verdict? Not guilty, by reason of insanity. <laughs> how... how on earth did you arrive at that? Your Honor, the prisoner hasn't got a prayer unless he proves himself insane. His life depends on it. So there he sits, trying his best to prove he's sane. Only an insane man would do that. So he must be, uh, pardon the expression, nuts. Very nuts. Uh, Dr. Clitterhouse, you've heard the verdict of the jury. Have you any uh, comment to make? Amazing. Really amazing. Thank you, Edward G. Robinson, Claire Trevor, and Lloyd Nolan for appearing with the Lady Esther Screen Guild players tonight. Oh, that was our pleasure, Mr. Bradley. You see, the Motion Picture Relief Fund, which benefits from these programs, is very important to all of us in the industry. We are vitally interested in the fund and the country house and the clinic which it supports. And now, before we tell you about next week's show, here's a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. Thank you, Miss Trevor. Ladies, I promise you a thrill and a surprise when you first apply Lady Esther face powder. Surprised that any powder can make you look so much younger, so much prettier. But the real thrill of using Lady Esther face powder comes hours later, when you take out your mirror to repowder and find your face still as smooth and glamorous as though you just made up. I thank you and my husband thanks you, a girl wrote me who just discovered Lady Esther. He hates to see me constantly repowdering. And even more, he hates the mask-like look I've been getting with my recent makeup. So many women have told me that. Told me no makeup stays fresh and flattering as long as Lady Esther. And I know it's true, because my special twin hurricane process makes powder different from others. 
more vitally alive looking and infinitely softer, smoother and more clinging. Find out for yourself why more women use Lady Esther face powder than any other kind. Try my face powder and look your most enchanting. Not just for minutes, but for hours and hours. Next week, the Lady Esther Screen Guild players will present My Son, My Son. It will star Geraldine Fitzgerald, Freddie Bartholomew, and Brianna Hearn. Be sure to listen. Edward G. Robinson is soon to be seen in the Columbia comedy Mr. Winkle Goes to War. Claire Trevor will soon be seen in the RKO radio picture Farewell, My Lovely. Lloyd Nolan is soon to be seen in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, a 20th Century Fox production. Music on tonight's program was arranged and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. To try Lady Esther four-purpose face cream, just get the smallest size jar. Later, you can get the economical large jar and keep refilling the small one for convenience. This is Truman Bradley speaking for Lady Esther, saying thank you and good night, everyone. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. President Edgar. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, yesterday, on June 4th, 1944, Rome fell to American and Allied troops. The first of the Axis capitals is now in our hands. One up and two to go. It is perhaps significant that the first of these capitals to fall should have the longest history of all of them. The story of Rome goes back to the time of the foundations of our civilization. We can still see there monuments of the time when Rome and the Romans controlled the whole of the then known world. That too is significant. For the United Nations are determined that in the future, no one city and no one race will be able to control the whole of the world. In addition to the monuments of the older times, we also see in Rome the great symbol of Christianity, which has reached into almost every part of the world. There are other shrines and other churches in many places, but the churches and the shrines of Rome are visible symbols of the faith and determination of the early saints and martyrs that Christianity should live and become universal. And tonight, it will be a source of deep satisfaction that the freedom of the Pope and of Vatican City is assured by the armies of the United Nations. It is also significant that Rome has been liberated by the armed forces of many generations, many nations. 
the American and British armies who bore the chief burdens of battle found at their side our own North American neighbors, the gallant Canadians, the fighting New Zealanders from the far South Pacific, the courageous French and the French Moroccans, the South Africans, the Poles, and the East Indians, all of them fought with us on the bloody approaches to the city of Rome. The Italians, too, forswearing a partnership in the Axis, which they never desired, have sent their troops to join us in our battles against the German trespassers on their soil. The prospect of the liberation of Rome meant enough to Hitler and his generals to induce them to fight desperately at great cost of men and materials and with great sacrifice to their crumbling eastern line and to their western front. No thanks are due to them if Rome was spared the devastation which the Germans wreaked on Naples and other Italian cities. The Allied generals maneuvered so skillfully that the Nazis could only have stayed long enough to damage Rome at the risk of losing their armies. But Rome is, of course, more than a military objective. Ever since before the days of the Caesars, Rome has stood as a symbol of authority. Rome was the republic. Rome was the empire. Rome was and is, in a sense, the Catholic Church. And Rome was the capital of a united Italy. Later, unfortunately, a quarter of a century ago, Rome became the seat of fascism and, still later, one of the three capitals of the Axis. For this quarter century, the Italian people were enslaved. They were degraded by the rule of Mussolini from Rome. They will mark its liberation with deep emotion. In the north of Italy, the people are still dominated, threatened by the Nazi overlords and their fascist puppets. Somehow in the back of my head, I still remember a name, Mussolini. Our victory comes at an excellent time. While our allied forces are poised for another strike at Western Europe, and while the armies of other Nazi soldiers nervously await our assault, and in the meantime our gallant Russian allies continue to make their power felt, more and more. From a strictly military standpoint, we had long ago accomplished certain of the main objectives of our Italian campaign. The control of the islands, the major islands, the control of the sea lanes of the Mediterranean, to shorten our combat and supply lines, and the capture of the airports, such as the great airports of Foggia, 
south of Rome, from which we have struck telling blows on the continent, the whole of the continent, all the way up to the Russian front. It would be unwise to inflate in our own minds the military importance of the capture of Rome. We shall have to push through a long period of greater effort and fiercer fighting before we get into Germany itself. The Germans have retreated thousands of miles all the way from the gates of Cairo through Libya and Tunisia and Sicily and southern Italy. They have suffered heavy losses, but not great enough yet to cause collapse. Germany has not yet been driven to surrender. Germany has not yet been driven to the point where she will be unable to recommence world conquest a generation hence. Therefore, the victory still lies some distance ahead. That distance will be covered in due time. Have no fear of that, but it will be tough and it will be costly. As I have told you, many, many times. In Italy, the people had lived so long under the corrupt rule of Mussolini that in spite of the tinsel at the top, you have seen the pictures of him, their economic condition had grown steadily worse. Our troops have found starvation, malnutrition, disease, a deteriorating education, a lowered public health, all byproducts of the fascist misrule. The task of the Allies in occupation has been stupendous. We've had to start at the very bottom, assisting local governments to reform on democratic lines. We have had to give them bread to replace that which was stolen out of their mouths by the Germans. We have had to make it possible for the Italians to raise and use their own local crops. We've had to help them cleanse their schools of fascist trappings. I think the American people as a whole approve the salvage of these human beings who are only now learning to walk in a new atmosphere of freedom. Some of us may let our thoughts run to the financial cost of it. Essentially, it is what we can call a form of relief. And at the same time, we hope that this relief will be an investment for the future, an investment that will pay dividends by eliminating fascism, by ending any Italian desires to start another war of aggression in the future. And that means that there are dividends which justify such an investment because they are additional supports for world peace. The Italian people are capable of self-government. We do not lose sight of their virtues as a peace-loving nation. We remember the many centuries in which the Italians were leaders in the arts and sciences enriching the lives of all mankind. We remember the great sons of the Italian people, Galileo, 
Marconi, Michelangelo, Dante, and incidentally, that fearless discoverer who typifies the courage of Italy, Christopher Columbus. Italy cannot grow in stature by seeking to build up a great militaristic empire. Italians have been overcrowded within their own territories, but they do not need to try to conquer the lands of other peoples in order to find the breadth of life. Other peoples may not want to be conquered. In the past, Italians have come by the millions into the United States. They have been welcomed. They have prospered. They have become good citizens, community, government leaders. They are not Italian-Americans. They are Americans, Americans of Italian descent. Italians have gone in great numbers to the other Americas, Brazil and the Argentine, for example. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. They have gone to many other nations in every continent of the world, giving of their industry and their talents and achieving success and the comfort of good living and good citizenship. Italy should go on as a great mother nation, contributing to the culture and the progress and the goodwill of all mankind, developing her special talents in the arts and crafts and sciences, and preserving her historic and cultural heritage for the benefit of all peoples. We want and expect the help of the future Italy toward lasting peace. All the other nations opposed to fascism and Nazism ought to help to give Italy a chance. The Germans, after years of domination in Rome, left the people in the Eternal City on the verge of starvation. We and the British will do and are doing everything we can to bring them relief. Anticipating the fall of Rome, we made preparations to ship food supplies to the city. But of course it should be borne in mind that the needs are so great, the transportation requirements of our armies are so heavy, that improvement must be gradual. But we have already begun to save the lives of the men, women, and children of Rome. This, I think, is an example of the efficiency of your machinery of war. The magnificent ability and energy of the American people in growing crops, in building the merchant ships, in making and collecting the cargoes, in getting the supplies over thousands of miles of water, and thinking ahead to meet emergencies. All this spells, I think, an amazing efficiency on the part of our armed forces, all the various agencies working with them, and American industry and labor as a whole. No great effort like this can be 100% perfect, but the batting average is very, very high. 
And so I extend the congratulation and the thanks tonight of the American people to General Alexander, who has been in command of the whole Italian operation, to our General Clark, to General Lease of the 5th and the 8th Armies, to General Wilson, the Supreme Allied Commander of the Mediterranean Theater, to General Devers, his American deputy, to General Eka, to Admirals Cunningham and Hewitt, and to all their brave officers and men. May God bless them and watch over them and over all of our gallant fighting men. Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard the President of the United States and now our national anthem. Oh. Alt tab 1. 8 President Alt F4. 1. 8 President Ro June 1st 3rd Alt tab MSN Alt tab Sound Forge Pro Escape. Escape. Enter. Enter. Menu. File menu. A. Leaving menus. Sound 1 star. Save as dialog. File name. Sound 1. Edit. S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y-N-I-G-H-T. 6-2-1-8-W-I-T-8. P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-S-E-C-O-N-D-P-C Save as type. Save button. Enter. Sound one star. JAWS Professional. Replay Radio 9. Alt-Tab. Replay Alt-Tab. Skype Trade Alt-Tab. Sound Forge Pro.